Well, it's time to take stock of my last 365 early morning farts, and just to remind you of the rule, only games I have reviewed feature in the top and bottom five, which may leave a few significant gaps, I admit. PlayStation All-Stars Battle Royale, for example, aka Sony Smash Brothers, but I didn't really want to play that, just abuse it for five minutes. I remember thinking Sony must have been fucking kicking themselves for letting Nintendo use Solid Snake because it meant they had to make do with Raiden instead, the knockoff of the popular one that nobody likes. But then I thought, wait, actually that makes him fucking ideal, doesn't it? He's a fucking metaphor for the whole game. It's in the same boat as the Justice League movie, it's trying to fight a battle three years is too late that you can't possibly win because your opponent isn't on the battlefield, they're at home, rubbing Brasso on their trophy that they got for winning the battle three years ago that you just joined, and are infinitely less well equipped to fight. Still haven't played it, mind, it might be alright. Don't care. Fifth best. This one I agonised over a bit, because it made two mistakes that stained everything else in the game with original sin, a moral choice aspect that constrained the player's decision making, and dialogue that made every character seem about as lively and engaging as a tree stump, with the paper cut out of Kristen Stewart's face nailed to it. But for good world building, and gameplay that managed to do stealth and keep the pace going without too much hiding behind crates waiting for sideburn toss bots to turn around and expose the big glowing targets on their backs, number five goes to Dishonored, and it can thank its lucky stars it didn't come out in a more interesting year. <laughs> But from fresh new IP, we move to the very, very old, Resident Evil 6, and it really is resident now, isn't it? We just can't persuade the fucking thing to leave our house. With the entire overarching story of the series completely undermined by the death of the main villain and the continual ramping up of global disaster to the point of total meaninglessness, Resident Evil very decisively blew its load two games ago. And Resident Evil 6 is the series just refusing to leave the bed. Enough with the quick time events, enough with the fucking 19-stage boss monsters, and enough with the Dutch ovens, you filthy sod. <laughs> Let's make like pretty much the entire entertainment industry and stay on the subject of zombies for now. This is another one I had to think carefully about, but in the final analysis I have a very great interest in interactive storytelling, and so it seems does Walking Dead. I guess you can't make five million episodic games without getting better at it, and by effectively alternating between slow exposition and quick high-tension decision-making, Telltale showed us just how pacing is done. I won't go higher than four, though, because the Q key on my laptop still hasn't forgiven me. <laughs> To be perfectly honest, Fourth Worst is a game I actually find kind of adorable for all its absolutely hideously broken design, and that's never dead. Is it possible to stay mad at a game where your head keeps flying off without warning to roll clumsily around the floor avoiding instant death quick time events? Well yes, demonstrably so, but you know, it's only when you try to do something interesting that you crash and burn in the most spectacular way. You may laugh at the bloke who thought he'd invented the parachute coat and threw himself off the Eiffel Tower, but what's history gonna remember you for, funny man? That time you found a copy of Razzle in a hedge. <laughs> Third place goes to something of a late entry for 2012, but no less deserving of its spot for being fresh in my memory, Far Cry 3, Ubisoft's rather lovely organic mindfuck tiger em up. It's got it all, really. Characterization, stealth, explosions, shark fishing, titties, and every player will come out of it with their own story of how they set someone on fire and fed them to a Komodo dragon. If we as an industry feel we must be shackled to franchises for name recognition sales, this seems like a good way for the creative to beat the system. Just make something cool and randomly slap a franchise name onto it. We may well be revisiting that strategy before the end of this list, tee hee hee. In this age of big money and outsourced quality assurance, it's rare to find a game that's completely unplayable. If a game is bad, it's usually because not enough people cared, not because development was formulating a murder-suicide, but that's the only explanation I can think of for Steel Battalion heavy armour, and whatever thought process decided that the best direction for a series previously based around massive ridiculous controllers would be no controller at all. Microsoft brandished the Kinect and said, we'd like to make this relevant to hardcore gaming, and the universe looked down upon it and said, yeah, we'd all like a lot of things, Microsoft. <laughs> 
It's a sad fact, but by simple virtue of video gaming being so much more widespread than it used to be, yes, perhaps a certain amount of translation is necessary when reintroducing popular tactical games from the 90s. So what you do is you trim off the fatty bits, make the interfaces less horribly designed than a 70s government housing project, and roll the difficulty back from 3am influenza fever dream. And the result is the very absorbing XCOM Enemy Unknown. What you do not do is slap the name on a fucking shooter, syndicate. We're good for shooters, thanks, although I hesitate to use the word good. Case in point. Yes, it's confirmed, Warfighter is actually a word used by the actual military, but I don't see how that makes it any less dumb, or Medal of Honor Warfighter any less obnoxious, incoherent, and boring. In the year I started referring to schizophrenic, overly linear modern military shooters as spunk gargle wee-wee with the good taste and maturity you'd come to expect, I felt it would be remiss of me not to represent the genre here. A genre I would have been tempted to now put alongside one-on-one -on -one fighters, real-time strategy, and train simulators as shit that's just not for me, and not worth opinionating on. If it weren't for... <laughs> Spec Ops The Line. And thanks a fucking bunch, Jaeger Development, because now I have to keep playing modern military shooters just in case they turn out to be the most exciting thing to happen in video game narrative for fucking years. It's my game of 2012, not necessarily for being the best game functionally, but for being the game that most fucking deserves to be played. And then the thing I'm still taking every opportunity to bang on about, however many months after release, is kind of beyond comparison. It's one for the history books, or at the very least it will make you want to pick up a history book and hit yourself with it until you're a less horrible person. <laughs> Perhaps the plan was to release this game right at the start of the year so that it might be forgotten about by now, or at least eclipsed by something even worse, like for example a game that comes with free crystal meth. Yes, it's Amy. An uncontroversial choice, perhaps, but by god there's offensively bad, and then there's the kind of bad that dresses up like Hitler and starts doing impressions of people with cerebral palsy. It is notable in being the first indie game I put in the bottom slot, so that's one accolade it can put on the box blurb, alongside world's best argument for post-term abortion. I'm very fond of the Paper Mario series, not just for being fun games, but for being my secret weapon. I say the Final Fantasy games are now essentially the same as gluing kaleidoscopes to your eyes and spending 20 hours in the queue at a Brazilian sex change clinic, and then say a dolphin or a stoat materialises behind me and goes, Bwah, you just don't like RPGs! Or I point out that ever since Galaxy, the entire Mario franchise has just been rolling back and forth on the floor of a public bathroom trying to catch spiders in its mouth, and I get, Bwah, you just don't like Nintendo, Mario games, or fun. But then I can go, have I mentioned how much I like the Paper Mario series? They're RPGs that are also Mario games developed by Nintendo and are fun. Eat your devastated argument on a crusty bap flipper. Whoppa! And then I dance in the rain of their exploded head. Or rather, that's how it used to go. More recently, they then get to say, so does this mean you really like Paper Mario Sticker Star on the 3DS? At which point I have to fall upon my secondary masterstroke, which is to smash a bottle over their head and run away. So the game opens with Mario and the princess holding some kind of open-air festival for stickers, which just goes to show how exciting life gets during Mushroom Kingdom peacetime. Stick around, guys, because next week it's Hole Punch Mardi Gras. Then Bowser shows up and nature takes its fucking course, and now Mario must recover five magical artifacts from all across the land in order to fill his rescue quota for the day. Only this time he has to do it entirely with stickers, because he's been doing this so long he has to come up with arbitrary conditions just to keep his interest in the world alive. Next week he has to save the princess with one arm and balancing a book on his head. The idea is that there are stickers absolutely everywhere, you collect them in your touchscreen album, and each one represents a single use of an attack Mario can use in the turn-based combat, which makes Mario the worst sticker collector ever, because half his stickers are the exact same picture of a shoe. And for me this fails to capture the most important aspect of sticker collecting, which was standing around in the school playground going, got, 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 need, need, got, like hipster robots trying to reinvent binary. When Theodore Creative Man at Nintendo says, we've got an idea for a new unproven core game mechanic and a team with nothing much to do, Conrad Bossperson replies, better make a Paper Mario game. Here's the keys to the skip where we keep the art assets. Then Theodore jangles the noticeably rusty and odd-smelling keys for a second and tentatively asks, could we maybe have a small budget to make some new art assets? Fuck no, what do you think this is, some kind of multinational entertainment corporation? Hence why Super Paper Mario was based around shifting perspective mechanics and all the new characters were made by randomly smashing Photoshop shape functions together, and now we've got all this sticker business 
worse and no new characters at all. Just reused sprites of the usual crowd. Oh, and several random household objects that someone made for their evening 3D modeling classes. I'm not one to condemn laziness, because I spent my entire Christmas week lying on the sofa calling all my friends and trying to persuade them to build a conveyor belt leading from the fridge. But my problem is that this isn't a Paper Mario game. It looks like one, it's wearing the skin of one, but that doesn't make it one. I'm not a fat woman, even though I've I've just been advised not to finish this sentence. You see, being a Paper Mario is more than just arts and craft lessons with ten-year-old sprites. It was a series that ran entirely on anarchic imagination. Every other Mario game has used pretty much the same roadmap. Grasslands, desert, forest, jungle, ice world, fire world, boss. You can make a fucking remix out of it. Meanwhile, Paper Mario 2 has chapters in which Mario solves Agatha Christie mysteries or joins wrestling federations and Princess Peach gets sexually harassed by a computer because it caught a glimpse of her juggle buns. Even Super Paper Mario managed to have a chapter where you have to find bog roll for a space monster. You come into Paper Mario Sticker Star and it's Grasslands, Desert, Forest, Jungle, Ice World, Fire World, Boss. Mch, 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 mch. No partners, no subplots, no side questing because it's barely an RPG anymore. Your combat ability is based entirely around what single use stickers you've amassed. So there's very little side questing could do to help develop your skills, besides maybe grand money, but for no particular reason, the game fucking showers you with coins at the end of every level, like Mario's a registered charity and it's the last week of the financial year. Are stickers a big thing with you young people now? I vaguely remember people at school used to put them on their pencil cases, but they were never a big fat thing, like Pokemon cards or pushing people onto the railway track behind the playing fields. I ask because it seems an odd thing to base all your gameplay around. As well as the combat thing, you can apply stickers to the outside world to solve inventory puzzles. For example, there's an exit blocked by a bunch of bowling pins and I have a bowling ball sticker. Better give the Riddler a call for some advice on this fucking brain teaser. And there are a couple of puzzle boss fights where you get your stumpy little Italian buttocks handed to you if you forgot to bring the one really big sticker with no other purpose you wouldn't have thought to bring until this very moment. Mch, 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 mch. I'm left wondering if this is barely an RPG and barely a platformer because by usual Mario standards his jumping in this game would qualify him to use the disabled parking space then what the hell is it? A walk around him up? A walk around sticking things to other things him up? That's not a game, that's how I kill time in a pet shop. In the interest of objectivity I feel I must reveal the following. What with 2D sprites in a 3D environment when there was platforming I was having the River City Ransom problem of it being hard to figure out Mario's vertical positioning and on these occasions I found it useful to turn the 3D on. So I suppose the 3DS can feel free to stand on my desk and rub its buttocks on my face making really satisfied noises like this. Mmm. Mmm. I turned it straight off afterwards though, before I started feeling the first few itchy specks of eyeball cancer. On the whole, Sticker Star is an exercise in phoning it in, and I'm left with yet another way to feel disappointed in Nintendo. Every time we come over they insist that we stand in a creepy white room and take turns hitting really old Mario and Link inflatables with a succession of increasingly awkward to hold sticks. But I always felt there was hope, as long as they still had that one weird cupboard under the stairs where the Paper Mario games came from. But with Paper Mario Sticker Star they're not letting us into the cupboard under the stairs, they're making us stand outside the cupboard and play with the things being pushed under the crack under the door. I just want to play in the fucking cupboard, Nintendo. I know you're keeping WarioWare in there too. Now that we're done with Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Saturnalia, or generic brand obligatory half-remembered swamp of gluttony and resentment, we've a few weeks to kill before the time of year I've come to call Few Coast is Clear Gang, when everything that didn't want to try to compete for seasonal sales makes a break for it, now that Call of Duty's done eating all the money in the world and is lying in a bloated stupor dreaming happy little dreams of oppressing the underprivileged. So like the England cricket team, I've been trying to keep up with the indies. And with the end of year Steam sales, I can certainly think of worse times to do so, like the Battle of Stalingrad, or when your head has gotten trapped in a Lego castle. Counterintuitively though, the first one that caught my eye was an XBLA game called Black Knight Sword, an informative if grammatically iffy title because it's about a knight in black armour who uses a sword. If only other games were willing to wear its colours so prominently in the title it'd certainly make cataloguing them a lot easier, like Orange Nerd Crowbar, or Brown Sweaty Racism, or Red Dead Revolt- oh wait. Interestingly enough, Black Sword Knight Black comes to us from an occasional friend and possible nutter, Suda51, and is strongly reminiscent of those weird 2D paper doll bits from his last but one game, Shadows of the Damned, all made to look like a 2D cardboard puppet show with Terry Gilliam-esque visuals and sound, telling a story of a bloke who hangs himself, turns into a black knight, and then opts to use 
introduced his new lease on life to meander through a succession of levels and boss fights themed around slightly fucked up animal fables. And thank Christ, Suda, because after Shadows of the Damned and Lollipop Chainsaw, I was afraid your narratives were getting too coherent. In fairness, it's more like poetry than standard game storytelling, with the aesthetic of a grim fairy tale slurpily making out with surreal Python-esque imagery and an ongoing narration by someone who talks like Vincent Price, teaching his children how to pull the legs off spiders. Maybe the plot comes together at the end, I wouldn't know, because the actual game plays like arse. And by arse, I of course mean the late 16-bit era third-party platformer, oh wait, actually, I do mean arse. The checkpoint system is like a crippled dog attempting to pole dance, awful and bewildering and not the least bit sexy. Get this, if you run out of lives, you have to restart the level without upgrades, by which I mean with all the upgrades you've acquired since the very start of the game inexplicably gouged out of your Black Knight bum. Unless you do a manual save from the pause menu after every checkpoint, which you can only reload from the title screen after quitting out of the game after sitting through three fucking loading screens. Game quality is subjective to taste, but there is one aspect that can be calculated mathematically. Between getting killed and getting back into the action, time plus number of button presses plus increasingly grating repeated sound effects equals how many bits of myself I will have chewed off by the end of the game. I get that it's trying to make you seriously want to not die, but the game is deliberately hard, so it's throwing rocks at your head without warning and yelling, try harder you prick, and all the unnecessarily slow and ornate menus and loading screens completely pile drives the pacing into a concrete traffic barrier to the point that it just ruins the whole thing. I suppose you might like it if you secretly murdered your wife and are seeking punishment to assuage your guilt, otherwise can't recommend. Moving on, you know what video games need more of these days? Violence. I'm surprised no one's ever thought of that, it seems like such an obvious fit since people who play video games are all frustrated social misfits with secret longings for power over others in whatever twisted and demented forms they can get it, and you'd think more developers would capitalise on that. Well, this niche is finally being filled by Hotline Miami, a rather unique blend of arcade action and various forms of mental illness. In a retro depiction of Miami, blearily glimpsed through a psychedelic haze, you are tasked to complete a series of massacres against an unspecific criminal organisation at the behest of your answering machine, while descending further and further into whatever madness caused you to employ a piece of home office equipment as a lifestyle coach in the first place. It's presented in a top-down floor plan perspective with retro pixely graphics like a cross between Dreamweb, GTA Vice City and Super Meat Boy, and good thing too, because as I was throwing boiling water in a man's face and repeatedly smashing his head against the kitchen floor while his friend crawled around trying to gather up bits of escaped brain, I remember thinking, it's lucky this is all stylized, or I might have thought it was a bit fucked up. What drives the Super Meat Boy comparison is that the pacing is almost entirely the opposite of Purple Monkey Dishwasher above, you die instantly from the slightest mistake but you can reload and be back in the action before your guts are finished flopping out onto the zebra skin rug. I'd call it trial and error, but the pacing is way too fast for a whole two-syllable word. It's more like trial and error. Restart, try again! At first you might make the mistake of trying to be methodical and plan your way strategically. Hmm, yes, a direct assault through this entrance, I think. Disable guard A, take his gun, wait 2.7 seconds, smash open this door to knock out guard B, shoot guard C through the window across the room, and whoops, forgot about that patrolling guard dog that was trained to equate jugular veins with begging strips. So then you restart make a noise somewhere along the lines of and this time run around swinging a katana around like your mum let you eat too many sweets before the anime convention. And somehow this works out a lot better. It really captures the desperate adrenaline pumping berserker rage that comes of having to live in the 1980s. But when the synth music stops blaring and the red mist fades away and you take stock of the ocean of mutilated bodies lapping gently around your ankles, you have to think to yourself, I am so fucked in the head that my frontal lobe is essentially a bell end. The story's a bit ambiguous, but I think it does a good job conveying how absolutely bonkers you are as hallucinations and reality become impossible to separate and your lucid moments feel like the brief snatches of air a drowning man grabs when his head momentarily breaks surface. The conclusion isn't particularly satisfying, but it's not a deal breaker because it's equally engaging to cry frothing bollock milkshakes to story and just concentrate on beating your massacre high score, you monster. For want of criticism, there's one very misguided forced stealth chapter in which the all-important pacing comes to a screeching halt, and a game like this can't afford to slow down for long because we might start thinking, hey, this gameplay's really frustrating and all the synth music's starting to get on my tits. Not seriously on my tits, just sort of nestling on the sternum area like 
like a sleeping cat, and I don't want to wake it, but I kind of need to be somewhere. On the whole, though, it's really quite engaging, and I found myself jolly hooked indeed, so I recommend Hotline Miami, or to use the new naming system, Magenta Nutcase Kitchen Floor. I've had the same conversation n times this week. I've been playing Anarchy Reigns, I'd say to a friend or favoured bartender. Never heard of it, they'd say, to which I'd reply, you know, I've had this exact same conversation n minus one times this week. There's flying under the radar, but with zero hype and sneaking onto shelves in early January, Anarchy Reigns isn't so much flying under the radar as riding the fucking subway. All I knew was that it's by Sega, and the name is possibly intended to be ironic, because anarchy refers to a situation in which nobody's raining shit. It's like calling your game Dog Meows, or Margaret Thatcher Cares. But anyway, it turns out that Anarchy Reigns is a sequel to Mad World of sorts, except that it's not on the Wii, and it's not a spectacle fighter, and it's not in cel-shaded black and white, so yeah, this is starting to sound like a pretty big of sorts, isn't it? The one connecting element is the main character, Jack, because, you know, there's such a fucking shortage of grizzled macho badasses voiced by Steve Blum in gaming that we have to start recycling them now. And then they say, are you buying a fucking drink or what? The advantage of the grizzled macho badass voiced by Steve Blum character is that they can be slotted in and out of pretty much any situation involving violence in a generic dystopian nightmare world without having to worry about continuity too much, so in this case Jack is now a bounty hunter who's been contracted to find a missing soldier who accidentally killed Jack's six-year-old daughter. Although if this is the same Jack who got bonus points for sending people's faces off with subway trains in Mad World, then something tells me she wasn't in for a stable upbringing anyway. Then there's another character called Leo, who was the same missing soldier's protege, and who has the rather thankless task of being the ride into Jack's solid snake, in that you have to play as him for half the game and he has those standard anime pretty boy better hope you don't get sent to a prison where the inmates all have bad eyesight good looks. It's not as bad as when that whining squirt of pussy whipped cream tried to fill solid snake's shoes though, because before we can declare Leo a worse character than Jack, we need to figure out what their characters actually are, and Anarchy Reigns has cleverly avoided this pitfall. I can tell Anarchy Reigns has put a lot of eggs in the multiplayer basket by the ever-reliable box blurb offhandedly mentioning at the very end that yeah, there's also a single-player campaign if you're into that, saddo. The game bears many of the qualities of a one-on-one -on -one fighter in that there are a bunch of colourful characters to play as and they're all introduced in the story by showing up apropos of nothing and concocting some excuse to have a fight. Pretty much every cutscene is a brief bout of verbal cock-swinging stroke tit-shaking before the participants all start doing that fighting game stance where they look like they're standing on a hot floor busting for a Wii and holding two invisible dumbbells, but the actual gameplay is more like a third-person brawler, the signature gameplay mode being an all-out battle royale between 16 players where all appearances and personalities or lack thereof are lost behind flashy glowing weapons and interchangeable visually exhausting overblown attacks. I think I just beat up someone very thin with a really clingy outfit and a stance like their hips have become dislocated. Oh well, that'll narrow it down to every single fucking female character in the game. The single-player campaign feels like a furniture showroom. The four multiplayer combat arenas available are converted into hub worlds from which one embarks upon story missions and optional missions, except you need to get a certain amount of points to proceed, and you can't redo story missions, so I don't know what dictionary Sega picked up the word optional from, but it probably also defines chlamydia as a low-fat alternative to margarine. The completely not optional missions are a rather hastily assembled jumble of piss-easy and urine slightly challenging. Sometimes you might have to defeat a boss monster in three minutes, necessitating the blatant abuse of a Rage of the Gods-style special attack so broken that you could stuff hay in its mouth and call it a racehorse, and at other times you might be given something styled a race mission in which you're not racing against anyone and every enemy on the track has about as much capacity to slow you down as a hedgehog, so you just drive leisurely around in a circle five times and then get a billion points like you're at some incredibly patronising driving school. For me, Anarchy Reigns does itself a disservice by deliberately linking itself to Mad World through Jack and a handful of other returning characters, because all it does is highlight how unlike Mad World this game is, and Mad World at least had some cute ideas, like a two-colour palette and spectacle fighter elements wherein you could perform delicate eye surgery with a stop sign, to the rapturous applause of a now slightly damp judging panel, so by reducing all that to dudes in colourful outfits bloodlessly hitting each other, Anarchy Reigns is saying, look, it's not just arty visuals and playful violence mechanics, we can also be bland and unadventurous too. That's right, we're the full package, ladies. But even reduced to hitting each other, the hitting each other is pretty cack-handed. I did try an online battle royale, in which the entire battle seemed to be happening half a second in the future because Australian connections to US servers are a thistly jungle bum-wipe, and every single time I ran up to someone to eagerly hurl a flurry of blows, they'd failed to connect because the recipient was being subjected to someone else's over-elaborate pre-baked finishing move. Then someone I hadn't noticed because the camera was too close 
Carlos ran up and gave me one too. Sorry, was this the queue for the pile driver concession stand? Anarchy Reigns doesn't get a recommendation then. Like I said, for a game basing itself around an ensemble of colourful characters, there's not a whole lot of character to go around. A single interesting story element exploring the destructive fallout of a super soldier undergoing a very human emotional breakdown is kind of wasted on this pile, where one protagonist has little more than a pert bum and a contract for shampoo adverts going for him, and the other only occasionally remembers he's supposed to be angry about his dead kid, most of the time occupying the smug end of the generic grizzled macho emotional spectrum. It's the Marcus Phoenix problem, he's pissed off all the time anyway, so the moment he's got a reason to be pissed off it just fades into the white noise, and it again highlights the pointlessness of connecting things to Mad World when there's a rather yawning discontinuity between Jack the stop sign killer and Jack the grieving family man. Dead kids are just too serious for a chainsaw robot punch-up situation, it kinda makes the tone bounce around all over the place, like a dead kid in the backseat of a car being pushed off a cliff tall enough to mount a legal defence. You may recall that I'm a vocal detractor of the practice of naming a new game after the very first game in a series with no alteration, it's like the Eurovision Song Contest, unbearably fucking pleased with itself and you're supposed to stick the current year on the end of the name. Perhaps to the end of avoiding these issues, the official title of this game, if the front of the box is anything to go by, is DMC Devil May Cry, which is somehow even stupider. What's the point of abbreviating something and then appending the unabbreviated name? It's like saying ATM machine or pin number taken to a logical conclusion. Ramble, gramble, oh never mind. Devil May Cry, Devil May Cry is the reboot of the classic PS2 hack and slash series, developed by Ninja Theory, the lads who did Heavenly Sword and Enslaved, and not as I mistakenly believed for a while, the similarly named Team Ninja, best known for Dead or Alive and ruining Metroid. So thankfully I was spared the anticipated game in which Dante explains the story in a fixed monotone for two hours while in the background a woman with big tits and no bra rides on an exercise bike. So the first controversy is that Dante the cocky swaggering well-dressed man in a bleached mop top has been supplanted by Dante the cocky swaggering nine-year-old who throws on the first wife beater and dressing gown that could be persuaded to peel off the kitchen floor. With short dark hair no less, why don't you just come over and put your cock through the middle of my Devil May Cry PS2 disc ninja theory? Seriously though, I suppose if you're messing with canon it's better to go forward with confidence and rip off the waxing strip all at once than to ask as if we're okay with it for every uprooted pube, but what we could do without is the one scene near the start where a mop contrivedly falls onto Dante's head and he stares at himself in a mirror for just long enough for it to not be funny before smirkingly dismissing the look. There's going forward with confidence and then there's a developer whipping the tip of my nose with its big pleased with itself stiffy. Not that I think the original quippity douchebag Dante is sacrosanct, I thought he was an absolute knob end, but all you need to do is establish that new Dante is an equally big knob end and then we can all move on. With no memory of his heritage, nine-year-old Dante is content to while away his life playing conkers and reading the Beano and presumably thinks that occasionally being pulled into the nightmarish demonic limbo that coexists with the human realm is just something all growing boys have to deal with, until he meets his posh brother Virgil, who dresses like he's posing for a misguided OkCupid profile photo and reveals that they are the twin sons of a demon and an angel, and in case Dante never noticed while he was out buying sherbet lemons, the entire human race has been enslaved by the demons. Not the whips and chains style of enslavement either, because that would have been sexy at least, the much more insidious shut up and watch the TV kind. The people are kept fat and stupid with a tainted commercial soft drink, and are simultaneously monitored and lied to by a media network headed by a thinly disguised right-wing pundit who might as well have been called Rillo Biley. Yes, the social commentary is about as subtle as the homoerotic undertones in Donkey Stud Gang Bang 4 and worthy of a middle school theatrical production at best, but between them Dante and Virgil and Love Interest Girl look like a fucking treehouse club plotting to get their ball back from mean old Mr. Henderson so you can't say it's not fitting. DMC does manage to recreate the classic Devil May Cry spectacle fighter combat and that you chain together combos as you switch between weapons and attacks and chains, funnily enough. There are so many weapons that my standard pattern was to completely forget about most of them until accidentally using one while randomly smashing the buttons whereupon I'd use it for the rest of the fight and wonder why I don't use it more often before forgetting about it again. And I can never do those combos that require you to pause for a moment because that goes against every button mashing instinct that usually gets me through these things. Trillion stab, uppercut and basic air combo was usually enough for me because as the quality of this video shows I have very low standards for myself, but that was enough to consistently earn S ranks and above for stylishness so you hardcore Johnnies hoping for a game as unforgiving as the first Devil May Cry, a game that held your face down in a tray full of churlish crabs saying you know you can drop down to easy mode whenever you like and your testicles will probably be happier in my little box anyway, maybe disappointed 
disappointed, but then this is supposed to be young Dante, back before he took the training wheels off his sword. Actually, one game I'm reminded of is Prince of Persia, and just to illustrate my earlier point, I'll let you stew on which of the 17 different games with that name I could be referring to, but DMC actually has some really fucking good environment design. As seems to be de rigueur for video games these days, it does use floating debris in a pretty skybox as a sort of visual shorthand for ethereal dream realm, like a bunch of buildings exploded so hard the law of gravity said, I'm sick of you assholes taking me for granted and stormed out, but there's some really original aesthetics here, like the bit where you have to go inside the reflections on the water to explore an upside down city, or navigate a computerized world modelled off bombastic news network idents, and like Prince of Persia 2008, haha yes you see it was that one all along, there's a lot of opportunity to explore with jumping, gliding and grappling sequences, although it's always annoying when optional collectibles hunting clashes with linear room by room combat, when there's no way of knowing which of the several routes you can take actually continues the level, locks you out of the previous section, hangs a pork chop off your ass and releases hungry dogs. The combat and the aesthetics plug enough of my holes that I can recommend DMC. Holes in my rowboat so that it becomes seaworthy, what did you think I meant? But it does shame its lineage in the challenge department. It has that depressingly common problem in games nowadays that the giant boss fights are all really fucking easy, because somewhere in the last decade or so someone decided that a boss fight is not an ultimate do or die test of the skills we have been honing, but rather a music hall variety showcase for the entire dev team, where the modellers are finally able to use their fancy college educations to model something other than chairs, and the music guys get to smash all their instruments with hammers for five minutes to create the right sense of climactic drama, but the actual fight is just a huge lumpy mess, winding up its attacks for so long that we've got time to prise off the dodge button, flick it across the room and recover it from between the sofa cushions before we actually need to press it, and then it gormously zones out and lets you wail on its obvious weak point for 30 seconds. When the big boss expands like an asshole in the prison showers and takes on his city-destroying form, my first reaction should not be you, that's a relief. I thought my rowboat was about to be made seaworthy. You know, I'm never happier than when I've got my hands fastened around a big Kirby controller, pressing all the buttons like they're pimples on the buttocks of a beautiful dance partner, but there's still a lot of time in my day for entirely mouse-driven games. Cause games that you can play with one hand free are games for the man on the go, probably why I've been playing FTL so much lately. Cause at any one time I can be playing that in one window, watching a speedrun of Echo the Dolphin in another, stroking two dogs with my feet and jerking off one horse. And between stud farm profits and dog satisfaction, that's a good net gain for a gameplay session. And if you've got big hands and can persuade two horses to stand close enough together, you can double your money, but I digress. This is partly why I liked point-and-click adventure games a lot back when people actually owned Amigas unironically, particularly the peerless LucasArts ones, so when an adventure game is put out by a couple of LucasArts veterans, I'm all over that like a herpes infection on an otherwise perfect evening out. The Cave is an adventure game by Double Fine, not to be confused with the Double Fine adventure game that Kickstarter has already allowed to make more money than the rehab clinic next to Lindsay Lohan's house. A different Double Fine adventure game, this one written and designed by Ron Gilbert, he of the superlative Secret of Monkey Island and, of course, Maniac Mansion, the adventure game in which you control three protagonists from a starting pool of seven, but that's enough nostalgia. The Cave is an all-new adventure game in which you control three protagonists from a starting pool of seven. What a fat lot of good the last 25 years must have been. Oh, but Ron knows when I'm just being facetious for comic effects. Seven strangers who are either stereotypes or hipsters ironically affecting stereotypes have come to a mysterious magical cave where legend has it can be found the one thing they all desire most. So I guess they can't be hipsters after all, because in that case the cave would have granted them all a swift punch in the throat. The twist is that every character has a dark history that is gradually revealed throughout the game, although it's hardly a twist by the seventh one. It soon becomes clear that The Cave is an adventure game in the traditional Lucas sense in the same way that having Iron Man 2 explained to you by a hairy drunk in a bus shelter is just like seeing the actual film. There are inventory puzzles in that every character can hold one item at a time, but once each labyrinthine puzzle area is fully explored, solutions are usually fairly obvious. A key, a door, a banana, a monkey, a dildo, a velvet-lined dildo storage container. Chiefly, the game's more accurately described as a puzzle platformer, with a lot of the actual puzzle aspect involving the positioning of dudes in the right spots to combine efforts in order to open up more areas, and hopefully the keys, bananas and dildos therein. It can still be wholly controlled with the mouse, but this led to occasional 
frustration in the moments when precision jumping is called for as the movement is a bit slippery and inaccurate. And yes, since this game has come out for Steam, XBLA, PSN, Wii U, graphing calculators and handfuls of scrabble tiles on metal trays, you can use whatever control method you like, but I needed to only use the mouse so I could use my other hand to keep a tally of every time the game repeated itself. There are three fixed chapters and one chapter focused on each of the twats you brought along. This is the only thing that your choice of characters changes. While going through one character's stage, the other two are basically department store dummies that occasionally have to weigh down a switch. The unique ability they all possess is used once to access their unique stage and after that occasionally to bypass a puzzle but are otherwise as much use as a fish, having the mystical ability to talk to camels. In Maniac Mansion the situation remained the same but the combination of skills you had changed the puzzle solutions. The character selecting the cave merely locks out half the potential content. The first thing you do after beating the game once is to start again with three different characters to see another three levels. I don't see why we had to pick at all, we could have just gone through all seven chapters in one game with two bricks on hand for the switches. As it stands, seven characters leaves one redheaded stepchild left over after two playthroughs, so if you want to see their chapter you need to play two of the previous characters again and all the fixed chapters a third time. Are they trying to ensure good reviews through Stockholm Syndrome? The traditional adventure game is story focused but the cave can best be described as story unfocused. Its story exists in a sort of intangible miasma in its general vicinity, kind of like Richard Gere's relationship with his acting talent. Each character's chapter is supposed to confront that character with their great sin, which are also revealed through sequences of collectible artworks found throughout the caves, but in game the characters never talk or react and besides their unique abilities are totally interchangeable, so it feels like trying to confront a bowl of porridge with its sin of being a very unexciting breakfast. Maybe if the characters had spoken and had unique dialogues with whatever other characters you pick, that would have added at least some replay value, and for the Double Fine and Ron Gilbert entities, who both count good dialogue among their major strengths, it's quite a baffling deficiency, because there are a few funny lines from the NPCs who haven't had their vocal cords frozen from all their massive guilt, but they exist in a vacuum, like Paris Hilton's consciousness. Yeah, I'd say this is starting to sound like you don't like the cave much. Um, uh, non-committal noises, no. But I'd have disliked it less if I hadn't found out that it had good and bad endings. I assumed not, because there's no way to get through each character's stage without committing their sin. Then at the end, you collect your prize, and as you leave the cave, you get your last two artworks confirming what a massive shit you are. But it turns out you can get good endings, not by, say, not committing the big sins during the character chapters, but by attempting to give the big prize back three times just before you leave at the very end. And it wouldn't have occurred to me to do that, because it's just rude when you think about it, and certainly not three fucking times, you might as well wipe a bogey off on their face. But sure enough, they take it back and you get the good ending. So if one had already seen the bad ending, could one reload the most recent save and do that final unintuitive little thing to get the good endings? Could one bollocks? So off you go to replay the whole fucking thing to make one tiny little change at the end. So to get full completion you have to go through the game six whittle-plopping times? I wouldn't even have sex six times and having sex only takes like ten seconds. You ever get that uneasy feeling you're playing something that completely isn't aimed at you? I imagine it's a feeling quite familiar to a large percentage of Nintendo's fanbase, but that's the wrong attitude to take, isn't it? You've got to get out of your comfort zone now and then. Just because I find most JRPGs to be duller than a dead cat wearing an overdesigned belly shirt and find children less enjoyable company than poisonous sea urchins with attachment issues, those are no good reasons why I shouldn't play a JRPG for children now and then. Well, actually, there might be very good reasons, but what attracted me to Nino Kuni Wrath of the White Witch was that it was co-developed by Studio Ghibli, whose works I found to be always equal parts charming and stomach-churningly saccharine, but most importantly, not shit. Except Tales of Earthsea, I mean, Jesus. Fucking Christ. But even if it was developed with only one foot in Studio Ghibli's not shit department, Nino Q need still stand out prominently among most of the genre, so let's have a look. Now, if you've watched a lot of Studio Ghibli films, you might want to dig the old Studio Ghibli bingo card out for Wrath of the White Whale. Small adventurous child, victim of at least one form of parental neglect, brought by some cataclysm to a world of adventure. There's a friendly monster with really round eyes and a big mouth. Oh, and they also have to rescue their parent at some point as well. That's about four rows complete by the end of the first hour. Specifically, our adventurous child free of parental regulation is Oliver, although his abandonment by his mother is perhaps justifiable on account of her 
her being dead and accidentally killed by him. Ha! Clumsy twat. But while he's mulling that one over, one of his toys comes to life and tells him he has to travel to a parallel world of fantasy in order to liberate it from an evil djinn and also bring his mum back to life somehow. And what curiously fortunate timing that the fairies carry him off to Fantasyland at exactly the same moment one would expect a person to be undergoing a massive guilt-induced mental breakdown. But there's me being cynical again. This is Studio Ghibli, man. Never-ending story mindset, not Fisher King. Still, it'd stick closer to standard formula if the mum was just sick, like he'd accidentally sprayed bubonic plague in her face and has to quest for the cure, bringing her back from the dead adds layers of unhealthiness to proceedings, like an infected vanilla slice. I mean, she's just gonna die again at some point, maybe it'd be smarter to get over it while you're young. Yes, I equate bereavement with chicken pox, but then there are quite a few aspects to the plot that the adult mind might question more than a child's would, like the one bit where you have to go inside a pregnant woman's vagina in order to dislodge her unborn children, only to find them being harassed by a giant octopus blocking the way to the cervix. Can't we all just stop being so cynical and appreciate the octopus abortion sequence in the innocent spirit with which it was meant? That's quite a ways in, though. The game slows to a crawl once the juicy dead mum aspect is set up. You're in the fantasy world and doing the grasslands, desert, forest, jungle, ice world, firewood, boss, but a bum, but a bum, but a bum, but a bum thing, and the game settles into tutorialising for the next 17 hours. Surely one would need to have eaten a lot of paste to require a special tutorial to show that you use the left analog stick to move. Could we maybe take that as understood if the player has gotten as far as holding the controller with their hands rather than their butt cheeks? It's fair to say that Wrath of the White Guilt has a bit of game mechanic overload to the point that they're still being introduced about 12 hours in. First, there's casting spells for both combat and general progress, or if you reach a torch lighting puzzle and are out of MP for fireball casting, then you're shit out of luck, you matricidal ginger tosser. There's item crafting side quests, there's an odd mechanic in which you fix people who are lacking certain positive qualities like enthusiasm or kindness by injecting them with some of that quality donated from someone with an excess of it, which I find very suspect because it's basically communism and implies that every single character in the game is some kind of emotionless automaton who only gets depressed because their internal processes broke, and not because, to pick an entirely random example, they just killed their mum. And after a while, you're granted the ability to capture random monsters as familiars, and without warning, the game turns into needlessly over-complex pseudo-Pokemon, where each monster has elemental weaknesses, a genus, and one of four symbols of mysterious significance, and you have to micromanage all their equipment and what desserts to force-feed them with so that they acquire diabetes-themed buffs. At times, Wrath of the White Privilege pleasantly evokes the old 16-bit JRPGs I could actually tolerate, like Earthbound or Final Fantasy VI, with its actually coherent plot, and random monsters occasionally smart enough to scarper if you're over-leveled, but the actual combat sucks a fat one. I find I'm more tolerant of turn-based combat than I used to be, because it is nice for a game to constantly pause itself in case you happen to be playing it while fighting a panther, and of course real-time combat would be chocolate smid all over a consenting biscuit. But it's these hideous hybrid systems that modern JRPGs tend to have that piss in my radiators, because you end up with the worst qualities of both. We find ourselves having to cycle through an option menu while simultaneously running around avoiding the hits. And I've got this lovely big controller here, just covered in buttons, any one of which could be a dedicated defend command. But no, I must instead wrestle my way to the defend option in the half second it takes for the enemy to brew up another devastating fart. Fortunately, the AI partners are a great help if one happens to be running an insurance scam, but otherwise they think defend means hard of hearing buttocks, and a lot of boss fights ended with me alone, running around in circles to stay out of melee range, hoping my fairy friend will drop some mana when he's finished dancing about laughing at me getting my teeth kicked in. Oh, but you do get the ability to command all your party to attack or defend at once. That's the mechanic that gets introduced 12 hours in, about three boss fights after it would have started being useful. That's the problem with JRPGs, they're so bloody long, because they always stretch the content to breaking point, always batting you about back and forth between locations, setting arbitrary story flags, and using 12 dialogue boxes where one would have done, usually to hammer you over the head with the solution to the current puzzle which you figured out before the dialogue even started. The weirdest thing is that you can usually press a button to go to the next dialogue box, but every sixth line or so it won't let you, a feature I assume was added for the primary purpose of annoying me. So for all the charm in the story and visuals, it was messy combat and gameplay flowing like a dead crab in a bucket that wore me down to the point that I couldn't go on. Yeah, sorry kid, looks like you're not getting your mum back. Nothing you can do now but take up taxidermy and start wearing her dresses.
you know what? I fucking give up. I give up just like the bloke who said, hey EA, let's make a horror game at the start of all this must have given up. He was still around for Dead Space 2 saying, look, I made a crayon drawing with blood on it. Maybe you could leave it lying around somewhere in between all the ridiculous action sequences. But now at the time of Dead Space 3, that man has resigned or been eaten or maybe the parasitic brainworms that control EA's upper management got to him as well. Yes, of course Dead Space should be an action shooter. More people buy those. Heaven forbid that we actually provide for an underserved niche or hold out for sleeper sales. It's not like we make the kind of money that could support an occasional risky investment with any actual integrity. Why why should we stick our necks into the scary outlying territories when we could be tucked up all safe and warm in the comfortable grey dough of mediocrity that is EA's usual output? What's that? You're getting hungry? Okay, I'll just put some cat food down my ear. Yes, I know you like the chunky kind. So Dead Space 3 isn't even trying to be scary anymore. I used to give it shit about how it paced itself like a six-year-old telling the story of how all these pixie sticks got into its mouth and how the monsters were a little over-reliant on the ooh look at me lying here all dead no really come closer gambit, but I didn't want it to stop trying. I wanted it to shut up, sit down, and breathe deep before it gave itself an Aneurysm. In Dead Space 3 I didn't count a single time when a monster pretended to be dead and lay in the path like an unsprung mousetrap, they all just kind of show up to the sound of an entire orchestra pit being simultaneously tased. As always, making incredibly obnoxious slurpy growly noises that an actually tense horror game would maybe play once or muffled by distance, but in this case are continually shouted by the parasitic brainworm in your inner ear. And just to draw the definitive line through it, the big new feature is co-op. You just can't have any kind of tense survival horror and co-op. You also can't breed rabbits and velociraptors in the same pen. It is impossible for a random corpse to have the desired ominous effect if your wacky friend can pick it up with his kinesis module and reenact scenes from the sooty show. The increasing silliness of the franchise has become full-on cartoonish. The character dynamics are lifted from an 80s college sex comedy. Isaac Clarke, spaceship engineer and nerdlinger, is bullied by a bunch of asshole jocks into coming along to fix all the computers on a remote planet believed to be the source of all those markers that have been causing so much trouble, and also to rescue Isaac's ex-girlfriend who it turns out is now going out with one of the asshole jocks, and when that's revealed you can almost hear the trumpet on the soundtrack going wah wah wah. There's a race against time because the dastardly unitologist frat bros are coming to raid all the panties and also murder them, and any chance of this being taken seriously dies in a squawking shower of severed limbs with the unitologist leader and principal villain, Danik, who looks and talks like he'd be more suited to being the villain in a latter Piers Brosnan James Bond film if it was converted into a Christmas panto. There was a memorable little dialogue moment near the end where Isaac phones up Danik to tell him how he's just on his way to save the universe forever, and Danik flusteredly replies, well stop it then, and it sounds like dialogue from a Monty Python film. But getting back to that co-op, one of the asshole jocks Isaac is forced to associate with is the other player character, and I was briefly afraid the game would insist on nailing the cranky sod to the solo player's ankle as NPC support, while waving obliviously to any possibility of a tense, lonely atmosphere as it sped away on a shooting star, but thankfully the single player story is actually tweaked so that Jocko McDickslurp is always taking a different route to Isaac and simply materialises from behind in some of the cutscenes like the Ghost of Christmas Shithead. Which isn't to say this hitherto single player focused franchise isn't completely above getting all snobby and condescending at me for now preferring single player, because at the very end there's a dramatic payoff for an entire game's worth of character development for the dude, which for the solo player never fucking happened, and occasionally I would pass optional missions with co-ops only written across the door, from which could be heard the faint sounds of raucous partying and jokes at my expense. Don't suppose you've got any solos only optional missions knocking somewhere around the place, do you, Dead Space 3? No, I thought not. Another new feature is weapon crafting, which is part of EA's big scheme to get in on all that sweet Farmville micropayment action by letting you pay for more craftable resources. Did you love blowing real money on flooding everyone's Facebook pages with news on your imaginary cows? Well, you'll love blowing real money on being able to win a non-continuous game with less effort and thus cheapen any sense of achievement. I might be more indignant if I thought this would actually work. The scheme seems to be to walk into a bank with a gun and a ski mask on, put a bucket on the floor and say, I'm going now, but if anyone wants to put some money in there, then you know, the option's open. And if anyone actually does put money in the bucket, then that person probably shouldn't have had financial independence in the first place. After all that, I kind of liked being able to customise combat style, but there's only one kind of ammunition now that loads every kind of gun, because otherwise the Ripper Blade enthusiast might be lumbered with a load of line gun ammo useful only if you're decorating his Christmas tree. And as a consequence, I never ever even came close 
close to running out, and my inventory rarely had less than ten healing items at a time. Tension? What's that? The thing that comes before Eleven, Shun? The sad fact is that there is no tension, as in Dead Space 2, events are frequently interrupted by scripted action sequences, usually involving explosions and Isaac Clarke the human cat toy dangling off something for the 50th time that day, but whenever they were happening I felt my eyes glaze over and I'd debate whether to fetch some mortine to spray the spider on the wall behind the TV, and then it occurred to me that the only bits of Dead Space 2 I still clearly remember are the small interesting character moments, like Isaac getting a big juicy eye full of surgical probe as the audience collectively sucks in air through their teeth, and all those exciting action moments that all the animators and sound engineers put a lot of hard work into are all just white noise in the end. Dead Space 3 is tolerable, but that's what I resent about it. It's tolerable because over time every extruding point has been hammered down until it's widely spread but fucking paper thin, and as bleakly inoffensive to as many tastes as possible. It's a little bit scary here, and a little bit actiony there, and a little bit goofy under the kilt, and a whole load of little bits add up to a whole load of nothing at all. It's all just empty space. Space with nothing living in it. I wonder if there's a name for that. And so we address the second half of not particularly scary multiplayer-focused sci-fi action horror Fortnite with Aliens Colonial Marines. Oh Yahtzee, we're looking forward to hearing your opinions on this one, trilled several correspondents this week, and then they ran away like they'd just lit a firework or pushed a friend into the girls' toilets or thrown an unwanted child into a pen with a scary dog. Oh I see, no one wants me around when the new Call of Duty is training you to ignore yet another quality recognition instinct, but the moment something comes along that offends what few atrophied taste buds you have left then suddenly I'm your personal attack gopher. Well how do you know I don't actually really like Colonial Marines? I don't, it's fucking atrocious, but you'd have looked pretty silly if I had, wouldn't you? Maybe I'm just feeling slightly bitter because everyone involved in the game's development has been doing my job for me since it came out, desperately trying to blame the 17 other companies involved in its creation like a row of schoolchildren attempting to deduce who dropped the really eggy fart. It's clear that Colonial Marines is just the vapour coming off a big pot of shit stew that has been bubbling resentfully away for a very long time, but if you ask me, the starting concept itself is questionable. My reading of Aliens was that the Marines in the film were supposed to be all mouth on the surface and cotton Y fronts underneath, mostly slaughtered within minutes so that token sensible person and Ripley is left to wipe their bumsies, and a game about them would be like a Blues Brothers game in which you play as the police. Set several months after the events of the film, Colonial Marines has its eponymous jarheads show up in response to the distress signal left by Hicks from the film to officially call Do Over, Kill All the Aliens, and take it in turns to do that thing where you stand with one foot up on a defeated enemy and gaze into the middle distance with hotties clinging to your knees. When Hicks actually shows up in person with a cringingly awkward retcon for his meaningless death in the films, played by the original actor with a voice sounding like an 80-year-old chainsmoker reading off the label on his medication bottle, we realise we are playing fan fiction, the kind that's happy to completely miss every point going as long as its favourite characters look cool. But nevertheless there was the possibility of a solid game in the concept. Aliens is quite an old film and seems a bit low tech now, all LCD displays and CRT monitors under smoky blue floodlights, and when I first started Colonial Marines I thought they'd captured that 80s grungy sci-fi look quite well, and then I thought how clever of them to continue the retro theme by having the graphics and environment design look about eight years old. But I'm the guy who's always saying that a strict insistence on cutting edge graphics for a AAA games has proven detrimental to their depth and quality so I almost applauded that. I only started tasting the worm in this handful of worms that long ago in some forgotten design document might once have been an apple when I got a load of the character animation and was asked to shoot hideously inaccurate weapons at enemies that jump from pose to pose, like the annual puppet show at the Parkinson's Disease Clinic, in an imaginative variety of environments ranging from blue-grey corridor through other blue-grey corridor to blue-grey hangar that looks like we're staring lovingly up a PlayStation 2's butthole. And after that, Colonial Marines just keeps revealing new buttholes with which to soil itself. I made the mistake of thinking that at least aliens are more interested interesting to fight than the endless streams of human soldiers plinking away from behind cover that the majority of shooters offer, whereupon Wayland yutani mercenaries showed up to plink away at me from behind cover. Wayland yutani now have the opinion that an uncontrollable biological weapon that reliably wipes out their science teams en masse is totally worth openly declaring war on their own country's military for. Christ knows how Wayland yutani spent their time before the aliens were discovered, probably threw children on piles of burning money. None of the marines seem particularly surprised when they do show up, which may be because they're all being lulled into a doze by the gentle puffs of lukewarm air emitted 
distracted by all the grenades. I've used staplers for the more satisfying impact than most of the weapons in this game. Strangely, the assault rifle always makes the sound of firing in short bursts, even when it's firing continuously, and sometimes the sound drops out altogether. Although this may be intended to alleviate how fucking grating the alien's assault rifle sound effect gets when you're hearing it from about five different sources for 90% of the game. Against my usual instincts, I actually played some of the four-player co-op, if only to have someone to play guess when the texture's gonna pop back in with. And it was rather entertaining when those stiff-faced NPCs with about as much capacity for emotion as a paper plate with three sausages on it would be trying to have a confrontational dialogue moment, and we'd crowd around them, chanting, KISS HER YOU FOOL! But with four players and almost always two or three NPCs tagging along, it's hard to feel much drama when you outnumber both the enemy and the local wildlife, and tight claustrophobic environments are not the best place for the marines to throw a gay pride parade, so many a doorway saw reenactments of Three Stooges routines. Shitty optimization brings shitty loading times, and with the old trick of disguising a loading screen as a door or elevator with an unusually drawn-out opening mechanism, there were many lengthy awkward social moments with seven hardened marines piled up against a flashing door waiting to be let into the next bit, and there are only so many times that saying who farted can break the tension. And just to put the cherry on it, the game's buggier than a big bug bugging out in a dune buggy. Why not share your favourite glitch in the comments? Mine was when I think we were supposed to be running away from this big boss alien, but we couldn't because one of our NPC friends was blocking the door, I guess until we said sorry for taking the piss out of his porno stash, but then the boss alien stopped moving in the centre of the room over one of our fallen comrades, and whenever we tried to revive that comrade, he'd briefly come to life to smack the poor bastard back into a prone state. Hey, you're supposed to be chasing us, boss alien. Nah, I'm alright, I'll just have this one marine. Meet you at the power loader for the shitty boss fight, yeah? So Colonial Marines is pretty much a wash, but without meaning to absolve the developers, they get all the blame for this fucking train wreck as soon as they figure out how to divvy it up. What gets me are the Aliens fans who have been declaring it the final betrayal. Have you seen literally anything Alien-related post-Aliens the film? Your sweetums has been putting it about for decades, guys. The betrayal ship has sailed, circumnavigated the globe, and returned to port laden with exotic spice. When two games come out late in the week, my task then is to decide which one to plough through over the weekend and which one to devote the whole of the next week to. Basically, it's about taking an educated guess as to which one is more likely to be a quick hacked out puff of bunny flatulence that will come and go like a gentleman caller at your mum's house, and which one will be an overwritten slog with dialogue edited by a comatose man with safety scissors. In this case, an educated guess that had to be made about Crisis 3 and Metal Gear Rising. I didn't say it was always a difficult educated guess, mind, and I'd just like to express my appreciation to Crisis 3 for being over in two quick sessions, so the weekend I had set aside for powering through it could said be spent exploring the human body's maximum pie capacity. The fact that it hasn't been that long since Crisis 2 made the whole affair smell of hack job to me, and what also didn't bode well was that the graphic for Crisis 3 on the Xbox dashboard showed the Crisis 2 box art. I suppose it's easy to overlook the fine details when you're hacking out a sequel with a fucking meat cleaver. Long time, and medium time, and probably the short time viewers as well actually, will remember that I quite liked Crisis 2, which managed a rare thing of having an unstoppable messianic super soldier who was simultaneously vulnerable and sympathetic, because Alcatraz was a barely alive mush sealed in a nanosuit against his will by Prophet, a passing wanker. In Crisis 3, however, we are now playing as Prophet because his personality was still in the nanosuit and has somehow overwritten the Alcatraz identity, with Alcatraz offhandedly mentioned once in the opening backstory basically as a big pile of convenient spare parts that happened to be lying around. You fucking dick, Prophet! So we're just left with the unstoppable messianic super soldier with none of the vulnerability and also he's a fucking body snatcher now. Crisis 3 opens with Dickbag emerging from suspended animation 20 years after the last game ended to find humanity now enslaved and must join a civilian resistance partially consisting of old colleagues of his, because Crisis 2 had so much fun nicking ideas from Half-Life 2, we might as well go for the record. In this case, it's Cell, corporation with the ethics of Wayland yutani but none of the insatiable appetite for self-destruction who have enslaved humanity by monopolising the world's energy. On Prophet's side, we have Psycho from Crisis 1, the world's most British man, whose every word seems to form into a chip butty as it passes through the air, and whose main task is to rather desperately demonstrate personality to make up for Prophet's deficiency in that area. So he's really crossed Cell, taking away his favourite pyjamas, and he gets betrayed, because video game stories have to feature at least one betrayal, 
I think that was part of the Treaty of Versailles. And you can't effectively betray Prophet because he's got all the character of a Jaffa cake. Also there's the resistance leader lady who doesn't like Prophet for no particular reason besides token character conflict, which is a shame because there are so many perfectly adequate reasons to dislike Prophet. Together they destroy Cell's power facility, but Prophet is concerned that this will make the aliens come back because the Foreshadowtron 4000 is going ballistic and there's still two thirds of the game to go. But everyone blows him off and sure enough the aliens come back. Wow, who could have seen that coming? If only there was someone around here whose name means someone who predicts things. It seems to me like jumping the plot ahead 20 years is the drastic move one saves for the crazy big sequel with all the new engine and mechanics, not the wimpy glorified level pack insultingly brief whoops forgot to change the Xbox dashboard graphics sequel that comes out less than a year later, because the end result is a game in which I feel a little detached from events. There are a lot of things happening and I wasn't entirely sure how or why. As soon as the big alien gets loose, all the alien soldiers just sort of materialise and immediately invade, with the explanation that they were hiding behind someone's fridge or something all along, and Cell have a doomsday satellite that they're going to blow up New York with, except it will also blow up the world, so we have to go to a control room and bang our heads on a wall so that it doesn't. The defining moment for me was during one of the mid-game mission briefings, when two sentences in I realised I didn't know what the blinking crikey the leader lady was going on about. It felt like a conversation from about two thirds of the way into an episode of Star Trek, when that bloke with the engine filter stuck to his face explains the solution he's come up with by reading aloud the contents page of the Enterprise's technical manual. Maybe I just don't have the genius brain for some good old hard sci-fi, the kind of hard sci-fi where the most significant new addition is a bow and arrow. Yeah, that's some real hard fucking sci-fi right there. It really illustrates how desperate they were to find a new feature to trumpet the amount of fuss that gets made about a fucking piece of string tied to a bendy stick. First it features prominently on the box art, and then it's introduced in the first mission with what sounds like a conversation from the fucking shopping channel. Gosh, I just love exterminating my fellow man with the most advanced projectile weaponry in existence, but sometimes I think that if I could pick the bullets out of the ruined bodies of my victims, put them back into my guns and use them again, then I'd just be so much more productive. But there's no way I can do that, is there? Well, Prophet, have you tried bow and arrow? Bow and arrow, you say? Yes, not only does bow and arrow allow ammo recovery, but it's also silent, can be fired without decloaking, and does about 12 times the damage of a bullet for some reason. Gosh, psycho, bow and arrow sounds so convenient, it almost makes you wonder why they were completely supplanted by guns fucking centuries ago. Alright, maybe it's playing up to the whole stealthy predator image they're going for, and maybe it is fun to nail a complete bastard to a wall by his memories of childhood, but the thing is, Prophet isn't an alien predator who needs to kill sentient life to make his cosmic balls feel big, and Crisis 3 still hasn't adequately explained to me why I should bother hunting all the enemies when it's easier to cloak past them and go straight to the objective. And don't say because it's fun. I'm the kind of guy who needs context for that kind of thing. I like my porn to have a story. I don't get anything from it if I don't know who this woman is and what kind of poverty has driven her to have to use blowjobs as payment for all her deliveries and household maintenance. And I'm not going to go out of my way to stealth hunt blokes I don't perceive as either a threat or an obstacle. In a sandbox, maybe, but this is a linear game. No matter how many pointless side missions they throw in, they consist only of going to a single spot that's slightly out of your way. So Crisis 3, kind of forgettable. How forgettable, you ask? I've forgotten! Sometimes I think the Metal Gear franchise is like Jim Carrey in The Truman Show. It's this loud, wacky dipshit in dire need of an editor who lives in a little world of his own, surrounded by people reassuring him that no, Metal Gear Solid 4 was totally a touching emotional character drama, especially when the funny man did the big poo in his pants, and every now and again someone tries to parachute in wearing a t-shirt saying, everyone's taking the piss, but gets swiftly bundled out of sight by a dog walker and a Sony executive. And while you could never accuse the games of being dull or conventional, they just can't keep a consistent tone. Case in point, Metal Gear Rising Revengeance, or to give its full title, Metal Gear Rising Revengeance, I don't think that's a real word. Is it the dramatic 
dramatic story of a haunted man seeking redemption for his dark past while fighting off the instincts left over from the killer he used to be, or is it an episode of Scooby-Doo? Why can I gorily hack off three of a soldier's limbs and watch him crawl away bleeding out his last miles from home, and then climb inside a barrel and roll around until I puke? With previous Metal Gear frontman Solid Snake kinda sorta probably killed off, Bishy come lately Raiden picks up the main character torch he hasn't held since Metal Gear Solid 2, when everyone told him to put down the fucking torch before he embarrassed himself further. And I kinda pity the guy, cause his entire existence since then has been Hideo Kojima going to more and more extreme lengths to convince us that Raiden is cool. So the next time he appeared he was a breakdancing cyborg ninja, and with Revengeance we can now add motorcycle riding vigilante to the list. This is a fucking 12 year old's idea of character development. A cast iron balls out fight sequence is meaningless without a sense of threat, and Raiden's a cyborg about as affected by loss of body parts as a Mr. Potato Head. I might have mocked Solid Snake for doing nothing but repeat the last two words of the previous speaker's sentence as a question with a voice like he'd inhaled a burning Brillo pad, but he was at least human and felt pain. It's humanity that makes a character, Raiden can slice up robot monsters till he grows his first pube, and he still wouldn't be as engaging as the leads of MGS4, the two most socially inept men on the planet living in a sexless gay marriage. The box blurb is, as is often the case, inadvertently telling. Action game set in the Metal Gear Solid universe, it says, and you'll note the phrase not being employed is a Metal Gear Solid game, which are characterised by an emphasis on stealthing to avoid having to do the horrible combat, and dialogue inserted about as elegantly as a killer whale being inserted into a stationary cupboard. And while you'll certainly be best friends with the skip dialogue button, by the end of Revengeance you may be surprised by its relative brevity, perhaps for the sake of keeping up a fast pace now the combat's got all hack and slashy on us. But then the game starts trying to tell you to be stealthy. I know you feel you have to at least acknowledge the previous games, but the combat's actually halfway fun now, and trying to stealth it is boring, and doesn't really match the game's overall pace. And besides, we are a man made out of coffee bakers and wing mirrors, and even the fucking stealth kill entails somersaulting over the victims, slicing them in half and pulling their spine out. Going unnoticed seems like a lost cause outside of a sanitarium for the deafblind. Just stop fussing and decide on a fucking tone, Metal Gear, for fuck's sake. But the combat is quite fun, yes, with the USP being the ability to slice at any angle and divide a large variety of objects into jigsaw puzzles, and since this is the kind of feature a processor has nightmares about, the levels do seem a wee bit bare-bonesy. Against enemies, it's not worked in too horribly though, you can flail the sword around like a plastic chimpanzee with a feather duster until the baddies are effectively powderized, but you're rewarded for accurately divesting them of their limb portfolio, or cutting through the bottle of commercial energy drink they all seem to keep inside their spines. In most cases, that only comes after you've done a certain amount of button-mashing chimpanzee maid work though, and for a game with Metal Gear's occasional tendency to witter on a bit, it's very bad at explaining how the parry works. Which is a shame because it's your only defense, and while you can get quite a ways through the game without it, the last couple of boss fights will stick a prong up your ass and repurpose you as a windscreen wiper if you haven't mastered it. I eventually did, thanks to plenty of retries and a small team of MIT scientists, and I do appreciate the fact that the technique demands skill. What also helped was turning off that bloody boss fight music, and incidentally, Hideo, if breakdancing ninja cyborg vigilante biker hasn't made right and cool, a score that sounds like a J-Rock artist composed it as he was trying not to burst into tears while meeting his own gaze in his bedroom mirror isn't going to clinch it. By the way, I didn't make that earlier Scooby-Doo comparison idly. Not only is Raiden followed around by a mystery-solving gang of international stereotypes of varying degrees of necessity, including one token female support character whose main role in the plot is wearing a blouse with the top two buttons undone, but he also acquires a comedy-talking dog as a sidekick. No, really, this is a thing that happens, but wackiness jarringly placed alongside cringingly awkward drama is entirely expected in a Metal Gear game. Hideo Kojima writes like someone who has never left his house, or spoken to another human being, except when renting another cartload of bad action movies and anime. But that's what makes them special, you know, and a gratifying reminder that there is still something auteur-driven in this psychopathically commercial industry, for better and worse. Having said that, there is a limit to the leeway this affords Metal Gear, a leeway that is overstepped with Revengeance's final boss. I thought that the adventures of Shaggy and Scooby blood-soaked robot assassins was a bit schizophrenic in tone, but even those wavering and hazardous rails the game then goes off. At this point, every halfway-threatening villain is dead, and we're reaching the culmination of a plot about child organ harvesting and an attempt to assassinate the president in order to destabilize the Middle East, but then, well, I won't spoil it, but imagine watching something like, say, Ghost in the Shell, but right before the end you sit on the remote and the TV switches over to an episode of Biker Mice from Mars, or Dragon Ball Z, where the special 
title guest villain turns out to be Hulk Hogan, who goes on about how awesome right-wing policies are for 20 minutes, before doing body slams on everyone who disagrees. I'm kind of afraid that Metal Gear is deliberately fucking with us now, and when a joke tries to be in on the joke, the humour value tends to drain. You can't start laughing at yourself now, Metal Gear, because we've been doing that since we figured out Solid Snake could refer to a cock. I've extracted no small amount of enjoyment out of those Womb Raider games back in the day, but as my character did a sideways somersault onto a pile of historically priceless earthenware while gunning down endangered tigers, I asked myself, I wonder what happened to this person to make her so incredibly jaded? And then I would think, oh, actually, I don't care, and go back to making her stand with her back to a wall in that one particular way that made the camera zoom in on her tits because I was fucking 15. But for those of you who remained focused on the first question, Crystal Dynamics now has you covered with Tomb Raider, a prequel to explain how a young and starry-eyed Lara Croft learned how to survive but doesn't get around to establishing when she learned to put a fucking jumper on if she's cold. Actually, it kind of skips a bit because Lara starts the game already knowing how to jump and climb and shoot an arrow with laser precision, so I guess we're gonna need another prequel at some point to explain all that. Maybe she was playing on the high school lacrosse team when the ground cracked open and she fell into the subterranean lands of the mole people. But anyway, Tomb Raider is another goddamn fucking pissing in my sandwich reboot with the same name as the cocking original, and it's particularly illogical here, because raiding tombs is a tertiary activity at best. They should have called it, you can do this, after the most frequent line of dialogue, or alternatively, <laughs> Lara Croft manages to convince a small team of ethnically diverse archaeologists who all seem to be wearing digital clocks on their heads, counting down to the point where they are unwillingly made part of someone else's character development, to investigate a mysterious island where they find a storm preventing them from leaving and a mad cult of bearded castaways who have for years been using inflated shopping bags tied to sticks as substitutes for female companionship. So all the pieces are in place for Lara Croft to get the absolute shit kicked out of her for ten hours. Oh, I see. When Lara Croft gets beaten up, we're supposed to admire her strength of character. But when the same thing happens to Nathan Drake, we're supposed to point and laugh. Why do you hate men so much, games industry? Now, obviously that was sarcasm, because Nathan Drake has never been the subject of a controversial attempted rape scene. Although if you missed the quick time event to fight off the attempted rapist, which I did because the timing is really annoying on those things, then it turns out he only wanted to throttle her to death. Phew, maybe we shouldn't be so quick to misjudge these hairy cultist murderers. Well, speaking of Nathan Drake, I like Tomb Raider when it's actually being Tomb Raider, and I like it a lot less when it's being Uncharted. I like it when I can freely jump and climb around the areas, exploring, finding treasures, and murdering more animals than Bernard and Matthew combined. I don't like it when I find myself thinking, what an exciting, fast-paced action sequence, I wish I'd been playing it. There are the quick time events, which only count as gameplay if licking the back of your teeth counts as a square meal, and then there are the things where you are technically in full control, but if you do anything other than run in the indicated direction within two seconds, then we are going to beat you to death with a gravedigger's spade. Basically a quick time event in a big hat and baggy coat nonchalantly whistling. The problem with the rest of the game is that there doesn't seem to be a central mechanic. There's just a whole load of stuff that you do. For example, the first thing Lara has to do after acquiring a bow is make a few deer into instant spit roasts, and you'd be forgiven for thinking that this is setting up some kind of survival mechanic, a la Metal Gear Solid 3, where you have to eat food to not die from not eating food. Stop me if that sounds a bit technical, but no, this is just to satisfy a critical path objective and you never need to kill animals again. Assassin's Creed 3 did this too. Gameplay elements introduced, tutorialized, and then forgotten about, like a desperate babysitter trying to hold our attention with a box full of shiny objects. Half the game's mechanics have no connectivity, they don't unlock more challenge or make things more fun, it's just there if you feel like doing it. Because in the ongoing quest to make games as homogenized as possible, many now lack even the balls to say, put in some effort or you can't continue. Games now just drop challenges in like turds in a paddling pool and advise us to swim around them if they frighten us. Well I want those turds fired at my mouth from a tennis ball cannon so I can smack them out of the way and feel like I've achieved something, goddammit. If there is an element around which all else could be said to revolve, it might be collectibles, which are more numerous than the droplets of spit on Bill O'Reilly's autocue. The Easter Bunny has outsourced the island to his friend's document bunny and relic bunny, and one flighty and eccentric bunny who couldn't be tied down by your labels, man, so left a unique set of collectibles for each area, like stealing ten eggs or desecrating five graves. But again, where's the context? How does it connect? It's not helping her survive, and if it's just spite that makes Lara want to kick seven cultist totems over, then one would have thought that sticking flaming arrows in all their jugular veins would have been enough. Is the 
violence in this game a bit gratuitous, do we think? Is a climbing axe to the carotid artery a poor way to start a relaxing Sunday afternoon? The violence directed at Lara certainly gets fucking absurd. Again like Uncharted, it just loads its protagonist, and Nathan Drake is a strapping young stud with a bulletproof haircut. In a sane world, Lara would be squirting liquidized organs out of her tear ducts, and it just makes the game silly when it's trying to be dramatic. This, Far Cry 3 and Spec Ops The Line may represent a current trend for serious character building through gritty violence, which has a story hound I can dig like a shallow grave, but where I spit on your tomb falls short is that I don't buy Lara's alleged arc. She has one freak out the first time she shoots a bloke, but once that's out of the way, call her Lara Croft, brain matter house painter. Later on, when she's supposed to be yelling defiantly at her foes, the voice actress sounds more like the head girl giving the halftime pep talk at the county netball finals. But the essence of the issue for me is that Lara is entirely reactionary. The universe just declares her chew toy of the day. She's either given no other option but to proceed, or the ground simply collapses under her big fat ass. Captain Walker decides to use the white phosphorus. Jason Brody decides to stay on the island. That's what makes their characters develop. Lara just alternates between breathy whimpers and bland resignation. So you can kill a man and take a machete like a champ. A concrete block can do that, but you can't kick one out the back of a moving truck and call that a character arc. Electronic arts. 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 If there was ever a name that illustrated a need for some kind of verbal equivalent of social services who come and forcibly take words away if they're being misused, then again they do mainly go by EA these days, so maybe they quietly change their name to extruding assholes so as not to offend reality. My point is, if there was ever a time when artistry was important enough to the company to be eponymous, then that is not a time in which we are currently living. Now they're just all about money and being a dick about things. Perhaps EA now stands for expel all your money from your wallet so that we can have it and then be a dick about it. Yes, I am quite bitter because I had to install Origin to play Sims. EA's overpriced, I'm going to make my own clubhouse just for all my friends and it's going to have cake and sabutio and it's going to be so much better digital distribution system, and putting that on my computer felt like leaving a child of my own in the Jonestown daycare centre. I felt dirty afterwards, I had to take a steam bath. That's why you load up steam and download a bunch of indie games to scrub yourself with. So I gave SimCity about a week before I started it up, because as we all remember, once EA had everyone's money, they had to start making up for the being a dick part of the mission statement and dick everyone around with connection issues, because SimCity has to be played online now for the sake of some features no nobody fucking asked for, and also because EA assumed that we're all dicks who steal games so they have to dick us first, preemptively like. I'd like to quote now from a statement made by Maxis which I will read in an insulting dismissive voice. SimCity is made to be played online, and if you can't get a stable connection, you're not having a good experience. I agree with that last part. I certainly am not having a good experience as I sit and wait for an update to download every dicking time I start a session. At this point I imagine a cute little finger puppet on the end of one of EA's many slick black tentacles hovering earnestly behind my shoulder. No, it's alright, it will be fun! You can play alongside other people and what a jolly lot of fun you'll all have! Okay. So on a desolate plot of land I place the foundations for the emerging city of Dogbollock, USA. Oh no no no! went the little finger puppet, leaning over and typing a row of asterisks. Can't call your city that, that would be ever so beastly! Why not? It is a fun name. I would be having more fun as the mayor of a city called Dogbollock. I'm hoping to set up a department of Dogbollock beautification. Oh, but other players will see it. A small innocent child might see it and suddenly know that bollocks exist. This online play makes things more fun assertion has sort of fallen at the first hurdle, hasn't it? So what benefit is there to being next to other cities that other people are running? Well, if they've got an excess of facilities, you can buy some of them. Choo-choo, all aboard the fun train. Suppose we should be grateful they didn't charge fucking micropayments for it. Buying facilities from other cities was a SimCity 
3000 feature, so maybe being able to do it between player cities is a natural development. I wouldn't say it was worth dicking the entire user base for. Oh, but who doesn't have a constant internet connection these days? Poor people who can only fantasize about holding a position of power and influence. Why would they want to play a god game? I'll say this for EA, they are full of innovative ideas. As we just discussed, they have innovative new ideas on what the word fun means, and they're breaking new ground with the definition of sequel too. I always thought it meant game with more stuff in it, but that just shows how archaic my thinking is. The area given for each city seems a bit small, which I suspect may be intended to incentivize sharing facilities with your neighbors, which I think is one of the ways HIV can get transmitted. You also can't edit the terrain before founding the city like you could in SimCity 4, and you can't import characters from The Sims anymore either. So tell me, little finger puppet, assuming that multiplayer elements are about as enticing to me as the sight of a dog sniffing another dog's bum, an easy thing to assume because they are, are there any new features SimCity can offer me? Well, there's a poo map. I beg your pardon? We've got a special map that lets you see all the poo, forming in big piles under people's houses. Then you can build an outlet pipe and watch all the poo speed away on a wee wee one way system. Fucking sold! So for a while I played along, grew my city, waited for the hourly cash inflow so I could build whatever I was being nagged for the loudest at the time, occasionally switching to the poo map and watching it mesmerized for about an hour, but then I was informed that a meteorite strike was incoming and I should prepare for fires. Okay, prepare how? I don't directly control the fire service, am I supposed to just, what, print off some leaflets? Whoops, too late, bombs away! Within minutes my city was an inferno, but like a strong leader I stayed level-headed and built 12 new fire stations, which seemed to eventually sort the problem out and after bulldozing half the city into some kind of invisible mass grave, things swiftly return to normal. Well, on the bright side, I thought, I now have the most fireproof city in the universe with the possible exception of Rapture. Then about an hour later, the game said, hey, a house burnt down. Why haven't you improved the fire service, you spaz? And I wondered about this until I noticed nine of the city's fire engines arranged in a conga line on the far side of town. I think there might be something wrong with the AI. This might also explain why my town was briefly terrorized by a rampaging criminal whose house turned out to be directly opposite the police station. Specifics are kind of moot though, because I don't see what this game has over, say, SimCity 4, which is cheaper and deeper and available on a download service that doesn't make my hard drive dry heave. It's just the online features, lardy cunting da. Oh, but everyone else seems to like them, has been the gist of EA and Max's company line on this issue. It's not our fault you don't know how to have fun. Listen to me, EA. Not every introvert is longing for the day that Zooey fucking Deschanel kicks their door down and forcibly drags them to a roller rink. I know how to have fun. It involves feeling like I achieved something with a sense of independence. It does not involve gangs of punks from some asshole's gambling town coming over to kick all my bus stops over. Can I suggest that perhaps you only ever hear from people who like online features because such people are extroverts? And it is only extroverts who think anyone gives a shit about their stupid opinions. And before you say anything, my opinions are actually very clever. So I was gonna do the new God of War, Ass Tension or whatever it was called, but that felt like throwing vegetables at a bear on a hot plate for not dancing well enough, when I should be telling the heartless bastards who own the bear to take it off the hot plate. At this point, Sony is like a pushy mother and Kratos is their little ballerina daughter. They whore him out to every PlayStation game that'll take him and they put a link to a preview of The Last of Us on his title screens, which is obviously exactly what we're after when we've put a God of War Ascension disc in the console and clicked on the God of War Ascension icon, and then the game itself can't be described as anything more interesting than another God of War. Ever since they wrote themselves into a corner in God of War 3, they've been squeezing semi-prequels out of every as yet explored period of Kratos' life. I will put money right now on there eventually being a DMC-style God of War reboot in which you play as a snarky teenage Kratos, learning how to fight and first acquiring his trademark simmering rage from all the older Greek men trying to bugger him. But then this Walking Dead thing comes out that presents a much more interesting talking point. It's supposed to be a prelude to the TV series of the same name, which I know nothing about, because what kind of saddo uses their TV for things with no potential for teabagging? But apparently it's about a zombie apocalypse, so yeah, I think I've got this. Zombie apocalypse was old hat, now it's a dusty torn up section of brim that came off an old hat because the rest of the old hat was eaten 
eaten by a stegosaurus. What I do know is that Walking Dead Survival Instinct is unrelated to the other Walking Dead game, which turned out really good because it wasn't the obvious zombie killing action game. So at this point, Survival Instinct throwing its very old hat into the ring as a zombie killing action game, in first person no less, might be considered a bad move. But there's a place in the ever reliable adult playground of zombie apocalypse for games of every shape and size, and there are enough interesting ideas behind this one to elevate it from the crowded little playpen where games like Resident Evil sit around trying to light their own farts. Survival Instinct opens like one of those weird Cabela animal hunting games in which every animal on earth has mistaken you for a man made of steaks and bamboo. You are a redneck holding a really shitty rifle in the middle of the wilderness, but after tracking the world's easiest to track deer for a second, zombies show up wanting a slice of your moon pie. I think a lot of people are going to dismiss Survival Instinct just because it doesn't look like a AAA game. Maybe a second tier one from about ten years ago of the opinion that any kind of environment design that couldn't have been made in the build engine is just being hoity-toity, where the zombies look like someone stuck a Halloween mask on a drying rack and their principal melee strike looks like they're trying to brush lint off your lapels. But the thing is, you have to look past that to see the strong points. You are a redneck named Daryl, and you set out on an epic quest to… okay, plot isn't one of the strong points either. Daryl's motivation seems to be to keep moving south with no apparent goal in mind unless it's to beat his record for how quickly he can alienate people through being a boorish redneck asshole. Hey Daryl, I don't think you of all people need to move any further south. What is interesting is that Survival Instinct has a core survival element, which already puts it ahead of Tomb Raider in the relevance of title event. Your task, besides avoiding getting your southern cross bitten off, is to explore open-ended levels to find enough fuel for the journey to the next level, as well as first aid and ammo to ensure you stay alive long enough to waste it. You can also have random survivors join your party who can go out and scavenge while you're doing story missions, but in my playthrough they only came back alive twice. If you send them out on their own, you see, they have the life expectancy of a little lost lamb sheltering from the rain in a nuclear test silo. And my car only had one spare seat. Yeah, I noticed the 74% risk rate, but I didn't pull off that spectacular rescue so you could sit and fiddle with the cigarette lighter, mate. And after I found a bigger car and enough chuckdees to make scavenging tenable, then the story campaign was about done. Not that it mattered so much, since when I did run out of fuel mid-journey, all the game did was drop me into a random scavenge mission that was just pissing the stuff out of the walls. I think you need to punish me more, Survival Instinct. I've been a very bad boy. I can imagine God of War ass slappage giving Survival Instinct a lot of shit on the new release shelves. Ooh, look at this Joker thinks he can hang with us. Where are your rendered cinematics and your predetermined action sequences? I bet you don't even zoom the camera all the way out to show off your expensive environment design while the player's trying to tell what the fuck they're doing. No, I bet you just try to make them engage with the main character like some kind of fag. Well, you know what, Asperger? I was more tense playing Survival Instinct than I have been playing most of your AAA ilk lately. Way more than when I was playing Dead Space 3, when I'd look down a corridor with 15 vents along the wall and say, yep, should have gone for the shampoo specially formulated for bodily fluids, and then the music guy would trip and somehow fall on every single button on his mixing desk. No, Survival Instinct achieves tension through organic, unscripted gameplay. I thought I'd snuck around those stanky drying racks in the street, but some of them followed me down this alley so I had to start shooting, and it turns out some of them were behind a nearby wooden fence, so they start smashing it down to get at me, and you'd better cast me in the cask of Omentilado because I'm about to fucking brick it. Where Survival Instinct lets itself down, besides looking like someone left a copy of Redneck Rampage in the tumble dryer, is that it doesn't have the imagination to make the most of its more interesting ideas. The organic survivor management and random mission mechanics were crying out for some kind of roguelike mode in which you just keep going till you die, if the developers had designed a few more maps for random missions to happen in, and incidentally you can't reuse a map, starters on the opposite end, and think we won't notice. But no, the game just bumbles through an overly brief and schizophrenic story campaign, and that's your lot, ending in about the most misguided way it possibly could, with turret section out of nowhere, as if to say, yeah, sorry about all that stealth and effective tension, why don't we leave you with pleasant memories of blowing heads off instead? Surely the lesson of Walking Dead the comic, and the show, and the other video game is that zombie violence in itself is done like a sticky bun, and now it's exploring characters that keeps it interesting. I mean, we all know by this point what happens if you shoot a zombie in the head. You have to use the specially formulated shampoo.
I think the best explanation for Ken Levine's career is that there's some kind of matronly school teacher standing behind him repeatedly going, now do it again, but properly this time. It starts with System Shock 2 basically being System Shock but without the shitty cyberspace minigame or looking like someone drank a load of cerulean paint and vomited on Ultima Underworld. Then there was Bioshock basically being System Shock 2 with more imagination and no longer having to put six points into exotic weapons proficiency to figure out how to twat people over the head with a piece of jagged rock. And now we have Bioshock Infinite which is basically Bioshock but now with the word infinite on the end. And when the protagonist with a shadowy and unwittingly significant past arrives at the lighthouse that is the secret entrance to a corrupted idealist utopia, he takes the stairs leading up this time. Don't take this the wrong way though, Bioshock Infinite is a retread but it's the good kind of retread that uses a formula that works to explore new ideas and it's a worthy sequel to the original. Don't you mean second sequel, Yahtzee? Get out. Booker DeWitt is a cynical private detective and amazingly not silent protagonist who makes the most of that talent to read aloud every single sign he passes and then go, huh, in an increasingly irritating way. He's sent to the floating sky city of Columbia to rescue a mysterious young girl and then escape the city with her, although one wonders why that part proved so difficult. Surely the maximum amount of time one could be trapped in a cloud city would be however long it takes to make a parachute out of a pair of curtains. The first significant way Infinite differs from the first two Shock Sisters is that Bio and System were horror games in which you were late for the party and have to piece together the events of the party on a gloomy hungover Sunday morning, whereas Infinite is a pulpy swashbuckling adventure and you're just in time for the party because the party is you. Columbia starts off perfectly fine, resembling an idyllic, cartoonishly racist Disneyland until Father Comstock, city leader and alleged prophet, marks out DeWitt as the guy who's destined to fuck everyone up, so he's forced to fuck everyone up after they all turn on him for being the guy who's going to fuck everyone up. Comparisons to Bioshock are as inevitable as a bear shitting on a Catholic, or however that phrase goes, and under that light Infinite falls kinda short. What's disappointing is that the villain is basically just a racist nutter who wants to blow up the world. I listened to him frothing about how his carpet made of black people should be grateful he hasn't trodden any dog shit lately, and he becomes hard to take seriously. The truly great villain is one who talks sense. Andrew Ryan had some weird ideas about sweat ownership, but he was articulate, dangerously intelligent, and wouldn't let someone like Comstock run the fucking hot tap. Also, Elizabeth the wide-eyed little sister amalgamation has the ability to manipulate the fabric of reality, which is always a can of worms for any story to open, and the game starts threatening to disappear up its own butt. Reality manipulation becomes what Adam was in the first game, a crutch to hold up the weirder parts of the plot, a crutch being very important for walking when parts of you are stuck up your own butt, and events get a bit hard to follow when alternative reality are colliding all over the place, not that would want to follow someone who's heading straight up their own butt. The continuing presence of plasmids, or in this case Vigors, is a bit of a sticking point for me because in Bioshock 1 they were a central part of the plot as well as the gameplay, representing the fall of Rapture because everyone was getting too spliced up to jerk off to Atlas Shrugged more than twice a day, but now they're just sort of there. Maybe they fell out of a reality rift to the convenience dimension. Which is not to say it's not still fun to electrocute people with naught but your winning smile, in fact there's not much to complain about on the whole gameplay front. I do have a minor issue in that, like Bioshock 1 there's still a bit of a gulf in enemy threat levels. It doesn't take too many upgrades for the standard human enemies to be threatening only to whoever has to shampoo the carpets. I ended up being able to chain lightning entire rooms to death halfway through the first racial slur, but it seems like every other enemy they throw at you can take damage like your mum takes cheap gin, followed by the entire room full of sailors that were buying it for her. And another condition Infinite seems to have inherited from its forebear is shitty final level syndrome, aka the shinfuls. The semi-optional tower defence sections in Assassin's Creed Revelations and Black Ops 2 were a bit of a pinecone in the fruit salad, but the only thing worse is a completely not optional one. So how does Infinite beat out Bioshock? Well I remember saying that a game set in an underwater city with no swimming gameplay seemed like a bit of a missed connection, and I was afraid Bioshock Infinite would similarly miss the potential by restricting the gameplay to the usual modern shooter ground-based skirmishes under very pretty skyboxes where the jump button exists only to taunt you with the momentary belief that perhaps you could climb over the strategically placed piles of rubble that mark the inevitable invisible walls, but thankfully the Skyhook rail travelling system is a lot of fun and adds a whole lot to the huge open air feel of the maps as well as the swashbuckling tone to the action. I'd swoop down from on high, machine gunning racists, then jump off and kick the last survivor off the ledge and feel like Errol fucking Flynn. I was almost afraid of landing in case I got bounced 
bounced away on balls like a couple of hairy space hoppers, and it certainly has a better ending than Bioshock, which isn't saying a whole lot. A situation wherein a man with a gun is ordering you to dig a shallow grave in the woods would probably end better than Bioshock 1 did, but for all the alternate realities splurging confusingly around the story's mid to late period, Infinite somehow manages to tie it all together with an ending that really stuck with me and made me want to go back and pick through the whole thing again, going, oh, so that was the significance of the four gay blokes. It is, however, hairy space hopper levels of pretentious. It comes and goes in and out of its own butt the whole way through, but the ending is the point of maximum own butt penetration. It wallows in a bit of abstract meta-narrative, wanky-wanky word-word that doesn't really serve the essential plot points, and I found myself thinking, if this ends with us meeting God, and God looks like Ken Levine, then I'm going to fucking punch someone. But you know what, if it isn't boring and gives us something to talk about, then it can't be bad. And Infinite isn't bad, it's good, perhaps even great. You see, sometimes it's kind of nice to be up somebody's butt if it's cosy and warm and they've put some interesting conversation pieces up there. Whether you think Bioshock Infinite was good or failed to measure up to your ever-so-refined palette, fner fner aloof aloof, it at least provokes discussion and certainly seems to have been a bit of a watershed moment, and I find myself in a slightly melancholy mood because of it. Now everything that came out before it this year has kind of merged together into the pre-Bioshock Infinite mass, where the mayor of SimCity is a cyborg ninja wearing two very skimpy vests and is diverting civic funds into bringing their dead mum back to life. Now all I can think about is that a momentary peak has been reached and things are going to get real bland real fast, especially now a new console generation seems determined to start like an elderly relative who lacks the basic common courtesy to just die and get it out of the way. Oh, Army of Two, the Devil's Cartel. When I take the disc out of the box, will I put it in the drive or attempt to eat it? Decisions, decisions. Wait, new console generation. That rings a bell. Didn't I buy a new console late last year? What was it called? The piss shit? Yeah, the Wii U, remember that? Last week I bought a game for it for the very first time since the fucking thing came out. One of the very, very few Wii U releases that isn't a port of a game that came out for everything else around the time Happy Days went off the air. Do we think a console that insists on using a gimmicky oversized Weetabix as a controller is proving a bit obnoxious to develop for? A Nintendo console being difficult for third party development? No, that'd be like EA making a dodgy business decision. The game in question is Lego City Undercover, which makes a lot of sense when you think about it. It could be that in Lego, Nintendo sees a kindred spirit, perhaps even a potential mentor. Now that Nintendo is bent on being a company that only makes toys. Hey, they want to do that, it's their business. So what if no one's developing for the Wii U? No one develops for the speak and spell much these days either. It does mean, however, that all you 30-year-old Nintendo fanboys will have to stop holding out for a new Metroid Prime or anything with any emotion or cultural relevance, and maybe you could stop pretending to like new Super Mario Bros. Wii while we're at it. Sorry, post-Bioshock Melancholy's talking again. Ooh, Lego City! Cheerful, colourful, charming, plastic objects lodged in the sole of the foot. No, positive now! This is the transfer of the classical Lego whatever pop culture trend we licensed this week gameplay into a sandbox city environment. And when I say classic Lego ungainly sentence gameplay, I mean studs. Collect the studs, collect all the fucking studs, except you will never collect all the studs. I tried to collect all the studs on the dock where you start the game, but the moment I turned around they'd all come back. I'm being taunted by studs. This is why I don't go to the gym anymore. Sandbox gameplay is a natural fit for Lego, because that's basically what Lego the real life thing is. You can use a range of drivable Lego vehicles to hunt around for studs and gradually collect new abilities to allow you to reach more studs. So collecting studs and various other Lego products can best be described as the core gameplay, because it's not the combat, which is absolute bollocks. By the end of the game, I was just grabbing each enemy one by one and flinging them off a ledge so I wouldn't have to bother. It's about as involving as ladling rice pudding into several bowls placed randomly around a kitchen worktop. So those scrounging wastrels at TT Fusion have had to come up with their own plot for once and they went for a spoof. Because when your entire cast of small yellow people with detachable body parts, then it's either that or Tales from the Leper Colony. I must say, previous LEGO games have been quite reliably funny, usually because the characters never speak and have to convey the plot of an existing film or property using only extravagant gestures. But in LEGO City, we see what happens when LEGO people do speak. It turns out they communicate entirely in pop culture 
parodies and eye-rolling self-referential jokes that run on too long by an average of about three self-inflicted punches to the face. Well, I'm not too proud to admit that I laughed at a couple of lines, but that's a pretty small minority in a game that goes on long enough to pay lip service to the entire range of the Lego workforce. Oh, but Yahtzee Counterpoint, this is a kid's game and more elegant comedy would be lost on the cringing little snot bags. Counter Counterpoint, asshole, what kind of kid would understand an extended parody of the Shawshank Redemption or even the first Matrix film? References from back when they would have been but a drunken glint in the eyes of one of several potential fathers. No, this is the DreamWorks line of thinking that a fun-for-all-the-family experience has to put in some jokes for Dad that will fly over the sticky misshapen heads of the spawn, but there's kind of an art to that and Lego City's attempt is like a man doing helicopter impressions down a supermarket aisle, his flailing arms knocking countless packets of biscuits to the floor. Actually, speaking of fun-for-all-the-family, I know this is going to sound weird coming from me, but don't Lego games usually have local multiplayer? It makes sense in this case because it's the kind of game that divorced parents buy to play with their children during visiting times. They provide wholesome family fun while also having enough lulls in the action to allow for searching questions on mother's new boyfriend and what moments he leaves his flashy car undefended. And meanwhile, the numerous ways one can reduce one's playing partner to plastic giblets allow the child to express their impotent frustration at their inevitably ruined life. Oh wait, I forgot the Wii U can only have one screen controller, because if you have two of them in the same house then you risk buckling the foundations. There's also what is becoming the token Wii U thing of holding the controller up to scan something like we've developed a phobia of video games and are trying to cover our eyes, but there's no escape, it's still there! All of which entirely justifies the three-hour battery life that meant I had to stop right before the climactic story end and play Luigi's Mansion for a bit instead, and obnoxious loading times certainly don't help. I hope you're not loading the entire city every time we step outside, you silly game. I was only going to run over a bunch of lampposts, you don't need to dry clean every single fucking doily. Without a second player to brutalise, the appeal falls back on good old OCD 100% completion, but you're kind of forced to go through the whole story mode before you can even start shooting for that, since so many collectibles require late-game abilities to acquire, it's like being held hostage by a marathon of all the worst Simpsons episodes. Maybe if you like the LEGO stud-centric gameplay enough you could forgive a lot of this, but is LEGO City undercover what the Wii U needs right now? I wouldn't say so. I mean, it doesn't even resemble a pneumatic drill. I think mature video games and me are having a bit of a time out. It's not them, it's me. The sound of gunfire was starting to feel like the text message ringtone of my life, and the message was always, ow, I'm dead, or some variation of such. I started playing Defiance, but I found its unvarying shooter action erection witheringly dull to play for more than an hour or so, and if there's one thing that reliably gets on my tits, it's clumsy made-up swear words. Hey, lady with a Chippendale writing desk for a forehead, you seem fine with using English words all the rest of the time. What have you got against saying shit? It's a nice convenient syllable, ideal for spontaneous expressions of dissatisfaction, and particularly handy for describing MMO shooters based on by original series is no one watches. What the fuck is Starco supposed to mean? It's a fucking six-lane pile-up of the vocal cords. And I don't think I can face this injustice thing right now either, because I haven't yet drunk enough lighter fluid to have entirely forgotten about Mortal Kombat vs DC Universe. I felt like playing a game where the main character is less physically fit than me for once. Well, turns out Nintendo was happy to oblige with Luigi's Mansion 2, Dark Moon on the 3DS. The original was a GameCube launch title, somewhat maligned, but it seems no Nintendo property can escape being sequelized forever. I think I see how the Nintendo flowchart works. Question 1, are you an entirely original property. If yes, sod off. Question 2. Has your franchise gone unacknowledged for a long time, or are you Pokemon? If yes, welcome aboard the uncomfortably sharp edges of the good ship 3DS. Hope your audience likes having sore palms. Masturbation joke in there somewhere. Thanks for reminding me of the GameCube though, because this is what gets me about Nintendo hardware of late. The GameCube had a lovely controller actually designed to be held by human hands, controversially, but since then all their controllers and handhelds have been harsh rectangles, and prolonged use of the 3DS always leaves my hands looking like I tried to wear a pair of sandwich toasters as mittens. Not that I want two videos in a row to start with me with 
fiddling all over Nintendo hardware. I mean, at least they still make games machines, rather than dedicated social media interfaces that run on money. But yes, the game. Let's not waste too much time establishing things. Luigi is called in to suck up a bunch of ghosts because he's sucked up a bunch of ghosts before and they couldn't be bothered to retailer the vacuum cleaner harness. Of the two, Luigi is the Mario brother I would much rather have unblock my S-Bend. As principal face of the company, Mario has long been in character lockdown, incapable of showing any expression or action that might alienate a potential customer. They're afraid to show that Mario doesn't like peas, in case they lose the entire pea-loving demographic. But being less important, Luigi is the Mario brother permitted to have an actual personality, albeit a varying one. In Mario Galaxy, he's earnest but accident-prone. In Super Paper Mario, he's the most amazing human being who ever lived. And of course, in Luigi's Mansion, he was a coward whose every individual body part jiggled like a tit on a walrus. In Dark Moon, he's more a put-upon everyman, and what I like is that he constantly conveys personality in a thousand subtle ways, from the way he adjusts his backpack for comfort to his nervous humming along with the background music. You see, there's far more to Luigi than some well-maintained facial hair, lovely as it would be to imagine gently brushing my skin under romantic firelight. In contrast to other games where Luigi is basically just Mario suffering some kind of identity crisis, this Luigi cannot jump and can barely run. He's got a vacuum cleaner and a flashlight, and so must for once employ those technical skills that must have served the family plumbing business well before whatever catastrophic toilet accident stranded the brothers in this bizarre mushroom-obsessed dimension. Essentially, this is a game of running down the list of options until you provoke a reaction, like an on-call electrician looking for the busted fuse. Step one, push it. Step two, shine a light on it. Step three, shine the other light on it. Step four, give it a suck. If it responds, continue sucking. Dig in your heels and suck until your moustache stands on end, you beautiful man. It makes for a reactive, explorable world with a solid core mechanic that ramps up naturally as the ghosts grow in number and strength. When you're latched onto a ghost's backside, you must be alert to when to suck with all your might and when to ease off to allow yourself to dodge other ghosts who might be trying to double-team you unexpectedly in the rear. Gosh, it's getting awfully hot in here. In accordance with the Nintendo policy that served them so very well so far, the plot is basically a retread of the first one, but the gameplay has evolved in good directions. A more appropriate title might have been Luigi's Mansions, to follow the Alien sequel naming convention, since there are several, each with a handful of missions. If I have a problem with this, it's my own obsessive instinct to meticulously search every room of the house in every mission in case those curtains in room 3A will disgorge money again, or in case the optional ghosts are hanging about there. And incidentally, it was disappointing to discover that finding all the optional ghosts in a mansion only unlocks a secret time trial level. I thought it was going to be some kind of this is how you get the true ending scenario, but oh boy, another chance to look around the same place I went through five times nudging every fucking pot plant. All my Christmases have come at once. Even the constant streams of money that the game throws at you for poking the skirting boards lack a purpose once you've gotten the poultry five upgrades. I can think of a lot of things I would have spent the money on. For example, in situations where I am tasked to escort little frightened toadstool people who run around squawking like geese at a peep show, getting in front of my suck pump while I'm trying to inhale cum, I mean ghosts, and getting their heads caught in the pipe, I wish I could have bought them some fucking Ritalin. But then I'm not Luigi, who interacts with the toads with touching, almost fatherly concern. A far cry from old Mr. Let's Condemn Yoshi to a bottomless pit for the sake of a double jump Mario. So yes, after all that, I quite liked Luigi's Mansion too. See, Nintendo, if you'd stop cocking about with your hardware gimmicks and concentrated on making games with character and polished core mechanics, then maybe I wouldn't have to keep hitting you. I even had fun with the co-op random dungeon mode, which has the best kind of co-op gameplay, in that you can play it entirely by yourself. Okay, I did play a quick online game, but I found the gameplay turned quite antagonistic quite fast, with four multicolored Luigis all fighting over who gets to suck one ghost, which was disturbing because I thought I was having that recurring dream again. Have you ever realised, five minutes into a 20-minute presentation, that your idea isn't going to fill the whole time slot? Ended up rambling disconnectedly on and around the subject for a bit too long until everyone realises you're just stalling for time until you come up with something else. That's what I'm reminded of by the people who make Mortal Kombat, who are currently called Netherrealm Studios, but these things can be a bit liquid. Mortal Kombat vs DC Universe seems to have provided Netherrealm's entire roadmap. Hey, for our next project, let's make a new Mortal Kombat. Um, uh, now let's make DC Universe Combat. Written yourself into a corner now, though, haven't you, lads? Unless your next game is Mortal Kombat vs DC Universe vs Mr. Men. Still, with Injustice, I really think Netherrealm have found their calling. I remember complaining that every single character in MK9 had exactly the same body type, and all the women's outfits were designed by hormonal teenage boys with scissors for hands, and while most forms of media would consider these to be negative qualities, 
and superhero comics, they're the fucking bread and butter. And that's not even mentioning the writing in MK9, and I know that some superhero comics are actually really well written, so let's not generalise and say that MK9 was written about as well as a superhero comic that was written about as well as the plot of Injustice Gods Among Us, if you're still with me. Basically, Injustice is about Superman being evil. Again. It takes me back to those terrible Silver Age comics that always tried to come up with some shocking twist to put on the front cover, and all they could ever come up with was Superman is now evil, or Superman is now fat. Because Superman is an utterly bland character with only two qualities, A, good and righteous and just, etc, and B, built like the after picture on a Charles Atlas advert. Lois Lane, Superman's pet woman with no life or ambition of her own, or even physical presence in this game, died. So Superman got really cross and became Space Hitler. Also Lex Luthor becomes good, and looks exactly like Bruce Willis for some reason. The rest of the Justice League find all this out after being transported to the parallel universe where it is the case. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention it's a parallel universe, because of course it is. Who wants to be Arkham City and have characters undergoing any significant growth that carries actual weight and interest because it can't immediately inconveniently be reversed at a moment's notice? No, nice, comfortable, boring status quo, please. The Justice League we're familiar with show up and go, everything is different here and therefore wrong. Commence beatings. You can't extend your jurisdiction to all infinity universes, you dozy twats. There aren't enough hours in the day. Anyway, this is the story mode, which is very similar to mk 9 story mode in that you go from character to character and spend the first round of each chapter getting worked over like the squeezy lemon on Pancake Day because all your special moves have changed. Your character runs into a place where two enemy characters are standing around, yells, stop being such dicks, they say, shan't, you beat one up, then the other. This applies to every chapter. Well, I know the one-on-one -on -one fighter doesn't have much to work with and has to use a lot of talky cutscenes to tell a story, but where's the sense in having characters fight in cutscenes? The one thing your gameplay does and you take it away. It's like casting James Earl Jones as someone who can't speak. Mind you, what makes even less sense is a cutscene of characters fighting in the middle of a fight, which is what the super moves are. I'm not saying it wasn't impressive the first time Superman punched Batman into orbit and then smashed him back down again with the Mir space station, in that it was impressive that he hadn't been reduced to precipitation by the time he hit the ground, but when these lengthy and overblown things are happening at least once a fight, then after a while you might as well call them the super cigarette breaks. It's worth remembering that in Mortal Kombat 1, all Sub-Zero did was pull a guy's head off so the spine dangled forlornly from it like the last string of sausages nobody wanted, but because it was really hard to do, it was basically my generation's moon landing. Injustice also has needlessly long pain sequences when you kick someone off the stage, but those actually take a bit of work to pull off. You've got to lure them over to the wall with promises of cake and fizzy drinks, and then do the big wind-up punch that can be interrupted by a nearby sneezing microbe, so they're actually kind of satisfying. It's not just mashing the trigger buttons and then breaking for lunch. The actual fighting, and this being a fighting game, that means pretty much everything, kind of has too much going on, like a madman with a welding torch broke into the bell and whistle factory. There's your three standard attacks, your special attacks, your super move in case you need to pop to the kitchen and check on the roast in the oven. Then the circle button is a unique superpower thing, which for some characters is obvious. It makes green arrow fire a green arrow, for example, but in other cases I don't have a clue what it does. Some characters just make a kind of grunty noise and then continue with a coloured haze around them like they just farted powder paints. The tutorial wouldn't let me leave till I demonstrated I could do something it called a bounce cancel, which was like pulling a three-point turn in the Death Star trench and never came up again. Also there's clashing. And let's give Netherrealm a round of applause for figuring out how to work quick time events into one-on-one -on -one gameplay. You press a button, your opponent presses a button, the one who pressed the best button wins. The gameplay boiled down to its simplest possible form perhaps, but I can't help but feel like we're losing a sense of agency. I still think one-on-one -on -one fighters are a bit out of place in AAA, probably because it's a very arcadey genre, in a market geared more these days for online play and pissing on its own shoes. The usual splatter of disconnected gameplay modes always feels a bit scrappy, but Injustice is trying so desperately to fit in with bombastic AAA style over substance, with its super moves and quick time events it's like James Earl Jones punching himself in the balls to fulfil his dream of singing soprano. So people who like fighting games might be turned off by all the faffing about and the too many characters who might as well all be the same dude wearing different pyjamas, and people who like superhero comics may find the depictions of their beloved characters stayed at best. Compare the Catwoman in Arkham City to the Catwoman briefly depicted in this game story campaign as Batman's lovesick stalker who's only there so he can push her away and show how drearily fucking above it all he is. Personally, I don't really like fighting games or superhero comics, so I'm not even sure why I'm talking. Might as well just clap like a circus seal.
Wonk. The thing about Star Wars is that it's the kind of title you're probably not supposed to think about too much. I mean, it's not the stars that are having the war, it's a bunch of twats. They should have called it Twat Wars. Maybe there were a load of stars in the background of the Twat Wars, but that's hardly justification. It'd be like calling Saving Private Ryan Mud Wars, or any film with Keanu Reeves in it a Keanu Reeves film. I bring this up because celebrating Star Wars on and around May the 4th now seems to have officially wriggled its way into being a thing. So what better way to mark this wonderful time of the year by reviewing the new Star Wars game, Star Trek? And I know of a question that always provokes stimulating debate, which is the worst Star Trek video game? Was it Star Trek Elite Force 2? Star Trek Online? Can't go wrong with Star Trek Klingon usually, because FMV games just add a whole new layer of awfulness like a cat food sandwich. Sadly, I think this is one debate that's going to have to be closed by the end of this video. So let's stop faffing about and start. Wreck. This is the tie-in for the new film, whose posters have been causing no small bafflement for their lack of stars or trekking. The second film in the reboot series where Spock is that bloke from Heroes and Kirk is that bloke from nothing. I've never had great nostalgia for the Kirk and Spock thing, I was always more of a next generation boy. It's the inevitable sixth of reboot of that I'm dreading, where they cast Snooky as Counselor Troy, or Dwayne the Rock Johnson as Wesley Crusher. The plot of this game involves the Vulcans having created an all-powerful doom weapon, claiming it was intended for peaceful purposes because the Vulcans have long since stopped giving a shit what you think, but then a hostile alien species nicks it and the Enterprise has to sort things out, which is hauntingly reminiscent of the plot of the last Star Trek film, but I suppose you can't have the tie-in game overshadowing the film unless you're Chronicles of Riddick. The difference is that the hostile aliens all look like growly reptile monsters, so although they're obviously sentient, the peace-loving federation is cool with you slaughtering them on mass. Should have gone for bipeds with autumnal skin tones evolution, better luck next time. This is another game where the box blurb blurbs a bit more than intended. Explore the special relationship between Kirk and Spock, it says, and visions of decades of fan art flash before my eyes, and interact with all your favourite characters among the Enterprise crew, it goes on to say. The trendy young bastardised versions, obviously. But the most telling point of all is the one that is not mentioned, that is to say, what kind of game this is. There is a brief note to the effect that it self-identifies as an action-adventure, but that's like saying it belongs to the people-moving-around-doing-things genre. That doesn't tell us shit. Identifying as action-adventure is basically saying we didn't know what the fuck we were playing at with this, and neither will you. You could probably get an idea from the flip side of the box, where Han and Chewie stand around in power armor pointing guns out of shot like the peace-loving space ambassadors they are, that this is a shooter, and indeed Kirk does seem to be wearing the special cologne that attracts chest-high walls today, but this game trying to actually sell itself as a shooter would be like EA asking to be considered for the most lovely company to work for award. It didn't take more than a few rounds of pew pew laser fun to really start pining for a gun that fires continuously and appears to have more effect on the enemy than a maiden's fingers gently brushing their cheek. After putting up with it for slightly longer, I would have settled for an average-sized stick. Sci-fi weaponry is all very well, but you can't beat the sense of weight one gets from knocking out someone's teeth with a soup ladle, and the only defences your character seems to have when enemies get into melee range is to shoot straight past them and piss themselves. In the long-range shooting situations, there seem to be even odds whether pressing the circle button will cause you to actually stick to what may or may not be cover, or enthusiastically roll at it as part of the chest-high wall mating dance. Even the most basic movement controls feel like steering a startled cow around a dance floor. The main problem may be a system that activates pre-baked turning animations whenever you move with the left analogue stick, so every time you try to spontaneously move in anything other than the four card directions, you can practically hear a fan belt fly off the engine and wrap itself around someone's throat. So it's a good thing Star Trek doesn't call itself a shooter, although just like when I come around your mum's house for dinner, I'm still left wondering what exactly this mess before me is. There's a stealth element, complete with a surprisingly extensive suite of stealth tools, visibility indicators, distraction ability, the standard video game surprise glomp from behind that causes the subject to swoon into unconsciousness at the scandal of it all, but areas you can stealth through where enemies are unalerted are infrequent and rigidly determined and all go straight out the window and turn shootery again the moment a single 
Little Lizard Man catches you, because against all odds you thought tapping square to take him down when it says tap square to take down would actually take him down. Also, there are Uncharted-style climbing sections necessitating the ability to jump and climb ledges very, very selectively, so what we have here is a set of controls for three entirely different game styles simultaneously piled onto these two poor sods. No wonder they handle like overloaded shopping trolleys with the hiccups. I haven't even mentioned a space combat mode that's like being dangled upside down from a tree and continually slapped in the face, or the predetermined wingsuit sequence in which I experimentally opted not to move at all and found myself passing harmlessly through every alleged hazard, or the overlong hacking minigames that fit as smoothly and naturally into gameplay as a sliding tile puzzle in the middle of a Guitar Hero set, and every other shallow and unpolished mechanic briefly thrown into this unfocused mess. The only consistent aspect is the two-player co-op, aka bro-op, and the fact that such a word exists is I think one of the signs that all of human society has collectively become suicidal. But brotherly love was very far from my mind on the occasion when I'd been incapacitated and Spock was off flicking his ears somewhere, so I ordered him to come and stand nearby so he would see my plight, but he just stood there blowing bubbles with his spit. Or the time when Kirk was left frozen for eternity at the level exit waiting for a Spock who would never come, because he'd just been creamed by a moving elevator but the game somehow hadn't noticed. Rather heartrending, really. Almost as much as knowing I wasted eight hours I could have spent prizing my toenails off with a coat hook. The relationship between retailers and game publishers reminds me of the British Coalition government. They're like two people who have to work together, but you can tell from their toothy smiles and firm handshakes that both are waiting for the other to flinch, just for an instant, so that they can rip off their shirts and start clawing for the eyeballs. Retail? Pah! Direct download is what all the cool kids use, cry the game publishers. Also, we're designing future console hardware so that if you put a pre-owned game in it, then it will catch fire and launch hot acid at your eyeballs. What was that about a new console? Go the game retailers. Okay, I guess we'll stock it on this shelf here, behind a rack of Nancy Drew hidden object games in the series of rotating knives. Come on guys, learn to live with each other, you might as well accept that some people are always going to want physical copies of games, if only because deleting a game just doesn't give you the same sense of closure as microwaving it. Presently, however, retail releases are having a little sleepy time after the big spunky blowout of quarter one, so let's ride the wave of the future and motherfucking download some shit. Starting with Far Cry 3 Blood Dragon. You know what, as much as I like games like Spec Ops The Line, there's a danger of video games starting to take themselves a bit too seriously, with all these gritty character arcs and bombastic orchestral soundtracks playing as they very earnestly and dramatically raise their mounted taint periscope to gaze up their own bum holes. It is possible for violence to be fun, remember, that's basically what's written on the archway leading into Video Game Town, and Blood Dragon opening with a helicopter minigun sequence to the sound of Long Tall Sally by Little Richard is probably one of the most efficient openings I've ever seen in terms of laying out one's intentions. The tongue is not only in the cheek, but it has bored right through the cheek, burst out of the face, and has signed onto a whimsical Zucker Brothers film. Most overtly, it's a spoof of 80s sci-fi action, meaning basically every Schwarzenegger film before Kindergarten Cop, but also takes the time to parody both retro action games and modern shooters, which it does by basically being a modern shooter. You play Rex Power Cult, Cyber Commando, voiced by Michael Bean in the less embarrassing of his two video game appearances this year. He's got to end the evil machinations of his former commander gone rogue with the help of a beautiful scientist because he may be partly constructed from radio parts and Meccano, but all that matters is that he still has a human soul, etc, etc. Despite appearances, this isn't actually Far Cry 3 DLC. It's an entirely standalone affair based on Far Cry 3, but it's only a one gig download and that didn't seem like it had stretched very far. For most AAA games these days, that gets you an intro cinematic and maybe a party bag to take home. Turns out what it gets us in this case is one island, 13 garrisons to liberate, and a story campaign that you could miss entirely if a large dog happens to run past the screen at the wrong moment. When I say it's based on Far Cry 3, that's kind of like saying that a car with a suspiciously fresh respray job and license plate is based on another car that went missing around here recently. It is Far Cry 3, but with neon colours and synthesizer music. It reminds me of those zero-effort Doom mods from back in the day where they just replace all the sprites with pictures of girls and colour the rocket launcher pink. It's the same terrain and the same gameplay, but now they're trying to sell it as special Bukaki edition. And while I like Far 
Far Cry 3, the tone of the gameplay doesn't serve a jokey sci-fi game as well as it did the original. There should have been a more fitting way for Rex to get around the island than constant bloody nature hikes, and might as well stop beating around the bush. Where's my fucking jetpack? That was an opportunity sticking its six-foot-wide ass in the air and you still missed it. Largely, it's back to the old routine of clearing out garrisons and hunting, except the vibrant neon colours on a dark background are kind of like undergoing major reconstructive dentistry in that it can make things a bit hard to make out, slightly tortured simile. The only real gameplay addition is the titular Blood Dragons, a sort of logical progression of the old Far Cry 3 trick of delegating the clearing out of garrisons to Mr. Whiskers and the Forest Friends. If you sneak into garrisons and deactivate the force fields, you can bait giant glowing dinosaurs to come and do the spring cleaning, but it's a fiddly and unreliable technique when if there are no more baddies in their line of sight, they might decide to snack on some of Kyle Reese's pieces instead, perhaps a plate of fish and hicks. But at the end of the cyber day, one must judge an intentional comedy by whether or not it's funny, because a comedy I don't laugh at is like a strangling murder that doesn't make me come. Might as well not have bothered. Unfortunately, Blood Dragon does make me laugh, fairly often. I still wish more video games could figure out that there are more schools of comedy besides being ironically over-the-top or referencing pop culture and internet memes, and some moments in the oh-so-hilarious retro-style barely-animated cutscenes can seem a bit try-hardy, yes, that's a word, but the humour is densely packed. Every single collectible document and database entry provides one or two reliable chortles, and that gives me far more motive to seek 100% completion than Skyrim ever did. It's the best kind of parody in that you don't have to be fully familiar with any one thing that it's referencing in order to find it funny, which is the stick I will beat Duke Nukem forever with until I have extracted every micron of entertainment value it promised me. Michael Bean's deadpan voice proves quite effective as a parody of himself, this is what's known as the Leslie Nielsen career trajectory. But funny as it is, all that is wallpaper and the Heidi blanket of irony only covers so much. The ending, for example, wasn't as ironically over the top as it needed to be, ironically. I mean, yes, you get to ride an armoured laser dinosaur into the enemy's stronghold, but then it just kind of stops. No boss fight and the main villain dies in the ending cutscene. There should have been some kind of disco arena space battle with another guy on an armoured laser dinosaur and you should have both been wielding American gladiator paddles with head strimmers strapped to the ends. I suppose it wouldn't be Far Cry 3 if the villains didn't all die as anticlimactically as possible and if the it's a parody shield stops working then they could always swap it for the what do you expect for 20 bucks defence. But on the whole I find Blood Dragon to be a positive development in uh, development. Someone wanted to unwind after a big AAA project by taking all the tools and making a funny little ancillary game that appealed to them because they didn't have to take it so seriously. And then lo and behold people like it because it's fun and got a bit of heart that makes it stand out among the usual AAA releases. Blimey! Who could have predicted that a man dressed as a giant lights up purple cock would turn a few heads at the paint drying appreciation society? You know, I used to PC game a lot more than I do now, but that was back before I mainly used laptops, so I eventually had to inch my bum along to the console end of the bench of gaming for the sake of playing processor-intensive games without having to microwave my keyboard hand. Lately, however, I've been feeling like it's time to start inching my bum back again, because I've just noticed a smelly tramp sitting on the console end of the bench with a Kinect lodged in his forehead, and he keeps muttering the word pre-owned and stabbing himself in the hand with a tin opener. With a new console generation coming up like a cloud of eldritch black vapour on the horizon, this is turning into the ideal time to reminisce the fuck out of retro PC gaming, and it seems Steam agrees, because finally released System Shock 2 the other day, and while we're still muttering about the Bioshocks and the Bioshock Infinites and the Biotoxic Shock Syndromes, we've a timely enough gap in new releases to look back on how that all began. Well, the sequel to how that all began, anyway, but playing System Shock 1 was like trying to pilot a helicopter with your head stuck in a Commodore 64, so personally I don't count it. In System Shock 2, we play a random Johnny about whom all we know going in is that they're a bit tasty in a fight, in what would become the grand tradition of Ken Levine games with shock in the name. We're assigned to an experimental FTL ship exploring a distant galaxy, but wake up in a fridge and can't remember why. Also, the ship is now infested with papercraft beef jerky monsters because Polygon graphics haven't quite shaken off the pubescent bum fluff by this point. You set off to piece together what happened and look for survivors, although you won't find any spoiler alert because there wasn't enough room on CDs to have friendly NPCs, and even if they had, the game had no way to prevent you whimsically stoving their heads in with a wrench. Again, setting the tone for all future games, there's more behind the plot than there seems at first glance, although one could have figured that out from the intro. Hey, it says, did you know that in the last game there was this nutty computer that tried to kill everyone? No, I did not know that. Why did you bring it up?
Uh, no reason. Here's a totally unrelated plot. Also, try not to look at the box art. So the adventure begins, and then stops again two seconds later when you realise you need to rebind the controls. A in D to turn rather than strafe. X to backpedal. Are you taking the fucking piss? It's lucky the game was never ported to a console, you'd probably have to walk forward by licking the shoulder buttons. Then again, you can't port System Shock 2 to a console until someone invents a gamepad with mouse control and more buttons than a microwave in an arts and crafts shop. It's very much steeped in the PC gaming attitude. You either memorise about 10 million keyboard shortcuts, or switch to a mouse interface that attempts to simultaneously convey more information than a fucking textbook on visual design. You've got your inventory, your equips, your nanites, your cyber modules, your weapon, your weapon setting, your ammo selector, your logs, your map, your research, your stats, your skills, your goals, your hopes, your dreams, your secret racist opinions, and your teeth getting knocked out by a mutant with a lead pipe, who you didn't see coming because your vision was covered in bollocks like a monetized YouTube video and you were playing Minesweeper. So you can see how Bioshock was perceived to have dumbed the gameplay down a bit, but in all fairness it had a pretty long way to come down. If a plane adjusts its height from 40,000 to 39,000 feet, the houses on the ground below don't get evacuated quite yet. The thing about System Shock 2 I've found is that I know a lot of people who've played it and have fond memories of it, but virtually none of them could claim to have actually finished it. It's the kind of RPG where you can't fucking blow your nose until you've sunk 8 points into nose blowing, but also some points into research because you can only use the snotty hanky once it's been analysed with the correct chemicals. So you have to be very careful about where you put your experience points, because you'll be about 3 quarters of the way through the game before you get to spin the wheel of arbitrary success and find out if you've been allocating your points sensibly all along. Oh no, looks like you sunk all your points into scratching your bum to get past the itchy trousers section, but they'll never show up again and all the enemies from now on are only weak to nose blowing. Better luck next time! Still, it makes for a rare kind of tension. Yeah, doing the pipe wrench dance with the security robot's kinda hard, but with quick saves and resurrection booths it's more of a wheelchair ramp than a stumbling block. The real tension lies in knowing that these points are never coming back once you've spent them. Oh, the paralyzing agony when an extra point in endurance sounds lovely, but if you just held out a bit longer you could get that one sigh ability that makes alarms time out faster. Wait, what the fuck do you want that for, you idiot? You might as well put all your points into scrotum size and try to bounce your way to victory. Not that the rest of the game isn't tense, with all the creeping down dark hallways, taking gambles on when it is and isn't safe to pop your little cyber hood and piddle about with your interface or listen to one of those audio logs that were all voice acted by whoever happened to be hanging around the office that day who could just about speak without banging their heads on the floor. No sound is more unnerving than the bleep of a security camera spotting you. Snap decision, either jump back into cover or draw your melee weapon and try to running jump smash the fucking thing before the alarm goes off, optionally while screaming BANZAI! So it's a very tense game with very good sound design, at least it does once you've turned off that fucking techno music, but isn't that the beauty of PC games? If something pisses you off you can change it or turn it off or at the very least mod it out. For example, if you think it's a shame the female nurses didn't get their tits out after having their bodies unspeakably violated by forced cyber augmentation, then you'll be pleased to hear that someone created a mod to address that issue. And of course, another someone modded in co-op gameplay at one point, which has happily been included with the Steam release. Of course, I would have been even happier if we could have gotten out of the first room without crashing to desktop. You know, the more of this review I write, the more I wonder why I like System Shock 2 so much. I suppose it's because for all the fiddliness and goddamn double fuck patty on a sesame seed bun weapon degradation, and those weird dark engine physics that feel like you're walking around with your feet trapped in bowling balls, it's a game of dizzying depth in both gameplay and writing. I could spend hours reading the flavour text on all the inventory items until a suicide robot comes up and repaints a bulkhead with me, but I would die content with the knowledge that they'll write something interesting on my tombstone. Don't you just hate using public transport? I think it has to be the second worst method of getting to a place after decapitation catapult, and at least that gives you something to look at. They always smell like someone pissed in a bucket of old pennies, and all the people who work on it look like they were continually assured throughout their childhoods that they were all going to become astronauts when they grew up. And I always find myself having to sit next to the one really weird bloke in a gas mask and combat gear, muttering something about having to go and telepathically communicate with a space monster in mutually unconvincing Russian accents. Well, Ukrainian developer 4A Games is doing its best to improve the popular image of public transport with the Metro series, in which underground train tunnels beneath Moscow are depicted as an ideal place to raise your kids. 24-hour security, a whole three square feet of living space for everyone, a tasty selection of vintage stagnant liquids dripping from the ceiling, and it's still faster than walking, especially when mutated bears have bitten your legs off. Metro 2033 was an adaptation of a Russian novel of the same name concerning a post-nuclear apocalypse scenario 
scenario in which the only survivors were the people who were in the Moscow underground when the bombs hit. Apparently disregarding all the other cities in the world with underground transit systems, but maybe they've all been lost to rampaging hordes of cannibalistic buskers. I did play the first one, but I didn't get around to reviewing it because it was one of those games that's kind of hard to write funny things about, because it was A, really depressing in that characteristic Eastern European sort of way, and B, basically alright. Not pissing in the coin bucket awful, not exactly oiling up my forbidden tunnel either. Metro Last Light is a more or less direct sequel that introduces the innovative addition to gameplay of absolutely bugger all. You alternate between stealthing around enemy soldiers in darkened tunnels or running about the surface with a dinner bell strapped to your back. But thankfully there's none of what made me stop playing the original Metro 2033, that is to say a chapter in which you are obliged to escort an NPC who was abandoned in the wilderness as a baby and raised by kamikaze pilots. So once again we play as Artyom, a not quite silent protagonist because he can speak on loading screens, possibly a social anxiety thing. He's getting along as one of the Metro's protection force and feeling kind of bad about that race of space monsters he blew up in the last game because it turned out they were friendly and killing people was just their way of handing out invitations to the Sunday barbecue, but then someone brings news that one of the space monsters is still alive and this may be the last opportunity Artyom has to apologise and maybe give it a fruit basket. On the way though, Artyom's pursuit of this simple task goes off the rails, off the rails lol, as he is embroiled in a brewing all-out war between the Metro's main factions over who gets to selfishly hog the secret bunker full of cakes and free money, currently being selfishly hogged by Artyom and his mates. Like the original though, this is more the story of a place than any of the people who live in it, and Artyom's alarming tendency to either get captured or rescued by an all-new character at the end of every single chapter fuels a colourful odyssey through location after location in which vertical slices of people's lives are forced down Artyom's gob like he's a travelling gumball machine. Fleeting as many of them are, the characters in Metro are very human. Even the villains have distinct character and complexity with the exception of the main villain, who looks like Grand Moff Tarkin got stabbed in the eye by one of his rape victims. And then there's the Nazis, of course, who are bad because they're Nazis and literally call themselves Nazis. Now that's just not trying, really, is it? But I digress. As you pass through populated tunnels, you'll overhear countless idle conversations in Russian accents of varying conviction, street vendors hawk their wares, couples argue, the children watch puppet shows being put on by slightly suspect old men. It all does a lot to convince us that this is a place where people actually live, not just survive. Sometimes, however, this feels like all setup and no payoff. Every time you reach a new friendly settlement, a sort of Disneyland Pirates of the Caribbean experience takes place, as you move slowly along a linear path looking at all the scenery and set pieces, and half the time you just move straight on to the next bit and never see that place again. It's like if a film had a really long and dramatic establishing shot of the White House, and then cut to a fight in a pub car park on the other side of town. So there's quite a hefty percentage of this game where I feel we're lacking a sense of agency, but when I point that out, the game gets kind of pissy. Oh, you want to feel like you're the master of your own destiny, do you? Fine, go run around on the surface for a bit. So I do that, but then I'm all like, this big winged monster keeps trying to get me to play fetch with my entire body as the stick. Am I supposed to be killing it or just getting the fuck away? Sorry, can't make it any clearer because Mr. Free Will thinks I've been railroading him too much. Railroading lol. The point being that the game is very bad at explaining what the fuck you're supposed to do whenever the answer is anything more complicated than move in such and such direction. What took a particularly annoying number of attempts was a bit towards the end when my sole instruction was to take out the tank. But while the tank's weak spot was completely obvious because it was the part behind intermittently opening and closing armour plating, it didn't actually become a weak spot until I'd shot all the tank's wheels off. Oh yeah, obviously. Should have guessed that the wheels are where the enemy keep all their magic monkey paws and four-leaf clovers. I'd say there's enough to recommend about Metro Last Light, the stealth-focused combat does the job and incidentally to every game that has tried to do stealth and fucked it up. Clear indication of whether or not we're currently visible and a brief delay between being spotted and the alert being sounded. There! That's the secret! Now you'll never fuck it up again! In spite of the sightseeing tour feel, the story and world building drew me in well enough, although it does start to lose me with the pseudo-fantastical bollocks. Archom's hallucinatory vision quest down the magic river was the peak, a peak made of batshit that doesn't do much more than derail the pacing. Derail lol. And finally things get a bit Call of Duty-esque at the very end, when Artyom and Chums have to fight off an invading army, but after everything leading up to it I actually understood who we were fighting and what the stakes were, in contrast to the average spunk gargle wee wee method, dropping you into a random war zone with the half-hearted assurance that everyone with a foreign accent must have done something to deserve it. Oh god, don't give this game to a modern warfare player. Whatever you do, five minutes surrounded by Russian accents they're not allowed to shoot at and they'll chew their own arms off.
The current situation is the sort of thing that a corporate press release would describe as a challenging time for console manufacturers in the same sense that a tube with barbed wire down it presents a challenging time for a prison inmate's asshole. Console gaming is going through a strange and slightly traumatic graduation and no one seems to know what it's going to do with its life after this. Maybe it'll get a job and build a future, maybe it'll move back in with its parents, or maybe it'll just drink a load of methylated spirits and have a little snooze on the floor of a subway car. I figure it's time for a rundown of the candidates now that all three have at the very least made some kind of awkward stammering announcement of their console. So far it's been like watching the most retarded game of Texas Hold'em ever played, where everyone just sat and eyeballed each other for six months before someone finally called in the most weaselly non-committed way possible in the hopes it would make someone else show their hand. Whereupon the flop cards were revealed to be a joker, a get out of jail free, and a mages at the vineyard from Magic the Gathering. Of course the odd man out is Nintendo as ever, and keeping with the poker metaphor, they were dealt a pair of twos right at the start and immediately went all in motherfuckers, only to realise later that one of the twos was actually a four that had been partially covered by a big fat touchscreen controller someone had left on the table. There's not much more that needs to be said about the Wii U, suffice to say that everyone's trying to find some innovation to keep themselves alive, but Nintendo's innovative idea to have a console with no sodding games doesn't seem to have paid off as well as they hoped. Maybe it could still come back if it brought out the usual suspects, but even Mario has a shelf life, and recently a critical blow was dealt when someone at EA unguardedly mentioned that they weren't making any games for it, because if they have to bring water to a dying man in the desert, then giving some to the one with no arms or legs who refuses to stop eating crisps might be a bit of a waste. EA did backtrack on that remark though, perhaps realising that before you burn a bridge it might be smarter to wait and make sure the other two bridges aren't going to spontaneously combust. Which brings us to the first of the two enigmatic candidates, the PS4, announced earlier this year, although announced might be too charitable a word because they didn't reveal the console or the price or the release date or much of anything really. Besides the new controller, which they were really excited about because they came up with the idea of a dedicated annoy all your friends button. As I said, everyone's trying to find a way to innovate because previously you'd sell a console by showing that it lets you play bigger and better games and that's not going to work this time because the increasingly inefficient ways AAA games are made is only making them blander and blingier. Next gen can't even bring itself to pretend that if all you want to do is play the best games available then you should stick with current gen or buy a PC especially since everyone's shunning backwards compatibility like it's a physically able person trying to enter the Special Olympics. So instead, Sony is throwing its eggs into the social media basket for the sake of a USP, with the ability to instantly show your friends what you're doing and even let them take control. So the PS4 is for people not only unconcerned about having the best games, but also don't particularly want to play the fucking things. This is like a hairdresser buying up all the advertising space in a cancer ward. Surely if someone has sat down and turned on their PS4, it's because they want to play something, not watch someone else play something. If I was trying to enjoy a game and some prick kept pestering me to watch them play twat bandits 4 and maybe fight the final boss for them because they can't be asked. I'd tell them to fuck off. Any chance of getting a dedicated fuck off button on the controller, Sony? You can also record video footage and upload it to YouTube, which has a consumer of Let's Play videos you might think I support, but the important question for me is to what degree one is permitted to edit the footage, because this will mean the difference between Sony enabling a culture of criticism and Sony just trying to get everyone to do their marketing for them. And I think we already know which one Sony would prefer, because it is a console manufacturer, which in the current climate is an entity with the demeanour of a cornered wolf and the financial stability of a tin mine in a supernova. If it came down to a snarling fight for pack dominance at this point, I'd probably bet on Microsoft because it seems to be the slightly more desperate of the two. The Xbox One then, which gratifyingly everyone was already calling the X-Bone by the end of announcement day. An announcement day that seemed a trifle premature because nobody at Microsoft seemed to have a clue what this big black ring binder of a console actually does. First it was going to be always on, then it wasn't, then it has to call home once a day or else Microsoft won't pay the ransom. First pre-owned games wouldn't work, then they would, but only if you paid a fee, then you can only install them if you pay a fee. Why is the seller of an alleged entertainment system being as evasive as James Murdoch at a select committee. What we do know is that you can't use it without internet, you can't play 360 games, you can't use 360 controllers, you can't use an SDTV, you can't turn the fucking Kinect off so it will permanently stare at you from the corner of your living room, occasionally licking its pencil and taking notes on your preferred wank material. This is starting to sound more like a can't soul than a can soul. And that's just one letter away from a can't soul. Oh, but the Kinect needs to be on all the time so it knows when you're barking orders at it. But I want to feel comfortable talking about the Xbox in front of it. I might unguardedly say, I 
hope Xbox doesn't nuke the Chinese, and then who knows what might happen. And I continue to argue that all these motion controls and Star Trek teal grey hot mechanisms still require more effort with less reliability than moving a fingertip half a centimetre to press a button. You know, video game consoles didn't always need marketing events that resemble political rallies because they basically sold themselves. Here's a thing that lets you play fun games, they would say. Which games, we would ask. These ones, they would reply. Ooh, those do look fun, we'd conclude. Now the same statement has so many asterisks next to it that it looks like a fucking constellation map. The only reason a console would need a fucking spin doctor would be if it benefited the corporation selling it a fuckload of a lot more than it would anyone buying the fucking thing. Or anyone who just wants to play fun games. At this point, I personally would only buy a next-gen console if it had an exclusive game I really, really wanted to play, but it would not be a healthy consumer product relationship. It would not be a console providing access to something I want. It would be a console holding something I want hostage, until I give it my Wi-Fi password and credit card details. So to summarise this buyer's guide to next-gen consoles, don't. Hey Valve, you know I love you guys, love you a lot more if you released a fucking game now and then, but you've got a lot to answer for for starting the whole four-player co-op shooter thing. One of the common models of choice for the money-powered emotionless robots who have integrated into human society as game producers. I know four is the maximum number of people who can play split-screen at once, but it's a troublesome number to have to work with. As they say, two's company, three's a crowd, four is awkward to get through a narrow doorway. Well, like it or not, four-player co-op shooters are a genre, and where there's genre, there's generic, which brings me to Fuse, a game that was called Overstrike when it was first announced, but was apparently renamed in some excruciating rehauling process when I guess it wasn't turning out as mind-blowingly innovative as that title would imply. Must take a lot of determination to coincide a game with not one but two spirited attempts at the Guinness World Record for most generic title for a shooter in the history of the universe. If only they could have channeled that into the actual game. Still, it comes to us from Insomniac Games, and their previous shooter, Resistance 3, managed to reach the dizzy heights of basically okay, so Overfuse had some big, well, slightly more than sensibly proportioned shoes to fill. We are introduced to Overstrike, a team of four mercenaries on diverse ends of the gender-racial spectrum who are all jaded ex-something rather veterans, despite none of them being older than 30. They're helicoptered into a classified government research facility to recover classified weapons tech. <sighs> Sorry, Fuse, you're not boring me. I was just up late last night. Please, continue with your crap story. Well, the weapons tech gets stolen by an evil altogether now private military corporation with seemingly limitless funding resources and personnel who all wear full body armor all the time, including face covering helmets you'd think by rights they wouldn't be able to see out of. Our heroes must overcome their jaded cynicism and cynical jadedness to do the right thing and save the world from the evil PMC before they can make up their bloody mind whether they're going to sell the stolen technology to the highest bidder or just blow up the world with it. You know what, Fuse, I take it back. You are boring me. Perhaps it was a good idea to not name the game after the main characters, and indeed to employ box art that literally cuts off the main character's heads so that the focus can be on the guns. The reason why I suggested thinking twice before you pledge yourself to four-player co-op is that if you do that, you need to come up with enough personality traits to go around four characters, and Fuse, by my estimate, only has enough for one character and maybe also a dog. There's a cartoonishly big white dude who used to work for the evil PMC. He's about as well-rounded as it gets, and I'm not talking about his upper arms. <laughs> Then there's girl character A, who harbours daddy issues like a paddling pool harbours an ocean liner, and despite deliberately estranging herself from her father, now has no motivation in life other than finding him again so he can finally take her to Disney World or something. Then there's girl character B, who explains her entire character at one point with the three words I hate people, but never says or does anything that might express such feeling. She shoots a lot of people, but then who doesn't? And finally, black man, who's just happy to be here. When these four powder cake personalities rub together on the battlefield, the result is the kind of explosive chemistry matched only by a big piece of wood in a pond. There's something slightly surreal about playing a game single player when it's obviously designed for co-op, it's like getting through an average day with your wallet, phone and keys tied around the necks of three dogs, who hang back and stare at you gormlessly while you clear out the room, at which point they all run over to the door to the next room, waggling their tails in anticipation of walkies. Although one way the single player gets spiced up a bit is that you can switch between the four characters, Clive Barker's Jericho style. Ugh, I just thought about Clive Barker's Jericho, thanks a lot, Fuse. It's not a winning feature, because I ended up using the same character the whole way through anyway, and the few interesting aspects of combat depend upon characters working in conjunction. For example, many rooms suggest 
stealth killing as many guards as you can before resorting to all-out firefight, like it's taped a slice of processed ham to its chest and said feel our many different textures, but to do that to any significant degree you need to be able to take out more than one guy simultaneously because they're all looking at each other, and in single player the three AI partners just sit around the entrance of the room sniffing each other's butts. The other thing that makes me think of Clive Barker's that thing I said earlier, besides being stuck with the old Hobson's choice of which twat blast to possess next, is that every character has a different magic gun with different effects. Desperate Dan has a magic shield and everyone else has guns that make people die if you keep pointing them correctly. Well, maybe I'd be less dismissive of them if the rest of the game wasn't so bloody boring. It's one of those games that can't think of any way to curve the difficulty up as it goes except to just keep increasing the number of enemies. Eight hours in, I was only on mission five because every mission is tortuously stretched out into room after room after room of inexhaustible supplies of dudes with way too much health who just keep spawning and spawning and talking in run-on sentences. The environment stopped making sense. One mission allegedly takes place in someone's safe house, but the place resembles a fucking Space Emperor's villa. Ah, the only man-made structure visible from the moon. That'll make a good hiding place. Playing Fuse is like having a conversation with a really thick person. Alright Fuse, what have you got for me? Cover-based shooting! Yeah, that's pretty evident. What else have you got? I don't get ya. Well, cover-based shooting is more of a connecting element than a central one. What do you have besides cover-based shooting? You could stand up. If I stood up, would I get shot? Yes. I could just as easily be describing the enemy AI there, actually. There's one bit where there's two different factions of enemy soldiers fighting each other and their firefights were the most retarded spectacle in the history of warfare. There were about half a dozen buggers on each team, standing on opposite sides of the room, surrounded by cover but all standing upright, perfectly still, and firing incessantly in each other's faces. And because they all had so much health and their bullets were so piss-wig, this went on for minutes until one bloke thought to lob a grenade, like an elderly man playing bowls on a lawn. What should we do to counteract the shit AI, guys? I know, let's spawn twice as many of the fuckers, that'll sort it out. Spawning more dudes doesn't solve anything, Fuse, except maybe an unsatisfactory sex life. I've heard it said that you should name a video game the same way you name a dog. It needs to be snappy and memorable, and it shouldn't be anything you'd feel weird about yelling across a public park when it tries to run off and chase the ducks. And if you talk about it in conversation, it shouldn't sound like you're trying to change the subject, as in, what have you been playing this week, Yahtzee? Remember me? Of course I remember you. You're the bloke who keeps sitting at my bar pretending not to ogle everything that walks in wearing a skirt. Of course, the other thing you have to worry about when naming a video game is not to call it something that games journalists can twist into snarky headlines like, remember me? Kind of forgettable. Arf, arf. Before running off to write slobbering breaking news posts revealing that the dog in Call of Duty Ghosts will have real-time duck-chasing gameplay, which is irritating because Remember Me deserves some props for at least trying, bless its heart, for doing a few things really rather well, and also for the splendid bum on the cover. I like to pretend that the bum is the one speaking the title aloud. Remember Me! Certainly will! So what we have here is a third-person brawler but also puzzly with climby bits and oh fine, let's just call it action-adventure. In the future, science has finally stopped worrying about how to make pieces of toast land the right side up and has figured out how to digitize human memory, so everyone can delete the bad ones holding them back and relive the nice ones, but then the people go crazy for it in ways Apple can only dream of, and the society of Neo-Paris, no seriously, becomes divided between blinkered luxury and appalling poverty under the watch of your standard breed of evil megacorporation. The one that somehow runs the government justice system, media, salvation army, ice cream vans, etc. You play Nilin, who is a memory hunter, apparently some mix of MMA fighter and librarian with a posh accent and stupid haircut, who escapes from prison with the help of Edge, revolutionary leader and former U2 guitarist because only she can help him bring down the hated Aristos. So the experience can be summed up as a triangle formed by the three points of Mirror's Edge, Beyond Good and Evil and Total Recall and a big shapely bum sticking out the middle. Now, when you establish early on that the central theme of the plot is the mucking about with memories, you might as well erect a big neon sign over it saying, there's gonna be a twist. When we also learn that the main character has amnesia and that nobody seems to know where she came from, that sets off like five alarm bells that some revelation 
question about our identity is due. Don't tell me, Edge from U2 is only interested in us because we're the illegitimate daughter of Bono and Bono's wank doll that looks like Bono. Then we learn that Nilin has the unique ability not just to extract memories, but to change them, so I guess we're bringing Inception to the mix as well. In fact, this drives the game's most interesting mechanic, where you have to scan back and forth through someone's memory of their life's defining moments, looking for small elements to alter so that they remember the event differently, and it fundamentally changes their personality. It's clever and well-implemented, I just wish we did it more than like four times in the entire course of the game. And its presence adds another 12 or so alarm bells to the cacophony. Oh yeah, big old twist coming. Your entire memory is probably false and you did it to yourself out of shame of being related to Bono or something. So the plot was just yodeling, twist, 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 like a mountaintop pretzel shack, and I felt kind of taken out of the story as I played Spot the Foreshadowing the whole way through, and I was already more lingering on the doorstep of the story than actually inside the thing. Visually, the game is very striking with a sort of clean, white, medically sterile aesthetic. Even the main character's name, Nilin, sounds like a brand of prescription medication. But the connectivity between locations is very shaky, probably because between every mission we cut to Nilin standing around in the Doctor Who opening titles, blabbering on about what's happening off camera and how she feels about it before jumping abruptly ahead to the next mission. Maybe it would help if Nilin could make up her bloody mind whether she's tough or fragile, half the time talking in a voice quavering with emotion, like she's watching Grave of the Fireflies in a wind tunnel, and the other half saying things like, this little red riding hood's got a basket full of kick-ass. That is a direct quote, and I'm going to leave it dangling here like a corpse on a gibbet while we consider that someone charged actual money to write it. Christ. The combat's quite interesting. I often wonder why no one's had a build-your-own-combo feature since God Hand, because it was a really neat idea in God Hand, but Remember Me has one, featuring the additional neat idea of having blows, or pressens, another name that sounds like a prescription medication, that restore your health when they land, so you can turn the tide of battle by slotting a bunch of those into your quick combos and enjoying a healing, nutritious banquet of knuckle sandwiches. However, the room-by-room punch-ups do tend to get a bit samey and arduous. With the slower soldier enemies, you end up just going through your custom Tai Chi sequences upon helpless, stun-locked meatheads who endlessly drool out the same three faintly misogynistic taunts right up to taking a fisty siesta, and with the faster mutant enemies, you can barely get past your opening nose twigs and nipple cripples before having to dodge out of the way of four other attackers. Being able to continue a combo after dodging is quite nice, but what isn't nice are the enemies that require multiple uses of super attacks to defeat, so you have to jump around dodging for two minutes waiting for the cooldown, but then there are some combo presents that reduce cooldowns. Um, uh, fine, let's just give the combat a B overall, yeah? Remember Me is perhaps overly ambitious and is so excited about its new ideas that it can hardly breathe. The memory editing feature could have carried a game by itself, the build your own combos could have carried a game by itself. Having to share space leaves them both a bit lacking the room to grow, like a pair of ginger twins who kind of creep everyone out. The story's ideas are above average, but at the same time presented bagly and muddily and failing to make the most of the main points like a badly constructed tent. For a while it makes a big thing out of how morally questionable Nilin is shaping up to be. Yeah, none of the villains behave like they'd be terribly out of place going up against Captain Planet, but rewriting their personalities does carry some dodgy issues of manipulating free will, leaving aside the whole pummeling people into unconsciousness thing. And while she acts up a storm about it, at the end Nilin's basically like, bah, what can you do? And closure for this arc is lost. Finally, without wishing to spoil, the twists I came up with were way better than the ones the plot actually had. Not that I'm spoiling that there's a twist. Maybe the twist is that there is no twist, you just don't know. Maybe the twist is that this video doesn't end two words from now. Double twist! Hey, who's excited for the cavalcade of cutting-edge entertainment announced at this year's E3? Cockheads, since you ask. Although it was interesting to see the paddling pool levels of strategy on display. I know everyone was talking about what a great victory it was for Sony, but in all fairness, I think Microsoft did most of the work for them. It was like Microsoft walked out onto the stage of the International Don't Fuck Up Championship and proceeded to shiv itself in the stomach 30 times while screaming, It's for your own good! It's for your own good! Then Sony came out and said, I don't want to stab myself in the stomach, that shit hurts. Whereupon fucking confetti exploded from the ceiling and they're handed the sickest burn in the history of the universe trophy. It was savvy of them to spend 
their airtime pointing and laughing at the competition because it meant they didn't have to explain what's in it for us, the gamers, to keep supporting the console war concept, with all its anti-consumer exclusivity and insistence on flashier graphics to the continued detriment of actual gameplay and SHUT UP MICROSOFT RAPES FISH! You know, I thought Microsoft would backtrack during the show, not a week later, but I guess it's hard for actual human beings to be heard among a staff largely consisting of blood-drinking lizard people from beyond the stars. Besides that, the show was one of fairly predictable movements, not least of which those made by Nintendo. They're kind of like a tarantula, except instead of urticating hairs, they throw their IP at people when threatened. Same thing happened with the Wii, there are signs of stagnation, so it's down to the stables to attach fresh jump leads to the usual dead horses. New Zelda, new Mario. Oh, he can be a Catman now. Press A to curl up and lick your own testicles. You know, like Nintendo's entire fucking company strategy. I did wonder if they'd actually do another Smash Brothers, because it would have to have new characters, and Nintendo comes up with new characters with the same frequency that Vesuvius erupts. I mean, Wii Fit Trainer? That feels like a fucking April Fool's joke. It's like entering a mannequin at a Miss World competition. Alright, bad example. Surely the obvious addition would have been Bayonetta, since she's gone all Wii U exclusive on us, but I suppose her pole-dancing pubic hair crotch thrusting might lead to an awkward conversation between Mario and the princess later that night. Anyway, game trailers. I must say, it's nice to see an increase in actual gameplay videos over pre-rendered trailers, which as we all know by now are about as much use in terms of information as showing us the shrink wrap they intend to put around the box. Which is good for us, but not so much for the publishers, as it tends to reveal things they might have preferred we not know about this early. Rise springs to mind. Up until I saw that video, I thought the spunk gargle Wii Wii problem was unique to modern shooters, but there it is. Dragged along a linear progression of predetermined barely interactive set pieces through overcrowded war scenes so noisy and chaotic they become totally meaningless, so many NPCs that any contribution you're making is negligible at best, and no context for who you are or who you're slaughtering, except that you are obviously the aggressor and considerably better equipped. The purest essence of spunk gargle wee wee sloshing about in ancient Rome like the sewer outside the brothel backed up. Now all we need is a derisive pun. Medal of Roma? H.E. and Warfighter? Corligula of Duty? Return to Castle Vulcanstein? I'll work on it. Metal Gear Solid 5 colon The Phantom Pain colon Tactical Espionage Operations was another game maligned by its own gameplay video, as well as a title longer than the queue for the toilet at the muesli tasting convention. The footage of Snake and Bake, or whatever his codename is now, trotting through a vast desert on a horse was repeatedly fast-forwarded. Why was that, MGS5? Because the bits we fast-forwarded over were boring. But presumably you can't fast-forward over them in the actual game. No. So the actual game will be boring then? Yes. Tell me, did you feel you had to pad it out because you were afraid the runtime will be half over by the time the player has finished reading the title? Metal Gear Solid has gone open world, you see. And if there was a motto for this convention, it might as well have been such and such has gone open world, as in Mirror's Edge 2 has gone open world. And much as we'd like to illustrate that fact in the debut trailer, we'd rather just waste time reminding you of how shit the combat was in the first one, and will continue to be in the second. What's that? You were hoping to see some of the free-running gameplay in the free-running game? Well, hope into one hand, shit into the other, and see which one fills up first, motherfucker. Speaking of open world, Dead Rising is a series of about zombie horror made fun by cleverly juxtaposing it against bright colours and wacky violence. What was that? Colour? Cleverness? Fun? Not on Xbox Ones, watch! Stomp, stomp, stomp. Now eat this handful of gravel and paint yourself brown and let's have a bit less of that lip. Also, you have to kill zombies with artillery strikes now because everything that is not Call of Duty is not Call of Duty enough. The alternative motto for this E3 may have been, don't fret, next gen will be just as bland and shooty as the current one. I mean, they were showing off Destiny like it was the most exciting development since Crispy Mint M&Ms. Look at our wonderful skybox. Look at how cutting edge lighting effects play upon an unprecedented palette of browns and greys. Look at how we squeeze you down a linear path like a stubborn turd in a hose pipe. No wait, don't look at that. Look at the skybox again! Similar sentiments can be made about most of what else passed for new IP, like Division or that Order 1886 thing. Ooh, a Victorian setting, that's interesting. I know, right? But actually, it's a steampunk setting so that we can use standard FPS weapons and NEVER MIND! Now surely there are some things you like the look of, Yahtzee. I know you like to project a curmudgeonly facade, but we know all about those hearts made of pasta shapes you sent to Valve. Maybe there were, but the point of these annual sessions is to mitigate the damage already done by the insidious hype machine. So to that end, I'm going to ruin two things I did like the look of. Sunset 
Sunset Overdrive may be wearing the same kind of appealing mixture of styles that Dead Rising has dropped like a hot depleted uranium potato, but the trailer was pre-rendered and it's an Xbox One exclusive, so it's both unreliable and tainted by original sin. Secondly, in a game trailer's preview for new horror IP The Evil Within, the dude selling it says that not being able to see the floor adds to the atmosphere. You what? I'm thinking back to all my favourite atmospheric games and I don't remember thinking, man, it's lucky I can see the floor or I'd be fucking terrified. You know what does help atmosphere though? Subtlety! Not decorating every room by throwing giblets at the ceiling fan. Or chasing us down a linear hallway with a chainsaw before we've even put our keys on the table by the door. Right, that'll do. Just to be safe though, I'd better go and pound an icicle into my balls. Oh, right. <clears throat> The author wishes it to be known that the bulk of this video was written before the Microsoft DRM backtrack, and he now thinks that games exclusive to Xbox One are no more tainted by original sin than those exclusive to other consoles. He regrets now having to fall back on less popular arguments against next-gen consoles, such as their blind insistence on empty spectacle above all else to make AAA development all the more elitist and prohibitively expensive, the systematic erasure of console gaming history one generation at a time, the flagrantly anti-consumer culture of artificial exclusivity that has created a world in which games are expected to support consoles, in which artwork exists to serve a medium on which artwork is presented, as if the words of a great novel exist to serve paper, or a great film exists to serve a piece of wall onto which it has been projected, and so on and so on and so on. Popular culture in recent years has handled zombie apocalypse the way Kurt Cobain handled the smack. I can see the appeal, why bother coming up with ways to make us sympathise with the character's personal struggles and motivations when you can just burn all their stuff in the first five minutes? And that's fine, I suppose, but I wish they'd stop dancing around it. Oh no, these aren't zombies, they're infected, there's a difference. They're created by breathing in these mind-altering fungal spores, which can also be transmitted by bite because of reasons. And you just want to grab popular culture by the lapels and scream, Will you and zombie apocalypses just fuck already? Either let it plug your every available orifice or start making moony eyes at something else for a change. It's like watching a pair of wallflowers on prom night. Hey, here's a fun game. Who do you think the title The Last of Us means by us? Because I'll tell you who it doesn't mean. Human beings. There's shitloads of those. It could refer to psychopaths because by the end of the game the main characters have laboriously reduced the world's psychotic bastard population down to pretty much just themselves. The rather effective prologue chapter for The Last of Us starts with a little girl waking up alone in a house at night and transitions naturally to full-on zombie Mardi Gras by the end. Sorry, simultaneous respiratory and blood-borne encephalitic fungus-infected Mardi Gras. The next 20 years are too depressing to show us, but afterwards leading man Joel is middle-aged and getting by as a smuggler in a safe zone controlled by soldiers. But the definitions of the words smuggler and soldier both seem to have drifted over to murderer. You'd think with the population reduction human life would carry a bit more value these days, but apparently not. Yes, life in the future is cheaper than Christmas cake in mid-January. Even the people we are asked to support will cap a motherfucker whenever they can't think of a snappy comeback quickly enough. While out murdering people one day, Joel runs into a resistance group who were trying to murder some soldiers in retaliation for them murdering too much and ended up getting murdered right back. And Joel is tasked with escorting a mysterious young girl to a less murdered segment of the resistance. Astonishingly, Naughty Dog have actually started a new IP without waiting for a new console for once, and perhaps the high profile achieved by the Uncharted games has led them to feel they have to make whatever the video game equivalent of Oscar bait is. So it wants to be this big serious exercise in character development, but it's also very, very safe. For a started zombie apocalypse, which as I said is to most people already a more familiar setting than the 1980s, and in gameplay terms it's mostly that basically functional hodgepodge of stealth, cover shooting and scripted set pieces that a lot of big AAA releases have gone for lately, while wearing the ever-vague action-adventure t-shirt. Like Uncharted but without the climbing and with the shooting rolled back in favour of stealth and the inexplicably functional ancient puzzle mechanisms replaced by finding the right bit of wall to prop a ladder against. Alright, not hugely like Uncharted. I like the lack of objective markers, necessitating exploration of the semi-linear environments, although this did lead to me at one point using half my inventory to bypass a bunch of super zombies in order 
order to access a room that turned out to contain only a dead end, a smoke bomb, and a tin of apricots in syrup. And incidentally, if I had to pick one of those three things to throw at the enemy, I'd start with the apricots and then see if I can wangle enough earth-moving equipment to give the dead end a try, because smoke bombs are useless. What's the point in temporarily distracting enemies when you're carrying 19 other things that could permanently remove the problem? You don't bring pepper spray to a murder fight. The enemies go back and forth between swarms of infected and what must surely be the most densely populated bandit communities in the history of fictional apocalypse, and while I died quite a few times, roughly 99% of those were because of the bloody super zombies and their delightful instant kill attack. I get that we're supposed to be careful, but I didn't think having my jugular vein nuzzled out by the human cauliflower was appropriate punishment for the sin of using an attack that the human cauliflower has arbitrarily decided doesn't work, like a schoolboy calling upon his everything-proof shield, or the sin of moving faster than a beached whale because this is my fifth go and I've got shit to do. Meanwhile, the human enemies all went to the same school as the Uncharted enemies, where they were taught that being an asshole makes you bulletproof and to attack with the self-preservation instincts of a chocolate biscuit on a coffee cup scuba diving holiday. But in fairness, most of the friendly NPCs who fight alongside you went to an equivalent school and their AI makes about as much sense. In one firefight, I saw a bloke on my side glide randomly around the combat arena with his gun outstretched, occasionally turning to look at me as if daring me to suggest a more effective strategy. Fortunately, while in stealthy mode, enemies seem to be hard-coded not to notice anyone other than the player. So Ellie, the plot-vital sidekick escort girl, can motorboat all the hostile buttocks she desires without ruining your tactics. But while the alternative would have been annoying, if monsters look straight past her like she's selling the big issue, then she isn't a factor in gameplay, neither significant benefit nor additional challenge. So why is she even here? For the story, yes, but story should inform gameplay. Personally, I'd have gone the Resident Evil 4 route. Enemies can affect her, but you can make her hide in a dumpster with a bag of crisps while you sort out the grown-up stuff. I guess the story is the selling point, but while it is well presented, it's also fairly predictable. And I think depending on how your mind works, the ending may completely lose you, because it did me. Naughty Dog games have a bad habit of dehumanizing every character except the leads for no particular reason besides fuck you, got mine. Spoiler warning, I suppose, before you all jump up my butt like my colon is a water slide. By the end, Joel and Ellie have both done things that make even the murdering seem like a single skid mark on a sewage outflow pipe, and I just stopped sympathizing. Maybe that was the point, fighty not monsters and all that, but them just getting away with it at the end felt anticlimactic. It really seemed like fuck you, got mine is the only message we take away from the story. And come to think of it, that might as well have been the tagline for the Uncharted series. Well, I know which developer I wouldn't want to be stuck on a desert island with. EA might charge me for use of the fishing rod, but at least they won't bash my skull in and have sassy dialogues about how my brain looks. You don't see a lot of straight comedy AAA games these days, do you? Like your Monkey Islands, or your Conker's Bad Fur Day, or your Kane and Lynch 2. Oh, you'll see a lot of comedy bits in AAA games, but on the whole they treat humour like kids poking at roadkill with a very long stick. None of them ever want to scrape the roadkill up and try wearing it like a scarf. They'll put on a silly hat while browsing the shops, but then they'll hear a low, oscillating drone and go, the mothership is calling us, we must return to design grey-brown industrial areas and put glowy bits on somebody's armour. Comedy, go with the AAA purse string holders. Nah, there'd be more money in a game about an already popular character who shoots people a lot. How about Deadpool? He's a popular comic book character who shoots people a lot. Great, here's some money. Haha, -ha, fooled you, AAA purse string holder. Deadpool is also a comedy character. Doh, you wily sods. Of course, when I say comedy, I mean a mixture of non-sequitur and smarmy self-reference often mistaken for comedy by the same sort of people who describe themselves as random. A bunny with a pancake. Yeah, that was pretty random. Well done. I can be random too. Listen, fuck off, you perennial shit stain. Oh, sorry, I did that wrong. Deadpool is a comedy character from superhero comics, and superhero comics do comedy the same way superhero comics comics do action, drama, costume design, and pretty much everything, overdoing it to the point of meaninglessness. So Deadpool underwent his standard comic book and ethical lab experiments and acquired his standard comic book suite of superpowers, but it also drove him crazy. So he was sectioned under the Mental Health Act and spent the rest of his life being shifted from care home to care home, mumbling to himself and playing with his own shit. Not really, that wouldn't be funny. Actually, he's the fun kind of crazy who acts wildly inappropriately and he uses the word tear instead of the. Deadpool the game is basically a prolonged opportunity for Deadpool to fanny about, channeling Bugs Bunny, infuriating other more 
more sensible characters from the Marvel Universe and accidentally getting embroiled in a token effort to end the token schemes of a token villain called... Ugh, Mr. Sinister. The kind of ninth grade character Marvel Comics would have been willing to let be humiliated for this kind of project. You know, perhaps the reason why AAA doesn't do comedy is because AAA is all about repetition, and comedy and repetition get along like a quipping cartoon mouse in a tarantula habitat. Deadpool has what I have come to call the Spider-Man video game syndrome in that they try to bring across the character's effervescent personality by having him regularly throw out an appropriate quip every now and again in combat. But the trouble with that is it really doesn't take long to have heard every line from the small pool of quips, and then the pool has no more life in it. It is a dead pool. And the lines that were funny once at best go from being merely flat to excruciatingly annoying. Being repetitively funny is the lost cause for which Family Guy has constantly fought a losing battle, but I never said Deadpool is completely unfunny. To go back to an earlier metaphor, Family Guy takes the roadkill of comedy, drops it in the middle of the living room, and commands us to sit and watch it as it gathers flies and its stench soaks into the carpet, whereas Deadpool understands that the best way to counteract the witlessness of its humour is to keep a fast enough pace that we can't think about it for very long. In the non-repeated cutscenes, Deadpool takes that roadkill and runs from room to room smacking people with it, ruining their formal dresses and making burbling noises with his mouth. So the humour comes together when the game's sprinting between zany madcap set pieces, but when the pace drops, well I wouldn't say it falls apart exactly, but if it were a cake, I wouldn't trust it to cleanly transfer to a serving platter, I tell you that. The environments are mostly sewers, ruined buildings and industrial areas, the holy trinity of boring environment design, but I suppose this is the point where we start throwing around the word irony in blatant disregard for its actual meaning. The excessive violence probably falls under the same banner, but the thing about ironic excessive violence in video games is that it's kind of indistinguishable from standard operating procedure, and Deadpool's combat gameplay is about as bog-standard as kitchen sink hack-and-slash gets. Light attack, strong attack, dodge, counter combo, there's a slower melee weapon and a faster melee weapon in case you're some kind of on-call heart surgeon and your time is really bloody important, and for guns, pistols, shotguns and SMGs. I'm pretty sure the new Microsoft Word will create the design document for this if you just press shift Control f 5 I'm not saying it's not functional, even fun, controversially, it tends to go back and forth between being cathartically simple and frustratingly hard, a factor that usually comes down to how many twatting bastardy pancakes this is random humour, hope everyone's enjoying it, enemies with guns there are in a mostly melee fight. The ones who keep backing up when you're trying to stab them like they don't want chunky style marmalade instead of reproductive organs. But a standard boss fight is just a normal sized dude in a stupid outfit, and a final boss fight might go so far as to have four normal sized dudes in stupid outfits. If there were any game where the ending to Metal Gear Rising might have fit, it'd be this one. Where's Deadpool's giant robot spider fight, and shirtless wrestling match with Senator Super Saiyan 7? It just seems like the story is trying to be all self-aware and parodic of video games and tweak the nose of all those righteous stuffed spandex types that run around in superhero comics taking things seriously all over the place, but then the cutscenes end and the mechanics are all like, alright, you've had your fun. Now stand in a room and fight 20 more guys. Look, if you hit them hard enough they explode. See, we can be fun. Basically, if you took out Deadpool the character and everything that comes with it, then what's left is unadventurous at best, but then that explains why they didn't title it the Marvel Universe Hacky Slashy Ruin Buildings Fun Time Hour. So it's possible Deadpool will carry it for you, there's still a lot of room for comedy games that employ actual wit, like Portal, rather than ones that just run up and shout banana at people, but if you like Deadpool from the comic books then you'll be pleased to hear he makes the transition fairly unscathed, which is more than the film industry would do. Hey comic books, why don't you stop hopping into that big cold film industry bed and come snuggle up by the fire with games on a more permanent basis? You know all he can offer is Green Lanterns and Catwomans and he's just gonna waft you out like a Dutch oven the moment you stop making money. We'll never ask you to change for us. The Arkham games will let you have all the dumb villains you can come up with. Oh don't be like that baby, Superman 64 was years ago. Imagine what it would be like to have your body taken over by some strange alien intelligence but 
with you still being alive and conscious inside, silently screaming and staring out your own eyes as your limbs move by themselves and your voice speaks words that are not your own. Imagine then that instead of trying to undermine the human race or sex up your wife, your mysterious puppeteer instead made you do really innocuous things like bum around the house in slippers, do a bit of gardening, make some oat biscuits and go out of your way to avoid having sex with your wife. That's basically what playing Animal Crossing New Leaf is like. A weird mix of entrapment, Sunday tea time banality and staring existential horror, not unlike daytime television. The higher part of your brain can see how utterly asinine the experience is, but it's just getting dragged along for the ride like a bunch of helium balloons tied to a wonky supermarket trolley. Sure, lower part of the brain, a blue tiled roof probably would solve our constant crushing sense of emptiness. Oh god, stop! Animal Crossing is a property that started life on the GameCube and was somewhat before its time because it was a Facebook game before Facebook games were a thing. The premise of New Leaf is that upon arriving at a randomly chosen coastal village of animal people, the locals welcome you as the new mayor they'd been expecting. Something you had no knowledge of, but all the paperwork checks out and even references you by name. Already I'm getting a creepy sort of Patrick McGoohan in the prisoner vibe from all this. Like I'm going to wake up one night and find the koala man from two doors down standing at the foot of my bed maintaining unblinking eye contact as he unhinges his jaw and swallows a live guinea pig. But now that you're the mayor, as opposed to the random jack-off you were in previous games, you have a responsibility to manage the prettiness of the suburb and decide what new features to build for the benefit of a handful of random number generators in colourful costumes. And since all the random number generators are unemployed, unless faffing about is a job, in which case they're fucking workaholics, you have to pay for pretty much all of it. Still, it's a useful way to launder the money you make from your illegal unregistered fish farm. It's a very bleak experience. A life-catching fish might seem idyllic, but do you think you're ever going to eat them? Have a little fish fry and piss up on the beach with all your pals? No, the moment your inventory's full, it's straight down to the pawn shop to flog the lot. Oh, thank you for this thoughtful gift of a lovely sofa, Goose Woman. Doesn't go with my place, but it would just look perfect at the pawn shop. Oh, what a beautiful butterfly. The morning dew beading like perfect jewels on its multicolour. Don't care, pawn shop! Give me my bells, I'm in deep to the raccoon mob. The raccoon moneylender who gives you your home loan being the local mafia don is the obvious Animal Crossing joke, but what's stuck out at me in New Leaf is that once you've paid off one loan, he doesn't upgrade your house and put you in more debt until you specifically ask him to. But that's worse. Radiohead put it best. You do it to yourself, badow-dow, and that's what really hurts. Go, run back to your newly paid for house, lie upon your bed and listen to the ticking of the clock. You'll break. You'll be back at the house shop inside 24 hours. Paying off that loan was the only reason you got up in the morning, went fishing, exchanged the time of day with the local brightly coloured dullards. Existing with nothing to strive for is no existence at all. A life free of debt? You naive fool. Debt is your life. The obnoxious thing about Animal Crossing for me is that I'm the kind of guy who likes to play a game for six hours and then hook myself up to a saline drip and push my eyeballs back in with the back of a spoon. But in this game everything's getting implemented tomorrow. All the fossils will grow back tomorrow. You can replace your broke-ass fishing rod tomorrow. We'll know if your eyeball cancer is responding to treatment tomorrow. They've successfully recreated the excitement of calling your internet service provider at the weekend. I suppose you can just change the date on the 3DS, but the main hurdle in the way of that is that I can't be asked, and I wouldn't want the game to think that I care. The average session runs out of shit to do in less than an hour, and that's when you have to start coming up with games of your own to pass the time, like try to use the speed up dialogue button without accidentally cancelling out of the conversation when a choice comes up, or Furniture Tetris, where you rearrange your living room using only pushing and rotation. You win the game when you realise you could be having precisely as much fun with a plate of beans on toast. And yet, it's hard to stop playing Animal Crossing, and now I will explain why. First, it gives you something unique to you. The towns are all randomly generated, to a degree, there's no chance of getting a place where it rains mayonnaise on a bronze statue of Margaret Thatcher's left bollock. I mean, the trees are in different places and you have a unique selection of residents. Whoa, Will Wright eat your heart! out, then it gives you that most cruel of gifts, responsibility. Only you can keep the weeds under control and do everyone's odd jobs. If you fail to check in for a while, you'll come back to find the animal residents sucking on the tear ducts of corpses for hydration and giving each other Glasgow smiles over the last classy sofa in the pawn shop. Thirdly, it has the cooking mama quality. I'm just gonna say it, I enjoy playing cooking mama because gaming is an eternal quest for petty victories, and there are none pettier than being ridiculously overpraised by a warm motherly voice for completing simple tasks. It is basically the quickest way to score. Not much of a high, but easy 
easy enough to get that it doesn't matter so much, the video game equivalent of solvent abuse. Finally, once you're more familiar with your town layout than you are with your mum's house, and each day becomes a dull routine of pawning fish and birthday presents, anything that relieves the monotony becomes exciting. Ooh, they're opening the flower shop, can't wait till tomorrow! And my higher brain can only shake its head. Look at you, Yahtzee Crozier, the virile mountain lion of games criticism excited by a flower shop. Don't start playing Animal Crossing, Animal Crossing doesn't end and cannot be won. At some point you're gonna get bored or catch Alzheimer's or get trapped by a house fire and your town will be abandoned, prompting several random number generators in tasteless shirts to express silent disappointment at your screaming, melting flesh. Might as well snap off the limb before it grows nerve endings. You know, there's a theory that the popularity of violent war games in a community goes down the closer that community is to an actual war. In which case, Animal Crossing is the best possible game for soldiers in World War One trenches. Maybe at the Christmas truce they could all rise up and exchange street pass codes. Ugh, you will reveal your secrets, British Ashvine! At what time of year did you catch the veil shark? Fans of The Last of Us, I feel a wedge has been driven between you and I. I know you were afraid that The Last of Us was some kind of beached whale that would die if not continually moistened by everybody's tongues, but it's not easy for me either, having a contentious opinion. When The Last of Us started losing me, I wasn't rubbing my fingerless gloved hands in glee, I was thinking, ugh, I am gonna get some real fucking stimulating email over this, aren't I? I feel some kind of bonding exercise would help clear the air, and what would be better than a hunting expedition, so please, load up your shotguns, join me around this barrel, and let's take it out on some motherfucking fish! This is how I unwind after stressful times, I review a game that absolutely no one expected to be good, and which entirely meets those expectations, namely Ride to Hell Retribution 1%. If you're wondering, the 1% is an outlaw bike gang thing, referring to a statement once made that 99% of motorbike riders are law-abiding citizens. It does not mean that the bikers have all gotten rich from trading stock in the knife-fighting industry. Yes, it's a biker-themed action-adventure melee-shooty ridey-bikey affair, sort of like Full Throttle if it had absolutely zero self-awareness, and if all the horrible action minigames had grown and taken over everything else like an inoperable cancer. After returning from Vietnam, responsible mullet owner Jake Conway finds his brother and uncle being terrorised by an evil biker gang with more influence and manpower than the fucking postal service. His brother winds up dead and Jake must emasculate his way through the ranks of the evil gang, racing and shooting and pipe-wrenching and shagging all their birds in what a 13-year-old boy who spent the last 72 hours locked in a storage space with a bunch of 80s action movies and an entire palette of Cocoa Pops would consider the apex of masculinity. To the end of uncovering the sinister truth behind Jake's missing father and why the evil gang is trying to kill all his kids, which I'm just gonna spoil because fuck you, in a climactic showdown, the evil gang leader grandly reveals that it was because he didn't like Jake's dad much. That's the mystery? I assumed that much when he sent 11,000 murderers dressed like Guns N' Roses backup drummers. I do not know how the hell Ride to Heck got cleared for release unless the entire QA team simultaneously resigned to start a shotgun tasting business. It's bad. It's explosively apocalyptically bad and you should totally buy it. I'm serious, you have to see this shit. Where to start? Every single scene starts before the textures have properly loaded in, so all the characters look like severe burn victims for about 10 seconds before all their features grow in like they're fucking Wolverine. The soundtrack consists of about four generic what I believe is termed cock rock tracks that sound like the guitarist has trained a little mouse to walk up and down his fretboard while he disinterestedly strums, and these are used for the sole purpose of adding excitement to combat scenes where there generally is none. Most cutscenes have no music, and without ambience, an already awkward, poorly acted dramatic dialogue becomes the nativity play at the children's head injury ward. Every character having these big flapping mouths like upside down pedal bins also doesn't help, but the bell on the test your awkwardness machine rings the loudest during the open quotes sex scenes. It's like watching fish people attempting to disentangle their navel rings. All 
fully clothed, but I know penetrative intercourse is supposed to be taking place because Jake is thrusting and looks like he's about to start crying. It's one of those games that tries to keep a lot of balls in the air, but forgot that it was standing under a ceiling fan. So we have melee combat in which it is possible for the first blow of your combo to push the target out of the range of the rest of your combo, and shooting in which every gun has all the weight and impact of using a drinking straw to propel mouthfuls of sailor jizz, and attempting to aim while standing within earshot of a solid object will cause you to attempt to vibrate through it like the fucking flash. Throughout the seemingly interminable sequences of copy-pasted combat arenas, the enemies alternate between gun and melee focus, but fortunately you, the player, are not bound by the same obligation, and so combat for me turned into jizzing away at distant enemies who have heard of taking cover but haven't fully internalised the concept, and then taking a break from that by getting easy headshots on several unarmed bumblefucks jogging towards me in convenient single file. Then I move through an enormous empty room full of unused environmental kills. Oh, was I supposed to be fighting them in here? How rude of me! But much as I'd love seeing your delightfully overlong pre-animated takedowns another 12 or 13 fucking times, I got shit to do! And of course there are bike riding sequences, as programmed by Roadkill. You can't turn around or go backwards, cause we'd hate to have anything kill the pacing of this rollercoaster of an experience, so every time you hit something you're absorbed into some cosmic nether plane, and then spat back out a little way up the road. Physics, however, are a tricksy mistress, and it also tends to happen when you sideswipe obstacles, or drive over pebbles, or cough too loudly, and combining it with anemic arbitrary time limits is where adorably bad starts to test my patience. I have a spurious unresearched feeling that the game might once have intended to be sandboxed, but something fucked up, or perhaps more to the point, everything fucked up, and they just had to stitch together whatever they had, cause in the hub town area where you buy upgrades the whole town has clearly been modelled, but the moment you try to walk outside the square fifty yards where the shop is, the game goes <coughs> and shoves you right back. And there's one mission where Jake passes through this enormous casino, fully decked out with the unique assets that someone probably put a lot of work into, then at the end the character says, no, wrong place, and you just walk all the way out again. And once or twice, apropos of nothing, Jake runs into women being harassed by burly men claiming they're entitled to sex, so Jake beats them up, whereupon he is entitled to sex. A brief, blank-eyed Thunderbirds are go hump with a random trollop before being dropped right back into the mission as if nothing happened. It feels like a side quest, a collect all the venereal diseases for 100% kind of thing, such as might be found in a sandbox game, developed by absolute psychopaths who got all their ideas of human social interaction for watching confessions of a window cleaner on fast forward. It's hard to think of even one thing right to hell doesn't fuck up. Maybe the weirdly extensive motorbike customization, but it's a lot of wasted effort for something that is almost always obscured by the protagonist's fat ass. Right to hell is the kind of bad that leaves me with a smile on my face. It's a little retarded child with its head stuck in a cereal box and a massive great dump in its big boy pants going, I'm a real game now. Of course you are, right to hell. And that's why I think everyone should buy it. Just to fuck with some heads. This could be our Plan 9 from outer space. We should have mass screenings of it. Get everyone to dress up, put upside down pedal bins on their heads and then beat their wives. I'm pleased to report that I have done at least one review for every letter of the alphabet. Thank Christ for XCOM, but if there's one letter that's overrepresented, it's D. And that's because roughly 100% of game titles start with the word dark, as in souls, void, ciders, ness, and est of days. So the subject of today's review gets refreshingly to the nub of the matter. Perhaps this represents a final culmination of the entertainment industry's long-held notion that the epitome of cool is sitting around being miserable with the lights turned off. Pity the actual game is Cajun-cooked walrus dribble, but never mind. They could always patch things up with a sequel, which would logically be named Dead, as in rising island space and pool. Considering Ride to Hell, what is this? Absolute garbage awareness month? Do they even care what gets a full-on boxed console release anymore? Well, since it's the end of the generation, I guess not. Alright son, we've had fun on this boat over the years, but now it's time to sink it to the ocean floor and let all the bottom feeders live in it. But daddy, couldn't we just put a better engine on the boat and not have to destroy all our cherished memories? I think someone needs to go back in the naughty box. Dark opens with the protagonist waking up with
with no memory except that his name is Eric Bain. Oh god, that's a demoralising start, isn't it? Realising you sound like the pseudonym under which a struggling author writes erotic Twilight knockoffs. Anyway, dangerous McSpooky name bumbles into a nightclub that luckily happens to be run by nice vampires. Nice in the sense that they wantonly drink blood from living humans, but we're really thirsty, guys! Traditionally, this is the point where the oh no, it's alright, we're good vampires who like humans and survive off donated blood packs and badly made McRibs routine comes into play, so the vampires don't seem unsympathetic, but Dark kinda skips that step because it's too busy digging plot holes. Eric is informed that he is now a vampire because a vampire drank all his blood, but either they immediately forget about that particular rule or Eric creates about 50 more vampires during the course of every single combat section. Hey, I've got an idea, how about we play one of them? I want to re-roll my character, one that didn't get snake eyes for charisma. Dark is a big fan of Tell Don't Show. Maybe they can't show us because it's too dark, we wouldn't see it. By the time he leaves the nightclub at the start of the game, Eric has met four new characters, learned about vampires, about vampire powers, and about a powerful senior vampire he has to go kill in order to become a real vampire as opposed to the namby-pants poseur he is now. All of which is delivered through tedious dialogue trees that, as tends to be the case with these things, bear about as much resemblance to actual human conversation as a butthole full of cum does to a chocolate eclair. Here's a fun game, next time you're at a party, talk to a stranger like you're a video game character going through a dialogue tree. Yeah, so I just bought a new entertainment system for my living room. Tell me more about your new entertainment system. It's really nice, it's got Bang & Olufsen speakers. Tell me more about speakers. Um, they're the things that audible sound comes out of. Tell me more about audible sound. Uh, it's an oscillation of pressure transmitted through a medium and composed of frequencies within the range of hearing. I'm done with talking about your new entertainment system. Tell me more about your living room. During one conversation, Eric goes, Tell me more about vampire society. And the dude goes, There isn't one, really. See, we're not ripping off Vampire the Masquerade. But in his very next line, he says, I wouldn't expect a half-blood to understand. Oh, okay, no society, but there is classism. Do you want to go back and maybe write a second draft? Every vampire story has to different rules, of course. In the Dark Universe, for example, the super-secret weakness of vampires is bullets. And cunningly, the security guards of the world all carry guns, having figured out that your Achilles heel is any kind of physical damage whatsoever. So Dark is strictly a stealth game, such as the aversion to bullets that Eric cannot carry a gun himself. So do the maths here, sonny. Melee-only attacks, plus large numbers of enemies with guns, plus large open environments with limited cover, equals it's a shame you have such an aversion to bullets, Eric, mate, because a lot of them are going to be trying to make friends with you. And your one attack can be blocked by aware enemies. So if you get spotted sneaking up on a dude, the action becomes a rather humiliating game of patty cake. I wanted Eric to go back to the club after the first mission and say, are you sure I'm a vampire, and not just a goth with a personal trainer? At first, gameplay is a frustrating trial and error grind, because as I said, enemies are everywhere, there aren't any decent vantage points to plan ahead, and the best way to figure out if a specific spot is being watched is to bumble into it and see how much of your skull remains inside your face. Counted a good sense, the difficulty curves downwards as you proceed and acquire vampire superpowers. Oh, I think I see the misunderstanding. When you said vampires, Dark, what you meant was X men. You can turn invisible and teleport and do that Darth Vader choke thing to finally have a long range attack, but this superpower dessert trolley is completely unbalanced and sends pastries flying everywhere. Why does the power that merely distracts guards require exactly the same energy as the one that kills them instantly from any distance? Bit of an imbalance there. Oh, but the Darth Vader choke kill thing makes a loud noise that alerts other guards, but oh oh, that liability is removed if you upgrade the power once. Meanwhile, upgrade the distract power once and you can distract people one meter further away. Oh well, sign me up for the fucking Justice League. Hey, wait a minute. Killing someone from long distance while making a loud noise? Isn't that exactly the same superpower as a man with a gun? As I may have implied, it's fairly obvious that Dark aspires to ape Vampire the Masquerade bloodlines because all the superpowers have the same wanky names, obfuscation and celerity, where invisibility and moving all quick-like would have done, but bloodlines attempted to immerse you in a living, breathing society while Dark just has a voice in your ear telling you, no, really, there is a world outside all this shit gameplay. I'm looking at it right now and it's fucking sweet. I will say this, though, if it's trying to be bloodlines, Dark has got shitty boss fights down pat.
combat, or should I say boss fight, just one, at the end. And no doubt you have a question, how can this game have a boss fight when your offensive capability is limited to contextual one-hit kills? That would be a very good question. So what happens is that you run around avoiding a big monster like it's a schoolyard bully with a dog shit on the end of a stick, and then a button appears, which you press, and then you win. A fitting conclusion for five hours of contextual stealth kill button pressing perhaps, but a touch anticlimactic. In conclusion, suck my dark dick. I mean, suck my dick, Dark. You know what I'm finding is that the 3DS makes me really uncomfortable. No, not because it keeps spouting racist opinions, I mean physically. It doesn't seem to matter whether I'm on my bed or chair or nestled in the arms of a hairy prisoner, after a while my fingers start going numb so I have to put it aside and just listen to it spouting its racist opinions for a while. And when I see how comfortably it fits into things other than human hands, such as chargers and a toasted sandwich maker, all I'm seeing is yet another reason to join the Borg. Seriously guys, you get to become part of a consciousness that spans the cosmos and never again have to worry about whether or not you're too formally dressed. Find me the fuck up. I mention all this because my playthrough of Mario and Luigi Dream Team finally clocked in at 30 hours. 30 wonderful hours of moving from bed to chair to hairy prisoner and waiting for the feeling to return to my digits. And all I can think is that if I were an on-call heart surgeon and my bleeper had gone off at any point in those 30 hours, Nintendo would have been guilty of spurty murder. Is it true that Dream Team hasn't come out in America yet? What a shame, he said disingenuously. But then in Europe and Australia it's titled Dream Team Bros. It's important to us to understand familial relationships between characters because we're all so rampantly incestuous. And obviously it takes a very long time to remove one word from the title, everyone's very attached to it. Anyway, Dream Team Bros is part of Nintendo's Year of Luigi, for want of a better word, thing, which I'm fully in favour of, but I do wonder if it's entirely in Nintendo's best interests to highlight the fact that their usual leading man has all the personality of a squeaking bean casserole, while Luigi has many personality traits and we can add another one to the list, narcolepsy. When he and the rest of Princess Peach's entourage of friend's own nice guys arrive on a mystic island where sleeping in certain areas opens gateways to the dream world in which a race of ancient pillow-shaped people lie trapped and petrified until somebody sleeps on them, Luigi finally discovers his purpose in life. It's like if Hugh Grant were teleported to some mystical land where stammering awkward charm can be used to generate electricity. Oh yeah, and Peach gets kidnapped by Bowser, and usually I group that with the unrealistic mushroom physics and the casual racism, hardly worth mentioning. But is it? Mario RPGs such as the Paper and and Luigi series have historically been permitted to subvert the standard formula of plumber A rescue princess B from fire-breathing spiny sea turtle. Indeed, in the last game, Bowser's Inside Story, you play as Bowser for a lot of it, and I'm just thinking about the very end of that game when Bowser starts squaring off for a fight with Mario and Luigi, but then it just cuts to credits as it begins, as if to say, yeah, fuck it, we know how this turns out, am I right? So my question would be, if the dull, tired, predictable concept of Mario fighting Bowser was a target of mockery last time around, why in the sequel do we go right back to it with a po-faced lack of self-awareness? The genie won't go back in the bottle, Nintendo. It's like getting a sleeping bag back into its original carrying case. The whole Year of Luigi concept supports this suspicion I have that Nintendo has Mario under a sort of lockdown out of fear that they're doing something wrong and all subversive elements in the canon have been stamped on in case another 500,000 people fail to buy a Wii U. All matter in the universe inevitably moves towards entropy and every Nintendo franchise inevitably devolves into hammering basically the same game out every few years with a new set of bollocks and neatly combed pubes. The gameplay of Dream Team Bros is basically the same as Bowser's Inside Story. It switches between an isometric real world and 2D platforming inner world, Bowser's duodenum in the first case and Luigi's brain in the second, both equally fucked up in their own special ways. In Irritable Bowser Syndrome, the Mario Brothers could influence the real world by messing around with the inner world, powering Bowser's muscles, inflating his scaly willy into something resembling a gnarled old tree trunk growing next to a pumpkin patch, unless that was just that dream I had. Whereas in the new one, it's pretty much just a straight reversal. You influence the inner world by twiddling about with the real world, in this case Luigi's sleeping face, tweaking his moustache and drawing knobs on his forehead and putting his hand in a small bowl of warm water. Combat retains the usual Mario RPG model, turn-based combat for over-caffeinated players who want to keep smashing buttons when it's not their turn, so the game lets you jump out of the way of enemy attacks, but since we're letting you do that, you will by Christ jump through some fucking hoops to pull off the 
the special attacks, and if you fuck up, they'll have as much impact as the dewy morning fart of a spring lamb, which I like, because if I'm to be punished, I prefer to know it's because I fucked up, and not because my protagonist is politely biting the curb and letting them stomp away. But another thing copied over from Bowser's Fantastic Voyage is the giant monster fights, or kaiju, I think is the technical term among complete wankers, albeit this time with a fully inflated Dreamland Luigi, which coincidentally is the brand name for a sex toy I'm trying to bring to market. And this I'm finding I don't like so much, because this is an RPG, man. I don't deliberately jump on all the monsters because I think the battle music will get better after hearing it another 10,000 sodding times. It's so I can get XP and kick more ass. But what is the bloody point if it culminates in a giant monster fight with entirely different mechanics entirely unrelated to the stats we have built thus far? It's like blowing all your money on restoring a classic car and then picking up your date with a piggyback ride. The final one of these with Bowser is the most obnoxious because there's little margin for error. All the moves take as long as an episode of Inspector Morse and it climaxes with an air hockey minigame that uses wonky tilting controls. And if we must tilt something to control a game, I prefer it not be the thing on which I'm fucking trying to fucking view the fucking gay fucking mm. Ultimately what condemns Dream Team is that I just found it boring, unchallenging and tired. Oh look it's Mario, oh look it's the other guy, we forgot his name, ha ha ha, ad infinitum. I'm disappointed by Bowser just being the straight villain again, cause done well he can be an interesting character study, there's something intriguing about someone who self-identifies as the bad guy. Society calls him evil but he wears their label, he reclaims it, and that is why they will never get him down. If the options are good or evil then Bowser will take evil because he has seen what passes for good, an unelected dits living in obscene decadence and bestowing privileges upon a pair of mustachioed foreigners who both might be giving her one. She's basically a gender-swapped Berlusconi. Gaming culture has a curious relationship with its history. On the one hand you have console manufacturers saying, backwards compatibility, what's that? A tendency to immediately cancel poorly received features, cause that we've got. You don't want to play any of them five million provably good old games, grandad. All the cool kids exclusively play the five or six new games for the new consoles that have less gameplay features but prettier lighting. Check that shit out, I think I just came through my butthole because my cock was too busy pissing itself. But on the other hand, if you go to Kickstarter and say the name of a popular game from the early to mid 90s followed by the word remake, money will be thrown at you with such force that you'll resemble a currency themed cousin to Pinhead from Hellraiser. While life on the cutting edge has its stabby charms, there's a guaranteed audience for nostalgia, especially on something like Steam, where the pretty lighting and the pixel art live side by side in peaceful non-judgmental harmony, and this week's subject wears nostalgia like a douchebag wears a lampshade. Rise of the Triad was an FPS from the mid 90s, charitably classified as 2.5D but more like 2.4 at best, and like a man with both hands trapped in a gumball machine, was absolutely fuck all to do with triads. Instead it was the result of someone saying, alright, just because it's the early to mid 90s and 3D graphics look like someone threw Lego at a shithouse wall doesn't mean we can't have a nice serious shooter about a covert tactics unit assaulting a paramilitary organisation. Oh fuck it, I'm bored! That's pretty much exactly how the design document went, so as well as the shooting there's jump pads and Mario coins and power-ups that turn you into a dog. If you've never played the original Rise of the Triad, then fuck off! The new Rise of the Triad is a nostalgic in-jokey exercise, basically recreating the original with all new pretty lighting. So we can speed around shooting the baddies like a Starlight Express cast member going postal, yep. And we can fire cartoonishly powerful rocket launchers in mid-air, yep. And it's still fuck all to do with triads, yep. And we've still got the power-up that turns you into a dog. <gasps> with a little doggy nose at the bottom of the screen, yep. And the little adorable paw coming up when you press buttons. Uh, no, we forgot about that. One star! It is admirable for a remake to not be a generic modern day shooter with a name attached, like a dog turd with a cocktail umbrella stuck in it, and it's also impressive how they managed to capture the slightly janky fun of 2.5D action in full 3D, with environments that no longer look like someone tried to recreate their favourite graph paper doodles with sheets of used toilet paper. And it's impressive and baffling the way they successfully animate 3D model enemies to shuffle unconvincingly about like 2D sprite based enemies did. It took me a while to get back into the mindset, removing silly notions like cover from my mind with a bottle of mouthwash and a knife, but after that I was having a great time bunny hopping about 
firing missiles in midair and wiping eyeballs off my reading glasses. Obviously they can't fully recreate the experience of 90s FPSs because the resolution isn't so low that enemies more than 50 yards away appear to be camouflaged as Tetris blocks. So to evoke the same spirit, they just made the graphics really fucking murky so distant enemies blend into the background and locating the assholes turns into some kind of hardcore bullet-themed game of Marco Polo. Rise of the Triad does a very naughty thing around the second act, bet you're enjoying all this fast-paced violence, aren't you? But this isn't a perfect recreation of 90s retro shooters yet, we haven't had enough shitty first-person platforming challenges! Hope you like trying to accurately jump onto tiny platforms when your feet only exist hypothetically, because if you don't do it perfect we're going to kill you, and then laugh, and then display your corpse at the Museum of Failure wearing a silly hat. I suppose this is the problem with warts and all remakes, some in the right places can certainly liven up the evening, but there are other warts that I'm quite glad eventually dropped off. This is like going to the Renaissance Fair and getting infected with bubonic plague while the king shags your wife. But on the other hand it's not entirely the fault of retro gaming, because you know what the original Rise of the Triad had? Quick save. Not autosave, presided over by a sloth reading a really interesting magazine. First person jumping challenges are a bit of a pisser, but an entire sequence of the things that you have to start all over again at the slightest failure is a 12 story flying pisser circling the neighbourhood, contaminating all the swimming pools. But none of this made me stop playing the game. I'd slide off some janky geometry into lava and the hilarious commander would insult me and I'd fantasise about impaling the voice actor on an ocean liner piston butthole first, but then I'd slam the reload button and furiously nod my head in time with the loading screen music and try again. You see, I get angry, but angry is not bored. Angry gets shit done. This is what truly separates casual from hardcore. Casuals all like, now when you're ready I want you to press this button. Okay, that was slightly to the left of the button, but keep trying, you're doing ever so well. And hardcore is all like, oh look at this wee man, thinks he can roll with us. Maybe if you ate this entire live crab right now, while I'm hitting you with the crab. And either method has its appeal, it's just the games that try to have it both ways that piss me off. Are you the kind of hurly-burly power armor marine who can save the planet from the giant death crabs from space? Well, prove it by pressing this button. Now when you feel up to it, shoot that monster that we tied to a stake and put a giant glowing arrow over. You know what, never mind, I'll do it. But while Rise of the Triad did get me to the right level of frustration that I was motivated to keep playing just to teach it a lesson, it ended on a bit of a squib. See, while it's getting you all worked up with its unfair traps and platforming, the actual combat kind of fades into the background as the more powerful weapons become more common and you can absentmindedly disappear an entire legion while you're waiting for your chance to jump onto a ledge for some Mario coins. The final boss fight is rather disappointingly easy, because he has fewer stages than my electric toothbrush and the place is just strewn with powerful weapons like a Texan Christmas morning. So the game feels short because it built up all this angry tension bubbling away in my gonads like a pair of hairy witch cauldrons, then didn't pay it off properly. I had to go piss it all out over the first car I could find with a personalised number plate. Maybe they'll put more levels out. Maybe they'll remember to put some fucking triads in them this time. The summer game drought period is kind of like the space between the legs of an attractive potential sex partner as you tell them your opinions on Japanese animation, in that it seems to be getting increasingly narrow, and you could probably be having more fun with it than you currently are. It used to be so straightforward, good shit comes out at Christmas because the kids will want something to do after Christmas dinner once they've turned into lolloping gravy balloons, but now Christmas is the celebration of the birth of our Lord and Saviour, Call of Duty, and everyone who doesn't want to try to compete shifts to post-Christmas or pre-Christmas or pre-pre-Christmas. It's like watching people on a train carriage shifting away from a fat bloke in the middle sitting cupping himself with his legs wide open. Consequently, the middle of this year has had a fairly fruitful harvest of risky new IP, some of which should probably have taken more risks, like say a bullet to the head, but this week saw two interesting downloadable releases that I'd like to discuss for you now. First up, the slightly redundantly titled Brothers A Tale Of Two Sons, part of the usual Xbox Summer Of Arcade flappery. Kiss Blah has long had an affinity for games about small children with massive heads exploring scary worlds, and Brothers is kinda overdoing it with two of the little buggers, an older, stronger one and a younger, nimbler one who looks like time froze just as a water balloon full of custard was thrown at the back of his head. 
head, but it wouldn't be a small child big head XBLA game unless shit got real bleak real fucking fast, so obviously their mum's dead and their dad's dying from the old classic unspecific persistent cough disease. And the mum died Nino Cuny style because the younger brother drowned her or something, and presumably the dad got ill from the older kid pissing in his cornflakes every morning, so it falls to the two boys to go on a perilous mission across the land to a magical tree where can be found the cure, passing through an odyssey of set pieces and picture postcard fantasy environments with seemingly no relationship to each other whatsoever. It's like a very, very short, never-ending story. Ironically. The gameplay is best described as single-player co-op, and I know that sounds like saying, I'm not gay, I only suck off pantomime dames, but it is. You control Pissy McCornflakes with the left analogue stick and left trigger, and Custard Head drowned his mum with the right. This is regardless of where the brothers are in relation to each other, so half the challenge turns into just figuring out how to navigate the path without reeling around smashing into walls and furniture like the drunken abusive foster parent that inevitably lies in their future. Thank Christ there's no combat. It would have been like being Professor Stephen Hawking's tennis coach. But without combat, what the hell is there? Well, there's puzzles. Although with few exceptions, these are puzzles in the action-adventure game sense, meaning not puzzles at all. You pull one lever, then you pull the other. It's not exactly Zork Nemesis. Sometimes there are things reminiscent of the old Goblins adventure games where the puzzle is figuring out which brother to interact with the things with. But for the most part, the core gameplay is keep moving forward. The strength lies in the storytelling, which is mostly visual, since the characters only communicate in a combination of off-brand Team Ico gibberish and occasional grief-racked sobs. Brothers is a game of strung-together moments, some very effective moments in well-designed environments, but they come and go quicker than an abusive foster parent's sex partners, and I found the bridging narrative lacking. The game's so short and moves along so fast that I just didn't feel invested. Little Brother is the only character who gets any fleshing out. I'd have liked to know why their dad was so fucking great that he was worth pulling a Saving Private Ryan for. All I saw him do was cough a lot and teach the older boy fishing in one brief flashback where neither of them looked into it. So the emotional stuff feels a bit clumsy. No time for niceties, just gouge that chest cavity open and jab away at the heartstrings like a heavy metal guitarist whose hands have gone to sleep. So in summary, Brothers holds the interest well enough while it lasts, but quickly fades once consumed like a cheesy what's-it shaped like a willy. Moving on, the second game is Papers, Please, a bare 30 meg download on Steam that turned out to be one of the most strangely absorbing experiences I've had with indie games lately, and like a mysterious rash, I've been taking every opportunity to get people to look at it. The elevator pitch will probably turn off all but investors with the least amount of fucks to give. Basically, it's a bureaucracy em up You play a border control guard in a communist country, and your job is to check the paperwork of incoming travellers, interrogating them over discrepancies and making the final decision of green stamp or red stamp, except there's some kind of secondary invisible checkpoint that instantly spots fuck-ups and finds you if you missed them. So one wonders why we're even here. More layers of bureaucracy are added to the process over time. Passports, permission to travel, permission to work, permission to piss, permission to use run-on sentences, until immigrants are handing you entire scrapbooking projects, and if they spell their name with a different vowel just once, then it's off to talk to the nice men with guns, in the building that people go into a lot but don't seem to come out of so much. But you get paid by how many you process in a day, so it's hard to sympathise when you had to put Spotty McBumble fuck through the x-ray machine because his passport says he's a girl, and the last precious seconds in the day trickle out as you examine a picture of his hairy balls. Hey, you know who'd love to see your hairy balls? These nice men with guns! That's the beauty of Papers, Please. It presents constant moral choices but makes it really hard to be a good person. Virtually all your money goes to rent and food, so while you could waive the rules to reunite a couple or turn away someone with hairy balls so catastrophic they might level the city, you do it at the expense of your own family. You're a pivotal part of a thousand stories, some small, some big, and you have to decide if you want to create a better world or just look after you and yours. You're gazing up at a big complex state of affairs, funneled down and glimpsed through the filter of your tiny little world of passport numbers and hairy ball sacks, the effect of which being that admitting someone who seemed legit and hearing that obnoxious sound of the prince giving me a citation seized my heart more than any number of dead mums. Yeah, I got quibbles. There's a lot of telling without showing, and the booth upgrades are about as much use as a Wi-Fi connection in the Auschwitz prison showers, but the important thing is that a genuinely engaging paperwork simulator is far worthier of your time than the 70,000th slightly engaging gunfight. EA would never make something like this. For one thing, it'd remind them too much of their customer support services. Alright, full disclosure, 
Soldier. I picked up Pikmin. I mean, I picked up Mick Pit. I acquired Pikmin 3 a couple of weeks back, but sort of left it on one side for a while because it looked a little bit twee and a little bit a Wii U game. Nothing personal. It's just whenever the prospect of doing another Wii U game comes up, the inevitable hardware issues loom overhead like the legs of the Colossus of Rhodes, its shitty battery life dangling awkwardly in the breeze. But nothing else is out till Friday, so I was stuck with it. Don't be sad, said Pikmin 3, twee We can have just as much fun with unjustifiable murder as those grown-up games. And you know what? It was right. It's like the fucking trenches of the Somme in there, except the Allied soldiers are physically thrown at the German war machine by their commanders, and every German casualty gets dragged into the Allied trenches to have their flesh minced up and converted into rations. That'll teach me to prejudge. Thanks, Pikmin 3, you fucking monster. And thank you, we- Oh, your battery died. Pikmin was the last entirely new IP created by Shigeru Miyamoto. What was that? Wii Sports and Wii Fit? Oh, sorry. Pikmin was the last entirely new IP created by Shigeru Miyamoto that I give a shit about. As is fairly well known, Miyamoto takes inspiration for his game ideas from aspects of his day-to-day life, and I think Pikmin came from a summer job he once had throwing unwanted family pets into a canal. Three astronauts land on an unknown planet and a spaceship fault leaves them temporarily unable to return home. See, it's different to the first Pikmin because there's three of them. Upon landing, they are immediately approached by a race of strange plant-like beings who willingly gather around the alien astronauts because having never seen them, they have no reason to fear them, basically doing what the dodos did when hungry foreign sailors first arrived on their islands. And it basically works out as well now as it did then. The astronauts are unwilling to do their own manual labour, perhaps so as not to ruin their nails for an upcoming photoshoot with What Genocide magazine and must employ the Pikmin as combination pack mules and ballistic missiles to collect supplies, explore the planet, and cannibalise all the less friendly locals. Despite my fondness for the GameCube, I never played the original Pikmin because it looked a bit baby's first real-time strategy, and I group real-time strategy with gynaecologists and your human love. They're just not a part of my little world. I do, however, have the understanding that they're more of a PC thing because mouse controls are best for accurately selecting and deploying units, and trying to do that with analogue stick cursors is like trying to piss around the toilet seat from a hang glider. But that was until the invention of the Wii U touchscreen controller, which can also be used for accurate selecting and placement. Can be, but isn't. So get used to that analogue stick cursor that keeps selecting the fucking foreground while my Pikmin are getting ground into pie crust. Some kind of every Pikmin within a certain distance come snuggle up to my ample space going buttocks ability would have been nice, rather than just a selector that you wave about like a broken windscreen wiper. And then if most of your Pikmin get killed and taken away to be sprinkled on someone's jacket potato, rebuilding your forces is so bloody time consuming I would just restart the day and take a mulligan now that I knew what to do. And I always think it reflects bad design when you turn to save scumming. You can't blame someone for breaking a window if the only door is in the roof. After the three main characters reunite, the story blows out its cheeks and goes, well I can't think of anywhere to go from here, let's just bring in characters from the first two Pikmin games apropos of nothing. And all of a sudden, pinpointing the previous Pikmin protagonist is your party of Pillock's primary priority, based on some vague notion that he's got the key to your spaceship for some reason. Then in the end you track him down and find him being held prisoner by some hitherto unknown monster and suddenly nothing is more important than rescuing this guy we've never met from a monster we've never seen. Actually, I don't even know if it is the last level, I was so bloody uninvested and the level so bloody annoying, I just stopped playing. You see, rescuing the poor bastard isn't so important that if you haven't rescued him by the end of the in-game day, you guys won't go, fuck it, let's go to bed, he'll be fine, waving happily to the monster as it drags him back to the sex dungeon for the night. Well, there's nothing more important than a good night's sleep, is there? Otherwise you might get crabby and start throwing hundreds of innocent creatures to their deaths. But in the astronauts' defence, the Pikmin are fucking asking for it. At least dodos might have had some vague understanding that they probably shouldn't hang around people who keep trying to shove chestnut stuffing up their assholes. Pikmin won't defend themselves unless you specifically throw them at the enemies, so if you thought you could just leave some as a defensive perimeter against a nearby horde of vicious battle-hungry aphids, then think again, Commander Excellent. They're always falling off ledges you're trying to throw them onto, and you can't throw them onto the ledge if you're right up against the ledge, so you back up a bit from the ledge, and then they fucking fall off the ledge you're currently on, don't they? And you can never get them away from the fucking boss monsters in time to avoid the incredibly slow attacks that they couldn't be telegraphing any harder if they had a set of fucking stoplights lodged in their heads. This might actually be pretty ingenious design, because I would have had more qualms about sending hundreds of these things to their deaths if they'd shown any 
propensity for independent survival whatsoever, or if wrangling them had been less annoying than trying to count ping pong balls in a hot tub full of sunflower oil. I do have positive points, it looks pretty, although frankly that's something we as a species badly need to get over before anyone takes any more photographs of Kate Middleton. I like the mechanic wherein you lose some of your hard-earned juice at the end of each day, adding a tangible urgency to the fruit collecting aspect and gives me a sense of drive. I got a strange sense of tingly satisfaction each time I saw newly collected juice being poured slowly into storage jars, a mixture of erotic sensuality and the sudden urgent need for a wee. Almost makes it worth it, but in the moment-to-moment gameplay it seems we're always doing things the least efficient way possible, and the only thing the revolutionary Wii U controller offers is that much boasted feature wherein you can switch to playing entirely with the controller if someone wants to use the TV, which I still think is a very defeatist attitude, Nintendo. Hey, gaming's out there and mainstream and not stigmatised, what was that? You want to watch German scat porn? Fair enough, I'll just slink off in shame to the darkness where the nerds belong. Why is it in these newfangled video games of yours is no one ever grateful when monsters invade? Everyone's always like, nah, the monsters are destroying our cities, and every one of ours that falls joins their ranks in a nightmarish state of living death, whinge, 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 when surely the entire history of human endeavour has been one long quest to find monsters, because it justifies our existence to know that a monster considered our face worthwhile enough to peel from our skull, but we didn't find any monsters in the forests or the oceans or the skies, the moon was kind of the last hope, wasn't it? I'm not saying we wanted to see Neil Armstrong get blindsided by a hairy giant moon spider while he was fiddling with the flag, it's just, you know, some of us would have gotten some sense of fulfilment from it. But speaking of monsters and McCarthy-era space exploration, I've been playing The Bureau, XCOM Declassified, a game with one of those titles that look like they came out of the tumble dryer with a load of unnecessary words clinging to it, in which space monsters invade and everyone's really unphilosophical about it. The Bureau is the game that 2K have been threatening to make for a while now. Let's turn another beloved 90s franchise into a shooter, because that worked out so bloody well for Syndicate, and maybe AAA gaming is plugged up in every single orifice with generic shooters, but hey, there is such thing as DVDA. But then everyone was all like, this shit ain't my XCOM, so 2K was all like, oh okay, then here's XCOM Enemy Unknown, a faithful remake of the original turn-based management gameplay brought up to speed with better presentation and more intuitive design. This is exactly what we want, said everyone. Wasn't so hard, was it 2K? Thank you for not going through with that generic shooter idea. Um, said 2K awkwardly. We're actually kind of still making that. Oh, good for you, bye then. So we should take into account that the Bureau is in an awkward position even before it starts. It's like being the follow-up act to Freddie Mercury. And before you ask, alive Freddie Mercury. So the Bureau's not just a generic shooter, it's got hub-based selectable mission gameplay, RPG elements, real-time tactics with two NPCs, and even a couple of features they didn't rip off from Mass Effect. For example, the story's absolute shite. You are William Carter, a grizzled ex-CIA man haunted by his entire family having been wiped out by a rampaging plot device, so he's a loose cannon with a drinking problem who doesn't play by the rules but gets results. Basically a man who wears cliches for trousers, and a little sporty trilby-shaped cliché for a hat. Aliens invade, like they do, and Carter becomes part of a secret counter-invasion unit based out of a military bunker in New Mexico, run by a tough but fair no-nonsense boss man and an independent woman trying to make her way in a man's world, and a German scientist named Heinrich, because of course he fucking is. And you'll get to know all these shit characters through Mass Effect-style dialogue trees with the usual stock-still creepy fixed eye contact during which Carter constantly makes weird fist-pumping gestures like he's trying to imply that his conversation partner is a tosser. Cause in Mass Effect most of the characters you talk to while you mooch around the hub area pretending to work are party members with interesting backstories, whereas your party members in this are short-haired white dude A and short-haired white dude B. Well in fairness Bureau does have party member permadeath, so probably best not to characterise them because otherwise their deaths would have some kind of impact and we might momentarily feel an emotion. You know, characters and shooters these 
these days are basically the same as archaeologists. Their natural state in life is crouching next to a ruined bit of wall, and they spend an awful lot of time around dead people. William Carter is a committed archaeologist in the field, but in between archaeology sessions there are always weirdly long linear paths to the next dig site, and because the mission gameplay has nothing to offer besides combat, these moments have all the appeal of navigating an IKEA showroom you have zero interest in buying anything from, because you're trying to find the sodding restaurant. The artists can pour their effort into making lovely skyboxes and set pieces for these little guided tours, but I barely glanced at any of it, because again it's like Mass Effect, unless the room is inexplicably networked with chest-high walls, like some kind of intermediate level dog labyrinth, then you know for a fact that fuck all is going to happen, so why bother hanging around? Although a good game might use downtime to get us engaged in the story a bit, but the Bureau story is, as we have established, shite, and it just becomes tedious. Kinda inconsistent too, there's this big baddie guy you have to go after, but before the mission everyone was nagging me to bring him in alive for questioning, so I assume there'd be a choice involved, but then the main characters pop a cap in he ass in the mission's concluding cutscene, and nobody seems to care. Was there some kind of poorly handled romance between the story writers and they became too embarrassed to talk to each other? But anyway, the combat itself seems a tiny bit neurotic about being able to credibly call itself an XCOM game, so after you've parked your spotty ass in cover you have to instruct your two friends to move to cover positions as well, because otherwise they seem a little unclear on the concept of self-preservation. They'd yell, GRENADE, and then get confused and sit on it like they were hoping to hatch a baby goose. I hate this notion that a mixture of turn-based and real-time gameplay will somehow end up being the best of both worlds, because in practice it just turns into a mess. It's like trying to order dinner while the chef is firing jacket potatoes at your mouth with a tennis ball cannon. And in keeping with the this is XCOM no really attitude, you have a team of around 10 or 12 agents at your command of varying classes and specialisations, but they're kind of redundant when you can only take two of the fuckers on missions at a time. You can send them off on non-playable missions, Assassin's Creed style, and level them up that way, but that just leaves you with a squadron full of people way too overqualified to be doing fuck all. The combat's always the same, and there's no way of knowing what classes would be suitable for the challenges, so you might as well just stick to the same two guys, keep the rest for replacements. But 10 substitutes for two guys? How shit at this game do you think I am? I suppose I should have been angry when I got as far as the final mission when my save file corrupted and I couldn't go on, but frankly it was my most positive moment with the experience. Why were you playing this, I asked myself, cause it's me job. Would you be playing it if it wasn't your job? Fuck no, I'd be playing the other XCOM while eating something Mother would disapprove of. Well, that's the review then, isn't it? Now let's switch the discs over and see if Domino's will make us a sandwich with pizzas instead of bread. And nine pizzas instead of filling. Getting hold of Saints Row 4 in this bloody country was like trying to smuggle the Jews out on the Underground Railroad. They did that refuse classification thing again. And what gets me is that I don't know what we're supposed to do about it this time. We've got an R18 rating for games now. We all worked very hard for it. So the government acknowledged that we're adults, but still think that if we see a fictional character taking drugs and then not not immediately choking to death on their own hip bones, that by the end of the day we'll be crawling around under railway cars licking discarded cans of spray adhesive. What do we petition for now? For the bloke at the censorship panel to receive taxpayer-funded blowjobs so he doesn't show up to work in a bad mood wanting to exercise petty authority? Well who cares, the nanny state somehow remains oblivious to international shipping, but now having played it I think the censorship board had a point. Wouldn't want people to try to mimic irresponsible behaviour like shooting fire out of their bare hands or leaping twelve stories into the air or going into politics. After a brief prologue in which he or perhaps in your backward universe she saves the world from terrorists, the leader of the Third Street Saints becomes the president of the US and starts running the country into the ground so hard that it threatens to tunnel right through the earth and end up under China, in some starkly literal visual metaphor for the global economy. But fortunately, aliens then invade, blow everything up, kidnap you, and seal you in a computer simulation of the city of Steelport from Saints Row 3. How considerate of them to spare the developers the task of designing an all-new sandbox. But unlike Crackdown 2, which copy-pasted the previous game's sandbox out of some conflicting desire to both make a new game and also sit around in its pants-eating KitKats, Saints Row 4 uses the old sandboxes are setting for new gameplay along the lines of, well, Crackdown coincidentally, with more than a dash of prototype, albeit with a more philosophical approach to senseless death and violence I'd say. So after you fly across the city and sprint up a building you perform 50 story power bombs onto dudes dressed as giant hot dogs.
dogs as opposed to grandmothers. Within the first half hour, Saints Row 4 has managed to parody Modern Warfare games, Armageddon, Independence Day, The Matrix, and Space Invaders solely through the medium of explosions and without a single pause to breathe. Well, it's a hell of a lot more grounded than Saints Row 3 was, I'll say that. No, really, I mean it. Imagine a chart with one horizontal line labelled Saints Row 2 Quirky Crime Sandbox, and another above it labelled Saints Row 4 Mad 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 Mad, then Saints Row 3 kind of sine waved back and forth between the two. Either sit in the car and enjoy the drive, or get out and stick your head in a satchel full of vodka-infused panda guts. Don't keep indecisively going from one to the other, you'll just ruin the upholstery. Saints Row 4 represents the final completion of the task that began with Saints Row 2, cleaning off the greasy and unpleasant coating of subpar GTA knockoff, but having done that, it's weird that this game reminisces so much about all the stuff we've finally gotten rid of, with characters and scenes from every previous game showing up. Investment in the series is kind of necessary, which fortunately I have, but for one thing the game vastly overestimates my esteem for the character of Johnny Gat, who stops just short of turning into Jesus Dalai Lama Christ. But subpar GTA knockoff is now completely rinsed off to reveal the cock and balls patterned pyjamas of wacky comedy which can only be judged by the metric of whether it made me laugh. Oh you cunning sod, Saints Row 4. I was really looking forward to judging you for your shitty alien weapons and irritating knockback physics. Well, it generally made me laugh, it remains the master of the kind of comedy one extracts from twatting people into orbit with giant floppy cocks, but fell flat at times. Entire sections of the game try rather cockily to take the piss out of other video games, but these occasionally take a bit of a suck on Duke Nukem Forever's tainted armpits by failing to understand the difference between parody and reference. One brief chapter, for example, is entirely a piss take of Metal Gear Solid. At one point you put on a cardboard box and shuffle around grabbing people from behind, but that's not a joke, that's just what they do in Metal Gear Solid. If you're going to mock through imitation, you need to at least stand behind them putting on a derogatory face while you're doing it. Or, and here we're moving into advanced lessons, kick them in the bollocks. Otherwise you just look like the little dwarf version of Marlon Brando from the island of Dr. Moreau. Saints Row 4 also gets a lot of use out of licensed music. The terrorist foiling in the prologue is lent a certain charm by happening to the tune of that one Aerosmith song from the Armageddon soundtrack that everyone seems to be faintly embarrassed to admit is kind of alright. And there are several other examples, usually to quite positive effect, but I eventually realised that the reason for it all was that they did the sandbox crime game thing and licensed a bunch of commercial songs to play on the car radios before realising that there is literally no reason to use vehicles because you can run like an escaped chicken through a redneck sex dungeon, so they just crowbar the music in wherever. Having given us superpowers right at the start to enhance our sandbox fuckybouty fun, the story mode then spends the entire game regretting having done so. About half of the plot missions contrive a reason for your powers to not work, you may wonder why you're even bothering to spend upgrade points on the things. But the final boss fight is a fittingly climactic superpower slam down that rounds things off well, although one thing I liked is that you get health back by killing people, it keeps the pace up. Previous Saints Row games had that problem where your only recourse when wounded is to run to the bathroom for a little cry, but for no particular reason that power is removed in the final boss fight, so it was back to spending half the time sitting in a ditch sucking my thumb. On the whole, Saints Row 4 wears a lot of hats. Sandbox driving, sandbox superpowers, wacky comedy, sci-fi action, game parodies, character building, a metric twat ton of features and gameplay modes thrown in, used once and thrown away, like it's happy hour at the redneck sex dungeon, and taken as a whole, it's a complete mess. But as the end result of a series that has been gradually moving towards a point of maximum mess, I'd say it does its job pretty fucking well. It's a mess, but it's a fun mess, like having rough sex with a bowl of warmed up potato salad. And despite its best efforts to look like it couldn't give a shit for your rules, man, it's generally funny and the gameplay is generally challenging enough that I never felt overpowered. You see, it takes a lot of care to make a game that looks completely carefree. Yeah, fucking write that one down, wiki quote. It's getting kinda hard to be a Suda51 fan these days, mainly because when you buy a new Suda51 game, the degree of influence Suda51 actually had over it is becoming a bit of a grey area. It's kind of like the relationship Rupert Murdoch has with Australian election results. So I played through Killer is Dead, the latest game open quotes from legendary developer Suda51 blurbity blurb box blurb, only to find that he's mainly credited under story and that the director was some other lad. I'm starting to wonder if he was ever truly real. Maybe he's some kind of mythical pixie of which game developers are told stories when their parents tuck them in at night. Now if you're very very quiet, maybe Suda51 will come visit your game in the night and give it an anarchic post-punk sensibility by sprinkling it with Morrissey's tears. Or maybe it's some kind of equivalent of Alan Smithy in films, like a Japanese game developer 
doesn't want to be credited for a game they created drunk and in the midst of a messy breakup stroke Vietnam flashback, so they call it a Suda 5-1, 5-1 being some kind of numerical code for shit goes round the Billy Blue bollocks. Well, whatever the case, Killer is Dead is now part of our storied little world, and from the title and art style, one could be forgiven for assuming it to be spiritually conceived from a turkey baster of sperm donated from Killer 7, the 2005 pile of archetypal Suda 5-1 anarcho nonsense that I really like, because I'm very happy to watch a man dressed like a Power Ranger explaining his political views at full volume while doing a very silly dance, as long as there's a sturdy sheet of glass between me and him. But there's not a whole lot that links the two games besides the fact that the main character is an assassin working for a larger organisation. Um, Suda, I just want to check, you do know that there are other professions in the world besides contract assassination, yes? Like that nice lady at the chemist who gives you your pills? That's actually her job, she doesn't do it just to kill time in between decapitations. It's crazy, I know. And while we're on the subject, people who actually are assassins tend not to use Japanese swords. It's like wearing Wellingtons to a formal dinner, a faux pas if nothing else. Anyway, today's sword-wielding assassin protagonist is Mondo Zappa, whose interesting qualities kind of begin and end with his name, frankly. He looks like a nine-year-old boy got stretched on a rack for three days and then someone gave him a robot arm and a school uniform. He also might be from the moon and was brought here by a magical unicorn, which I know sound like interesting qualities, but trust me when I say that he finds a way to make them seem dull. He's from that school of characterization that thinks there's nothing cooler than being incapable of showing emotion, because of course my granddad's been getting pussy like he wouldn't believe ever since he had the stroke. So as Mondo inevitably starts uncovering dark secrets from his past, it's hard to get much sense of narrative clout from it all when he has roughly the same reaction to finding a hair in his lucky charms. But lest you think I'm ripping exclusively on Mr. Awesome McLaser bollocks, his boss is a giant combat-ready cyber dude in a Hawaiian shirt who spends the entire game sitting on his ass. I wonder if he had to choose between buying his combat-ready cyber body or a nice comfy ass cushion. I wonder if he ever regrets his decision. My point is, an expository cutscene in Killer is Dead involves a bunch of people sitting around a table in a dimly lit room quietly saying mysterious things at each other. An expository cutscene in Killer 7 involves a masked Lucha Libre wrestler deflecting a bullet by headbutting it. Not that everything would be improved by a headbutting Lucha Libre wrestler, just 99.5% of things. For some reason I'm picturing election debates, and it's certainly more tonally consistent with the gameplay, in which you run around dicing up nondescript monsters like their carrots and you're trying to flog katanas on the home shopping network. The combat's pretty No More Heroesy, which was never extensive at the best of times. Mash, 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 dodge, run away, symbolically masturbate. But Killer is Dead pairs it down even further. You mash and you dodge. Dodge at exactly the right moment and they let you have a free mash for a few seconds, that's about it really. It's an entirely mash-based economy like the cafeteria at my old middle school. Well, there are also sub-weapons, a gun, a drill thing with a weird action that looks like you're pointing out a stain on somebody's tie, but they're mostly kind of situational and I only really use them so as not to disappoint the nice ladies in whose vaginas I had found them. Yes, this is where the game about people from the moon slicing up overdressed cyborgs starts to get a bit weird. You get sub-weapons by seducing women in what are termed gigolo missions, to which I am grateful for teaching me the never-fail method for picking up women. Sit staring at them without saying a bloody word with a constant look on your face like you just caught a whiff of their panty stank and it did very little to impress, and whenever she looks away, stare right down her tits like you're planning a spelunking expedition. Then, having brought the mood in the room to a simmering erotic tension, shove an expensive present in her face with such violence that if she'd been an inch closer, she'd need a sink plunger to pull her nose back out. Repeat until sex, at which point she will give you a drill. See, where I was going wrong was assuming that women aren't power tool vending machines with one slot for flowers and another for cock. Story missions and gigolo missions are entered into from the world map, on which there are also many optional challenges set in environments from completed missions, and if you step back a bit you'll notice that all the optional challenge icons seem to form the words, the campaign turned out a lot shorter than we thought it would. You see, however involved Suda51 was in the many games purported to be from him, most of them have more than a few things worth a double take. Killer7 threw energetic non-sequiturs at you like a burning panda in a dentist's waiting room, Shadows of the Damned had that eloquent Big Boner episode, but Killer is Dead doesn't really have anything you'd call a friend over to look at in the hopes he spit-takes his cappuccino. Well, it does come alive when you fight a roided-up demonic Thomas the Tank Engine, but otherwise it all feels a bit unenergetic and cold. Even the whole business with people from the moon feels kinda 
token as far as non-sequiturs go. There's a chapter with an Alice in Wonderland theme that juxtaposes horror with tweeners. Man, why hasn't anyone else ever thought of that? Alice in Wonderland is basically writer shorthand for put something surreal here, and it just reflects a lack of creative effort if you ask me. So on the whole I'd call Killer is Dead a disappointment, almost as much as waking up to find that the country you live in has elected as Prime Minister an overinflated Tony Blair sex doll. If you're gonna call a horror adventure game amnesia, you might as well call a first person shooter bullets. It'd be quicker to list horror adventure games that don't involve amnesia in some way, it's the reliable old menopausal cart horse of video game narrative, but especially adventure games, you wake up in a room with no memory of why you're there or who you are, and can only find solace in your predicament by stealing everything that isn't nailed down. Fortunately, lest one get confused, the Amnesia series is the master of the clarifying subtitle, firstly The Dark Descent, because it's chiefly about descending into a place that's very dark, and now A Machine for Pigs, which is about a big machine with a lot of pigs involved. As subtitles go, it's certainly informed if a little off-putting, but that's kind of why I like it. Because I can picture an average big-name publisher looking it over, lips moving and brows hanging low over his beady little eyes, then looking up and saying, couldn't we just call it Amnesia Revelations or something? The Dark Descent was a miserable, horrifying experience that really cheered me up, it being the only horror game in years that understood subtlety and atmosphere and how little they are improved by micropayments. And right from the title screen of m for p I knew I was in for a good time when a large stringed instrument started threatening to eat me. If you need some kind of primer on the first Amnesia game, put on a blindfold and shit yourself, that'll about bring you up to speed. Don't worry about the plot, because the new one is largely unconnected besides the fact that it's basically the same plot. You are a very British man who wakes up alone in a spooky mansion with the eponymous head fart, and must make his way down through an increasingly scary environment, gradually piecing together why it's gone all scary and how involved you were in the process, and I'll put down a spoiler warning here in case you work in the paint tasting factory, but the answer is a lot. More specifically, you are looking for your missing children, which a mysterious and very trustworthy sounding voice from a telephone says can be found if you descend through a giant broken down machine, and actually while you're there, if you wouldn't mind reacting it, that'd be grand. And I'm sure this will all work out entirely for the best. What do you call this one? Duck egg blue? Yum! Tastes like dying brain cells! The ancient castle and dungeons of Amnesia the Double D have been replaced in Amnesia a sausage for breakfast with a Victorian industrial theme, with all the delightful things that come with it, copper pipes, steam, child slave workers getting their little heads caught between gears until they pop like fragile china teapots full of beef casserole. The game does a good job of making the titular machine feel like a groaning inescapable monster given a hideous lurching life by whirring engines and boiling steam, with you an insignificant speck lost uncomprehending in its workings, like a terrier in a sex orgy. Dehumanisation is a central theme, and the whole pig motif gets worked to death, like the liver of someone playing a drinking game where you take a shot every time pigs are mentioned. Hey, the pigs are an analogy for human beings in the eyes of an uncaring industrialised society. Did that come across? Yes, thank you, Amnesia, you're very clever. It is all rather effective, and like the previous Amnesia, if you don't find all the text documents and shit, you might feel a bit in the dark on what the fuck's going on, as well as in the dark generally. But you might as well look for all the documents, because there's not really much else to do. Quite a few gameplay features have been stripped out, starting with the sanity meter, which was probably smart. I don't like when a game tries to tell you how you feel. You are scared. This number says you are scared. Pull a scared face. When it could just be, you know, scaring me without trying to keep score. It's like when a game introduces a lone female character who you talk to for five minutes and then it says, you love this person, go rescue her. But on the other hand, the sanity mechanic in the first game afforded mystique to the monsters by discouraging you from looking at them, and now you can just ogle them to your heart's content, you freak. Also, your character is apparently wearing some kind of one-piece leotard with no pockets because there's no inventory and carrying a physics object from one room to the next is about as complicated as puzzles get. Having to back and forth between several rooms trying to solve inventory puzzles while a monster is sniffing about with eyes on the prize of your thighs is a thing of the past, and your path through the machine is mainly a linear sightseeing tour, occasionally spawning monsters to chase you to the next part when it feels like you're not taking things seriously enough. A significant portion of the way through the game I ran into a pigman. Say the pigman represent- Yes, very subtle amnesia, well done! In a little network of passages trotting along a path, then turning around and trotting back, requiring me to pick the right moment to stealth past. Blimey, I thought. 
thought, I think I just found the first bit of fucking gameplay in this game. But even when I did get trapped and trotted to death, I just woke up in an unlocked cage elsewhere on the map, and while being chased through a darkened factory of death by a pig man squealing like his pork scratchings got caught in a door hinge is not something I would enter into without first making room in the household budget for reupholstering the computer chair. Not being killed takes the edge off a bit, and for all that dingy tunnels and noisy plumbing can do to build the atmosphere, I went away with a distinct awareness of how infrequently I was ever in actual danger. Not that you know that. In the first playthrough at least you're about ready to squirt piss out of every single orifice at the merest whiff of bacon, but looking back I almost feel cheated, like the maintenance man showed up three hours late and just stood outside my window making ominous noises with his lips. If you are after horror, then Amnesia A Question of Sport is still several thousand times more worth your time than, for example, actually surprisingly lively Space 3. The atmosphere and writing are rock solid, but with the simplified gameplay it's a bit too linear and over too quickly. And even the story was kind of losing me towards the end. There's a bit when some big atrocity is supposed to be taking place in a city and you're running through the streets as it's happening, but the Amnesia engine is suited mainly for exploring narrow hallways, obsessively checking desk drawers, and seems unwilling to let you interact with any character that doesn't have its jawbone stapled to its kneecaps, so the atrocities are all going on off-camera. I know that the guiding principle is that what you can't see is scarier, but if violence against an innocent is supposed to horrify me, it would help if I'd in some way seen or heard from them before they got liquidised. Being hunted through a tunnel by something that's gonna pull my twat out through my nose if it finds me, now that is horror I can get a sense of. The sense is smell, and the smell is piss. Couldn't keep away from this game forever, could we? Certainly fucking can't in the city I live in. The entire place is practically gift-wrapped in adverts and posters for the thing, they almost outnumber the blokes in singlets and flip-flops calling each other cunts. I had to go down to Melbourne for a bit, and I was faintly relieved at not seeing any there, until one of the trams rolled by, absolutely plastered with the logos like it had gone at full speed through the last EB Games convention. You know what I noticed, though? A lot of the posters I've seen consist only of the head and shoulders of one of the characters with no attempt to sell the game, or make any reference to its content, just the title underneath, because they figure that's all they need. Here it is, they announced grandly throwing the sheet off the swill trough and jumping back as the pigs all thundered madly towards it. Yeah, I see what you were getting at now, Amnesia. So GTA 5 then, the fifth Grand Theft Auto after 1, 2, 3, Vice City, San Andreas 4, Chinatown Wars and all the other ones, adding up, not being one of Rockstar's strong points. GTA 4 was of course the game that taught the world that gritty realism and tragic character drama have their places, and that place is not the same place as the place where you can pile up all your dead prostitutes at the side of the road and then ramp off them into a big fire. I know you aspire to write stories with some complexity, Rockstar, and that player is insisting on selfish trying to have fun in your game must be very frustrating, but you kind of brought this on yourself when you decided that TWAT would be a funny name for an internet cafe. GTA 5 tries to cunningly hedge its bets by constantly swapping between three different protagonists in the hope you'll like at least one of them, but that smacks of gambler's fallacy to me. It's entirely possible to toss three coins and have them all come up tails, or indeed for two to come up tails and the third to shoot up your dog's ass and give your dog bowel cancer. Franklin is probably the closest to being the protagonist protagonist, because he does the standard GTA straight man thing where he rolls his eyes exasperatedly at every random weirdo who thinks flagging down passing pedestrians is the best way to put out a contract hit, but meekly follows their instructions anyway like a passive-aggressive husband. Michael, by comparison, is a very active-aggressive husband who retired from bank robbing to spend more time screaming at his family and breaking things. And then there's Trevor, who seems to be an attempt to represent the standard mode of behaviour of a GTA player in that he's a filthy amoral psychotic with the innate likability of an incontinent honey badger in a whorehouse kitchen an hour before the health department inspection. But my major beef is that none of these characters are likeable, it's not because they, you know, kill people and shit. Lord knows I can't throw stones in that department at least not till I've cleared the basement out, they're just poorly written and inconsistent, which may reflect the fact that their dialogue was being written by enough people to choke a sarlacc, Franklin just comes across as whiny, and Michael, having realised that all his ill-gotten wealth has done nothing to bring him happiness, seems to think that the logical solution would be more ill-gotten wealth. To that end, we have the heist missions, which is the big new feature after taking fat dudes on dinner dates didn't exactly ignite our pubes last time around. And it's not a bad concept, you plan a robbery mission and do some recon and vehicle stashing tasks before the caper itself. Well I say plan, you plan them in the same sense that you 
plan a Sunday drive down a one-way street, because like all the missions, they bear the increasingly omnipresent sandbox paradox. Total freedom when outside missions and when inside total instruction-following simulator that fails you out of fucking nowhere because you got in the wrong car or went two feet the wrong way and the game just felt like things were getting weird. The extent of your input is picking which of two predetermined package tours to use and what crew members to bring. Their stats increase as you use them, but since each one is only available for like two heists apiece in the whole game, it doesn't mean a whole lot. The protagonists also have RPG-style stats incrementing away in utter pointlessness. Leveling up your flight skill can mean the difference between planes handling like both your wings are stuck up a sumo wrestler's arse and handling like the sumo wrestlers put on slightly aerodynamic hats. I suspect that this is all preparation for the mechanics of GTA Online, and how cunning of you, Rockstar, to hold off unlocking that until after I've submitted this review and stopped giving a $2 blumpkin about the game. Well, the joke's on you, I just moved house and my internet wasn't hooked up anyway, bet you feel stupid now. But digressing back towards planes for a moment, why did the game force me to go through a plane flying tutorial after a story mission in which I had to fly and land a plane? Had the sumo wrestlers expressed some dissatisfaction with my performance, or is it just that this game is a mess? And not the potato salad molestation charges mess that was Saints Row, but an engorged mess of unrelated and clunkily tutorialised features. Lots of story threads, but no strong overarching one, mostly character A pisses off organisation Y somehow and fends them off for a while until character A slaps himself in the forehead and goes, I just remembered, I'm a murderer. Let's just murder whoever's got a narc on and then have a bath in his wife. Well, just to appease those champions of emotional stability who have been burning crosses in the front gardens of unimpressed game reviewers, I won't say there's no fun to be had. It's got some colour back into its cheeks and generally feels less like a fat old sheepdog has fallen asleep on the physics engine. I cringed a bit when it brought in buyable properties, but they unlock more missions and gameplay so there's a point to it other than just soaking up unnecessary money, as is the case in other sandbox games. There's not much that particularly made me go, Christ, who thought that was a good idea? Like that dinner dating business last time. But then again, there's also nothing that made me go, Christ, who thought that was a good idea because they were totally right to think that and I want to kiss their big soppy face. There's nothing that excites me that I can point to and call the defining moment. It's just a whole load of people doing stuff, which I admit is a fairly weak argument. World War II was just a whole load of people doing stuff, but at least getting your leg blown off gives you something for the next letter home. Dear mum, remember when my dance instructor said I had two left feet? Well, I've managed to redress the balance somewhat. P.S. Fucking hell! Lost planet, lost concept, more like. It's an odd duck, this series. It's the poor little franchise nobody wanted to play with. Started out with a nice little idea about fighting giant insects in robot suits on an ice planet, but didn't raise much more than a non-committal meh, possibly because of the annoying feature where your health constantly ticked down like you're allergic to mediocrity. Then it saw how popular co-op shooters were and went, hey, look at us, we can do that with Lost Planet 2. Although I think Lost Planet 2 was only co-op so that afterwards you'd have someone you could turn to and ask, what the fuck was that all about? What did we achieve? Who were we in the first place? And why were we all wearing bath tap Halloween costumes? But you may now gratefully forget about Lost Planet 2 because Lost Planet 3 is a prequel and back to being a single player action adventure on the nice planet with more of a narrative focus. Perhaps this will be what finally gives this neglected reindeer of a franchise its shiny red nose. Well, technically it is because the reindeer is now a heavy drinker. The story is told through flashbacks by a frankly irresponsibly old man, crushed by the kind of rockfall that will definitely kill you but is easygoing enough about it to let you jabber your entire life story to a granddaughter you have apparently never gotten around to introducing yourself to. The man, let's call him Jim because that's his name, came to the presumably ironically named planet EDN3 to work as a contractor in a base populated exclusively by people putting on absurdly overplayed comedy foreign accents of inexplicably wide variety. Like Captain Planet and the Planeteers all got jaded in their 30s and moved to a different planet to go and be Planeteers of. And they've all been sent there by the Nevek Corporation, who are evil because they are a corporation in a sci-fi game. They might as well have been called There's Shit We're Not Telling You Limited, formerly trading as Hope You Haven't Watched Any Alien Films Lately PLC. So yes, they're basically just Wayland Utani but refreshingly upfront about things, because everyone's fully aware that the planet's full of monsters and that the company could give two shits for their well-nibbled corpses. But they're all pretty philosophical about it, and in a way that's the problem. Jim joins the company, fixes some shit and kills monsters, after which Mr. Gabbity Greybeard in the future skips the story on a bit, saying, yeah, fixing shit and killing monsters basically became the routine at that 
that point, and I was like, well, I'm glad somebody else said it. But then having acknowledged that it's fucking boring, the game boldfacedly continues to be mostly about fixing shit and killing monsters. Monsters basically materialise every time you fix shit. It's like there's some kind of corporeal manifestation of the developers realising that there's supposed to be actual gameplay at some point. And if the protagonist doesn't give a budgie's kneecap for the risk of becoming lunch and reacts to it all with a pragmatic quip and weary sigh, then yay for him, but it's not exactly flipping my ball bag. By the way, I think I figured out why every character talks like they're from different wings of the It's a Small World ride, because when they're chatting over your radio you wouldn't be able to tell them apart otherwise. Most of them talk in that sarcastic, quippy, Buffy the Vampire Slayer style that makes you sound equal parts smug and high-functioning autistic. Hey, do you remember back in one of my E3 videos I made a very hilarious joke in which I pretended to mistake the Dead Space 3 trailer for a new Lost Planet? How strangely prophetic that very hilarious joke now seems. Dead Space moved into fighting giant monsters in the snow, and Lost Planet has moved into engineers fighting monsters in tight hallways. It's like the two franchises met each other halfway and started sloppily making out. So Lost Planet 3 features a lot of fast melee-focused enemies bum-rushing a man who can just about waddle around like his trousers around his ankles, but lacking some equivalent of the Isaac Clarke trademark hissy fit foot stomp, all Jim can do is back up and shoot like a heroin addict looking for a good parking space, and often gets lost amid pylons of squawking failures of nature, at which point the frame rate starts chugging frogspawn martinis because no amount of fiddly analog stick repair minigames can fix dodgy optimization. The game also tries to get you to take cover from monsters with projectile attacks because I think it might be in cahoots. Why not velcro your fat ass to this piece of wall? It's not like any monsters are going to try to rush you or spawn in behind you or anything. Now just hold still while I bandage your wounds with these strips of delicious bacon. Hey, Lost Planet 3, your combat's derivative and shite. Well, I can't think of what I could possibly do about that, replies Lost Planet 3, oblivious to the giant robot suit in the background holding up its hand and bobbing in its chair like an eager schoolboy. Oh, but this is covered in the plot. Nevland Ektani won't let you put guns on your giant robots because they're supposed to be for engineering rather than combat. Presumably this is also why by default it's armoured with cardboard and tinfoil and can take about one reasonably powerful titty twister before kicking you out, and can only bumble about the place with obnoxious slowness so that it doesn't shake up all the pallets of Coca-Cola it has to carry around as part of its engineering work. It's a pretty good skive that, isn't it though? No, no, the game has to be boring and shit, because the plot says so, hands tied. If only right to hell had thought of that. Okay, Jake, we're just gonna start banging you over the head with this crowbar, say when as soon as everything makes sense. To be perfectly honest, I didn't play all the way through Lost Planet 3 because I had an expo to get to, so maybe they do put a gold-plated crotch ballista on the giant robot after a while, but if it does it takes way too long to get there, and there was something about the voice recording that was really scraping my taint. It's hard to explain, it sounds like all the lines were recorded with the mic too close to the actor's mouths, so every time they inhale it's like an affectionate dog is trying to suck my earwax out. Blimey, that's a small thing to have to try and get worked up about, but wait, if I was noticing something like that then the rest of the game isn't being engaging enough to distract me from it. Phew! For a moment there I thought I was being petty. I gave Lost Planet 2 shit, but you know at least it had a weird, grindy, bathroom, plumbing, costumery based identity of its own. Lost Planet 1 could be charitably described as doing its thing as well. Even the constantly draining health at least marked it out in some way, like a spear made out of frozen bullshit, but Lost Planet 3 seems to have made every effort to throw off any actual unique identity the series had in favour of stringing together a cardboard mantle sewn together from other people's cast-offs. It's dead space without horror, it's aliens without excitement, it's trying to fuck a sofa cushion without an appropriate level of determination. As anyone who's eaten Tex makes before a long plane ride will tell you, colons can be very problematic. I fucking hate saying the title Beyond Two Souls, because you have to mark the colon with a little pause, or people think you're saying Beyond Two Souls, as in more than two souls. So three souls then? Four souls, dare we dream? But if you take off either part of the title then people won't know what you're talking about. I've been playing Beyond. Beyond what? Beyond the limits of social acceptability? No, I mean I've been playing Two Souls. Oh right, isn't that that really hard game from Buy Software? I mean Buy From Software. No, that's Dark Souls. 
Oh, so you were playing some kind of game about the exploration of several human sphincters. No, that's assholes. The whole colon title separation thing is predicated on the irritating trend that all games must at least pretend to be launching some kind of larger franchise, but frankly after this game I wouldn't start holding out much hope for Beyond 2, some more souls we found in our hedge. Beyond- oh, fuck that. The Ellen Page Variety Hour comes to us from David Cage, a man who is himself caught between two worlds, eager to single-handedly spearhead a unique genre of interactive narrative, but at the same time possessing the writing ability of a half-melted chocolate bunny rabbit. His previous game, Heavy Rain, switched between ridiculous high-octane quick-time event scenes and prolonged sequences of someone bumbling around a house looking for objects and surfaces to momentarily rest their gonads on. Like if someone intercut Dragon's Lair with security footage of my living room on the morning of a major deadline. Ellen Page Palooza does thankfully tone things down a bit with the bumbling, well depending on your personal bumble capacity, but without bumbling the game is little more than a linear sequence of actions, each firing off only after you press the button prompt, and the great thing about this is that you can recreate the exciting interactive narrative experience by watching any normal film and pressing the pause button every two seconds, or by strapping yourself into a Chinese water torture machine that asks you for your consent before every single fucking drip. Previous games have attempted broad multi-character stories that all spectacularly collapsed, so this time the narrative focuses on a single character randomly flipping back and forth between key points in Ellen Page's life, from birth to childhood to teens to more teens to actually she never really moves past the teens. It is quite funny at one point when she's supposed to be a rogue CIA agent but she looks more like a 15 year old boy put on camo gear and drew all over his face with a black felt tip pen like Mummy's Little Insurgent. Anyway, Ellen Page is really sad her whole life because there's an invisible ghost following her around who kills everyone she doesn't like. Fucking suck it up, Ellen Page. Some of us had to make do with rat poison growing up. But no, the ungrateful tart spends half the game sounding like she's about to start crying and the other half crying. Actually, everyone in this game cries like altar boys after lights out. You could use their faces to irrigate the Sahara, since, you know, the emoting thing doesn't seem to be working out. I do think it's churlish to criticise facial animation when just ten years ago you'd be lucky if characters opened their mouths when they spoke, but having said that, whenever someone's supposed to be at the limits of screaming emotion in this game, they look more like they're concentrating really hard on trying to do a horse impression. The Ellen Page David Cage Rage Gauge pulls a very mean fast one by letting you think there's actually going to be some fucking gameplay in it. There's a stealth tutorial early on when Ellen Page is training for the CIA in a sequence born out of David Cage watching the start of The Silence of the Lambs at some point, introducing such mechanics as using your ghost murderer friend to scout ahead and clear paths, as well as cover mechanics and pre-animated takedowns, which normally would excite me about as much as a lukewarm sponge on a dead cat's face, but I'll fucking take it if it means we can finally have some action that isn't a sequence of quick time events cracking off like farts from a row of nervous pigs. The problem is that besides the tutorial, these mechanics are used on only one other occasion, which by staggering coincidence happens to be the bit that was in the gameplay trailers. Now that's just dishonest, David Cage. What was the thinking? Yeah, people might get pissed off with how little organic gameplay with invisible murderer ghosts there actually is, but I reckon by that point they'll have been drawn into Ellen Page's heartwarming struggle to kiss a succession of hunky boys. And for the record, despite Ellen Page I'm still just a rat in a cage, contains the most retarded attempt at a token multiplayer mode I have seen since the amazing back-titted woman. It's the same as the single player, but one player controls the page master and the other controls her imaginary friend. But since neither character can do anything while the other is in control, you might as well just pass the controller back and forth. And it's pretty unfair if you ask me, if one of you gets to kick furniture around like a bored six-year-old with the upper body strength of Rowdy Roddy Piper, while the other, meaning no disrespect, has to be Ellen Page, the snotty handkerchief trapped in the body of a human being, whose secondary misbehaving invisible friend is the camera, to which her movement controls are oriented, so controlling her is like playing putt-putt with a gym ball and a breeze block on the end of a stick. If you are playing as Ellen Page, then when you're at a point when you have to switch to the other player to make the plot move forward, it won't do so until you press the button. So at least that provides a way to glean some amusement from the experience. I know it says to press the button, but I don't know, maybe some secret will be revealed if we watch this idle animation another eight or nine times. Buried somewhere in the concept of piloting a telekinetic ghost with a grudge against furniture, there may be a nice little idea for a game, but in the hands of Quantic Dream it is like an arthritic horse trying to hold a china teapot. For a company so bent on exploring video game storytelling, you'd think they'd get less shit at it. The tone and atmosphere wobble insanely back and forth like the wheels on an insolent supermarket trolley, so one minute Ellen Page is exploring the grim realities of 
of homelessness and the next she's using spirit magic to fight Native American demons with a pair of hunky boys. All the characters' actions bear about as much resemblance to believable human behaviour as a camel licking sweat off your forehead does to a whirlwind holiday romance. About the best thing Quantic Dream games do is provide material for David Cage's psychological profile. What struck me after this one is that he's got a really patronising view of poverty. Nobility and quiet intelligence go up in inverse proportionality to the character's bank balance, while rich characters all seem to end up taking drills to people's hoo-hahs. Maybe he's just trying not to alienate himself to the people he might have to go and live with if he keeps making games like this fucking shambles. I suppose the biggest release of the week would have been Pokemon X and Y, and while I'd have loved to use the phrase, I opted for Pokemon Y because that was the question I kept asking myself, I think we pretty much covered all this with Pokemon White. Pokemon is like antipsychotic medication, designed for use by mad people, and for some reason it just doesn't work on me. And while it might be momentarily amusing, seeking my opinion on Pokemon is at this point like seeking the opinion of Charlton Heston at the end of Planet of the Apes. God damn us all to hell, you say, that's exactly the kind of outside-the-box perspective we need on this planning committee. Fortunately, Nintendo always have something for everyone, as long as they're under the age of nine, and also recently put out an HD remake of The Legend of Zelda Wind Waker for Wii U, which just so happens to be one of my favourite Zeldas, so fuck it, it's been a while since I've done the retro review thing, and the only mon I'm willing to poke is the mon's pubis, if you see what I mean. Wind Waker was of course originally for the GameCube, the last console Nintendo made for normal people, albeit with a controller envisioned by someone looking for a kaleidoscope. Wind Waker pioneered a cartoony cel-shaded aesthetic that at the time garnered a mixed response from the neophobic cretins of the world, who have all since cracked their skulls open on their vintage tin lunchboxes to the delight of a grateful nation, while most attempts at realistic graphics from the GameCube Cube era now look like Skynet's ill-fated attempt at Play-Doh-based Terminators, Wind Waker's exaggerated characters and flat colours looked fine and still looks fine. It's still pretty much the only Zelda game in which Link has the ability to convey any emotion besides doped up by Tranquilizer Dart, or momentarily surprised from being hit by a Tranquilizer Dart. I can only imagine the panic in Nintendo's HD remake department when they were given this job. It still looks fine! What can HD possibly add? Make the GUI smaller so we can fill even more of the screen with featureless blue ocean? Calm down. We'll do what we usually do. Keep adding bloom till it looks like your glass need cleaning. What I like about Wind Waker over, say, Twilight Princess is that it doesn't take itself so fucking seriously. Link is dripping with visual personality entirely distinct from the player's actions. He's profoundly thick, almost to the edge of the special school spectrum, but earnest and endearing with it. He doesn't put on the green uniform because he was destined to by the will of the Force or whatever it is, but because his nan was forcing him to take part in Ocarina of Time cosplay. And you can wear lobster pattern gym jams instead after the formality of the first playthrough. I couldn't picture Twilight Princess Link rocking the lobster pattern gym jams, unless they'd been soaked overnight in a grimy pond. The point is, Wind Waker Link doesn't march about with self-righteousness jammed up his ass like a frozen tentpole because he's naturally destined to be oh so bloody great at everything. He's a character with flaws and goals. Rescue sister, drink soup, take photos of everything for some reason. That's engaging. A cardboard mute predetermined by fate to absentmindedly bumble his way to success is not. Admittedly, that sort of thing does start seeping into Wind Waker later on when Princess Zelda shows up and starts blandly puppy-dogging her way through every scene, but by then I'm invested. I can see why the sailing turns people off Wind Waker, which is like saying I can see why internal hemorrhaging turns people off having sex with Godzilla. Sailing's a pretty major fucking part of it. You have to make lengthy journeys across open sea to get absolutely anywhere, occasionally being harassed by what looked like juggalo helicopters. Every time you want to make a turn, you have to stop and do two-thirds of the YMCA dance to make the wind change direction, and if you want to map the ocean, you have to find the one fish in every single sector who will update your map if you feed him crumbs and let him talk your ear off for five minutes like a mother you never call. Link having gone out of his way to bring a shield he barely uses but didn't think to pack a fucking biro. But I like it because the huge ocean unbroken by loading screens lends the game that eternally misused adjective. 
narrative epic. And all kinds of adventures could ambush you on the way from A to B. Maybe a giant squid will attack, maybe you'll stumble upon the island of topless cucumber farmers, and from a certain point onwards you can just warp around if you're the sort of person who fast forwards through the titty shots in Shannon Tweed films. But in the remake, there's a faster sail you can find that automatically changes the wind for you, which is like fast forwarding through everything but the titty shots, so well done there. But no sign of an unlockable ball gag for the fucking fish. The remake is weirdly selective about improvements. Previously, for example, towards the end of the game you needed to find seven charts marking the locations of the Triforce shards at a point when the sailing back and forth is finally wearing thinner than a cheap dress shirt crossing an event horizon. But now there's only three charts and the other four shards are just where the charts used to be. I'd have said to go whole hog or not at all, Mr. Fun should push Mr. Boring out the window and throw a meringue fucking party not strain to meet him halfway. Does the remake fix Link's tendency to target everything but what you actually want him to target, which Maya is an otherwise perfectly fine combat system like an angry duck in a bubble bath? Does it bollocks? Instead, you have a new ability to take selfies and put them in a bottle for other players to find like the oceanic equivalent of Instagram. Moving with the times, I suppose. Moving into a roadside ditch full of self-satisfied cum. And one last unfixed thing worth noting is that Wind Waker's economy is fucked. You get 30 bombs and 30 arrows right off the bat and every other enemy drops item refill pinatas so you never run low on anything. And then there's potions. If you bring a bunch of snot dribbles harvested from dead slimes to the potion man, you can get a potion that restores health or magic or health and magic if you hunt the very rare blue slime because you're mad. Or you could go to your nan, who will give you two potions that restore health and magic and double your damage for free. And you needn't so much as exchange nods with the slime for it. Nan, your hearty soup is flooding the potion market. Fuck Ganondorf, we need to save you from getting your kneecaps broke by the fucking potion teamsters union. Or, or, fuck potions and get by on heart pickups that constantly rain from the enemies like the organ donor van exploded. So that's not fixed, but then I suppose there's a limit to what the remake can fix before it stops feeling like Wind Waker, and for what it's worth, this is Wind Waker. Same game, same recessive potion industry, same repetitive fucking music, and it's good, because it's Wind Waker, and Wind Waker was good. That's about the final word. Except for this one, Minge Gurgle. When it comes to superhero adaptations, it's a shame that films always let all the talking get in the way of kicking people in the head so hard that your boot print replaces their memory of their mother's face, but films usually having only one or two villains at a time does seem like the smarter approach, because it was all very well in Arkham Asylum having a conga line of big names taking turns to get frowned at, but it does mean that by the time you get to the third game, you're really going to have to start digging through the cellars of the DC universe for fresh faces. But you know, in Arkham Asylum and City, all the big villains are already established veterans of the bad fisting, so if they'd brought them all back in the prequel to explore all their origins, I wouldn't have thrown more than three toys out of the pram. If it meant Arkham Origins wouldn't be trying to sell fucking Copperhead or Firefly as big name draws, your enemies shall define you, went the marketing tagline, in which case, Batman, you are one dull fucking son of a bitch. As our story opens, Bruce Wayne has been Batman for two years and the evil crime lord Black Mask, you know, this video will pass quicker if you stop pausing it to look up who the fuck these characters are, puts out a hit on Batman, despite him ostensibly being considered a myth at this point, but manages to attract an array of costumed assassins anyway, who presumably had nothing else to do with their weekend, including both Deathstroke and Deadshot, which is like inviting Matt Damon and Mark Wahlberg to the same party and insisting they wear the same outfit. But this is just the beginning as Batman uncovers signs of a dangerous new villain unlike anything Gotham has ever- it's the Joker, alright, and since his face is all over the fucking posters I spoil that with no shame whatsoever. What I wonder about though is how technology relates to the Arkham time frame. Despite being a prequel, everyone's using smartphones and high-speed internet, so Arkham Origins takes place broadly speaking now, and the other two games must have retroactively taken place in the future, then where 
where were all the jetpacks, fuckwit? And why does Batman start the game already with half the gadgets that you had to unlock over time in Arkham City? Does he just ditch his entire utility belt every now and again? Perhaps after it pulls his trousers down one too many times. This could be explained, but I get the strong impression that Arkham Origins just couldn't be asked to. And that's kind of the running theme. In every Arkham game, you're trapped in an enclosed environment and the only other people you run into are goons, to the point that it might be more efficient to just sprint through the streets with your fists held out. In Arkham Asylum, this was because you were trapped in a place specifically designed to securely hold goons. In Arkham City, they made a big point of how part of Gotham had been sectioned off to hold all the goons so they can all goon it up away from the eyes of the non-goon. But in this case, they don't explain it at all. This is just what Gotham City's like, apparently. 100% goon density. As soon as you graduate, it's straight down to goon recruitment to pick up your fingerless gloves and baseball bat. Unless you're a girl, in which case here are some pamphlets on ninja-ing. Also, the city is somehow smaller than the section of the city that the last game took place in. Again, there could be a reason for it. It's a prequel. Maybe there was a really fucking drastic development boom after this. But again, they couldn't be asked. Not about anything. What shall we do for the box art, Warner Brothers? Just make it a flat close-up of Batman looking sad, but don't let me catch you getting asked about it, or you'll be in trouble when I can be asked. Gosh, said two separate friends of mine, I would play Arkham Origins, but I haven't finished Arkham City yet. Well, you lazy fucks, my advice would be to finish off Arkham City and then lie staring at a ceiling for a while, and then you won't have to buy Arkham Origins, because you'll have had the essential experience. It is basically just Arkham City, and they could have done some things to hide that, like change the GUI or come up with some different gadgets, but as we've established, they couldn't be asked. At one point I started to suspect that some parts of the game world might have been directly copy-pasted from Arkham City's sandbox, but I was still not sure if that was the case. So either they did, and they're lazy assholes, or they didn't, and wasted a whole bunch of effort because I couldn't tell either way. There is less of a fantastical element than in the previous games, I'd say. More mercenaries with half-hearted gimmicks and less shape-shifting blob monsters, so that's something, I suppose. They're breaking new ground by very innovatively making the series more boring. I suppose Arkham Origins might be worth buying if you want more of the combat and raw gameplay of Arkham City, but DLC just isn't scratching that itch, and also you've been diagnosed with a catastrophic heart condition that has led you to demand a severe reduction in excitement. But then again, at any moment you might get hit by a bug and get finished off by impotent rage. There are fun bugs, like when the relative positioning has a little hiccup and a prone thug somehow manages to break his own arm while Batman does a little twist and shout six feet away. At one point a thug's animation died and he stood frozen in mid-swing, grinning cruelly as I circled his stationary form, perplexed. Sadly he ragdollized before I could start hanging Christmas decorations. Less amusing were the game-breaking bugs. I had my fair share of crashes and hangs with the PC version, and ran into what is apparently a common bug that prevents the completion of one of the Riddler side missions, but frankly I can't even manufacture rage about that. Oh damn, how galling, cause I was totally gonna do all of those. So Arkham Origins stinks of obligatory low effort sequel, but what I keep coming back to is that tagline, your enemies shall define you, cause it's true, Batman has the best villains in the business cause they all reflect an aspect of Batman. Two-Face reflects his duality, Scarecrow his use of fear and psychological tactics, Poison Ivy his, uh, shapely buttocks, but that whole element is lost with a D-list villain lineup. I don't know what the fuck Firefly is supposed to reflect unless Batman routinely overcooks his jacket potatoes. Bane is the rather dreary and anticlimactic final boss fight, but I'm not sure why. He's one of the mercenaries who are after the Bat bounty, but even after that gets withdrawn he retains an inexplicable obsession with getting a chance to twat that bat, going so far as to risk his own life to that end, when I'm pretty sure he's supposed to be a more pragmatic sort of bloke. I suspect, mealy-mouthed cynic that I am, that we owe his recent film portrayal for the pleasure of Bane's company, because he's kinda halfway between comic book Bane and old Mr. Face like a spider's jockstrap suddenly being the leader of a group of idealistic mercenaries. Doesn't have the jockstrap face though, wearing Tom Hardy's jockstrap on your face just gives the game away. I learned that at the Academy Awards.
Spunk on a bap. I've been playing so many sandbox games lately, my vagina feels like a rusty toaster. I've had to start drawing a little mini-map on my spectacles to adjust to daily life. And they're always so fucking long. Most of my weekends lately have been spent trying to plough through to at least story end, deflecting every side quest that clamours for attention like I'm walking down the city centre trying not to be noticed by earnest young people with clipboards. My last two reviews, if you'll recall, were an open-world sailing game and an open-world jumping on people from buildings game, and now having to chase those two with Assassin's Creed 4, you'll forgive me if these games have all started blurring together a bit. One could easily mistake Batman for Connor from Assassin's Creed 3, for example, because they both jump on people from buildings and have the personality of a high-backed leather armchair with a frowny face drawn on the cushion. But let's forget everything about Assassin's Creed 3, except for the fact that future Desmond died in it. We even get to see his future autopsy in Assassin's Creed 4, which was exactly the kind of closure I needed, frankly. But his ghost still haunts us because the evil corporation nicked his brain and extracted genetic memories from enough interesting periods of history to make at least 7 billion more Assassin's Bloody Creed games. Speaking of Batman, I'm reminded of that line from Heath Ledger's Joker, I think you and I are destined to do this forever. A line that proved slightly ironic for Heath Ledger, but a good summary of the weary resignation I have towards Assassin's Creed at this point. But I wonder if Ubisoft doesn't share my weary resignation to some degree, because the future plot's gone a little bit meta on us. Instead of future Desmond, we are now future silent protagonist, an employee for a French-Canadian video game developer being pressured to produce results by their evil corporate owners. Write what you know, eh lads? The evil Templars that run the world having hit upon the surprisingly sophisticated idea to use mass media entertainment to rewrite history in their favour, which may be Ubisoft attempting to address the elephant in the room before someone else does. God, isn't it terrible how popular culture rewrites and romanticises history to appeal to the lowest common denominator? Yes, I'm glad we agree. Now let's find some pirates and romanticise their bollocks off. The new historical protagonist is Edward Kenway, Welsh pirate and bastard, who refreshingly isn't even an assassin for most of the game, he just nicked one of their uniforms and started jumping on people from buildings as a sort of enthusiastic amateur, I suppose. What I'm noticing is that from number three onwards, Assassin's Creed has a tendency to introduce the main character in the assassin order and then let that whole side of the plot go back to bed so the game can party it up with historical figures and re enact famous events, with the main plot occasionally popping its head round the door to complain about the noise. Although if we're more about the history now, Assassin's Creed 4 has picked a much better setting than its predecessor, so instead of desperately trying to convince us that it's exciting to throw tea into a harbour, or watch some old men signing pieces of paper, we instead get to watch Blackbeard signing pieces of paper. Except his pen is actually a massive cannon, and the piece of paper is actually the hope anyone in the near vicinity had of getting a good night's sleep. So the plot busily introduces every famous name from the golden age of piracy and has them do the famous thing they did, while Kenway stands off to one side eating piratey popcorn. I could complain that this series just keeps going on and on and on, and seems like it really wants to go to sleep now, but someone keeps tasing it every time its head droops. But for the record, Ask Creed 4 is a particularly violent tasing that has added quite a bit of life. It actually shakes up the core gameplay in a way that Ask Creed 3's imaginary sofa manufacturing could only dream of, because I spent the majority of my time sailing rather than running through a city shoulder-clocking motherfuckers like I'm the music video for Bittersweet Symphony on Fast Forward. I know the sailing was in the last game, but it was only a side quest and I was doing the get-through-story mode as fast as possible thing. Hmm, yes, well tutorialised. Tell me, do I ever need to do this again? Well, not really, but it can help you make money to develop your homestead. Cherry bye! But now the sailing is central, rather than hanging off to one side like a beanbag chair stapled to an earring. Travelling the sea has that Wind Waker grand explorative quality, sea battles are fun, and when you board an enemy ship it seamlessly becomes Assassin's Creed again, counter-stabbing your way through a bunch of orbiting assholes, made only slightly annoying by all the friendly pirates whom you might have put some investment into recruiting, hovering around offering to block sword thrusts with their faces. I resented having to come back on dry land to do story missions because they'd almost always involve tailing someone, and when I've just got back from blowing the tits off a Man of War's figurehead and jamming their pert wooden nipples into the enemy quartermaster's eye sockets, it's hard to come back down to grandmother's footsteps. I really started loathing the tailing missions, especially when you have to stay close to your target without being noticed by them or any guards. So with one hand the game is your mother, pushing you out of your hiding spot to show everyone that funny little dance you learned, and with the other hand it is your father, beating you over the head with a chair leg because you made the mistake of being noticed before he'd had his morning drink. And the mere act of moving in Assassin's Creed sometimes feels like kicking a sack of potatoes around a cattle grid, and sometimes you think you're gonna hop onto a ledge and into a convenient bush, but Edward would rather grandly 
leap forwards, drop three stories and parkour roll into the people you're trying to tail, stopping just short of making jazz hands and going ta-da! Generally, missions lean slightly more open-ended sneaky stab and slightly less rigid join the dots destruction following than in 3, which is nice, but frankly, if I didn't feel the need to collect the unlockable sea shanty so my crew would sing some new ones for a fucking change, I might have been content to never go to towns at all. Cause the sailing's where the action is. Money has an actual use at last, because ship upgrades are expensive and that's an investment that adds to gameplay, rather than letting you corner the imaginary sofa market. But while sailing is a breath of fresh, salty air, I have the feeling that it cannot possibly be more than a fleeting dalliance for the series, as besides the golden age of piracy there are few historical settings into which sailing would integrate so naturally. And Assassin's Creed is not a series of individual games anymore, Assassin's Creed is a fucking line graph. The line went down a bit for Assassin's Creed 3, but now it's gone back up again and maybe it'll keep going up in the next one or maybe it'll take another plunge. What I do know is that this line graph is being drawn on what appears to be a very depressingly long piece of paper, at the end of which stands Ubisoft and I do not like the look of that stapler it's holding. There was a recurring Monty Python sketch where a group of middle-aged women would announce they were going to reenact some famous historical event, but every single event was represented by a hilarious speeded up handbag fight in a muddy field. I find myself reminded of it by the Call of Duty series. Every time I think it's going to do something else for once, it blows a whistle and everything descends into squeals and handbag slapping. Case in point, COD Ghosts. Not only is it not a game about the vengeful spirits hanging around English chip shops, but it's also not the game it purports to be in its own intro sequence. The Ghosts, as the name might imply, are ostensibly a legendary stealth unit that specialises in taking down larger forces through sneaky guerrilla tactics, so obviously one of the first things you do in the game is ram raids an enemy base in a burning truck and start gunning down every living thing from the dandelions on upwards. Yeah, that's some good ghost in there, lads. Truly thou art akin to the flicker of a candlelight shadow as you waddle around an open field being shot at from 19 different directions. The other thing I gathered ahead of time was that the plot would be about a weakened US fighting a superior foe, which would make a nice change from the usual case wherein the heroes jump all over vastly inferior foes for floating the idea that maybe the US could stop eating all the pancakes for five minutes. So here's the sit, the US has been invaded by all of South America. Okay, gonna have to stop you there, Call of Duty Ghosts. I get that all of your plots are birthed from the fantasies crossing the mind of a paranoid xenophobic fuckwit as he has violent grunting sex with a pile of damp moss, but at least he used to stick to foreigners who potentially are enemies of the US, and South America has better things to do with its time than sit around shaking its fist at your freedoms all day. At least as long as association football exists. Anyway, they attack America by hijacking America's orbital missile weapon. Okay, gonna stop you there again, Ghosts. Firstly, so much for the enemy being superior if they can't make their own super weapons and gotta pinch them like Safari Park baboons nicking the windscreen wipers, and secondly, orbital fucking missile weapon? This invasion is sounding more justifiable by the second, cause not only is the US outsourcing their weapons development to fucking Megatron, but they also appear to have exterminated every single member of their population who isn't a burly white dude. Just for fun I kept a running tally of all the characters in the story campaign who aren't burly white dudes and you are under no obligation to shoot. The final total was three. A female astronaut at the start who immediately dies, one helicopter that spoke with a woman's voice, and a black member of the ghosts unit who immediately dies. And frankly when that happened the main characters displayed less emotion than when their dog got shot. Damn it, the black guy died, they seemed to say. Now we can't claim to have tons of black friends while arguing on the internet. You play one of two burly white brothers whose burly white dad has been secretly testing them over the years to make them worthy of joining the ghosts, it never having occurred to him that they might prefer to become pastry chefs or something. The main baddie turns out to be a burly white friend of burly white dad who was captured by the enemy and turned to their side. Damn South Americans, it's not enough for them to steal our orbital doomsday satellites, they have to start harnessing the power of our burly white dudes as well. Also there's a dog, a German Shepherd, the burliest and whitest of all the dogs, which was a bit
bit of a unique selling point in the lead-up. He'll run out and savage South Americans at your command because he's been fed on an exclusive diet of neck-shaped burritos, and there are missions where you play as the dog, and finally get to do some fucking ghosting as you sneak around the long grass internally debating the choices at the throat buffet. I was gonna bring up Ghost Dog Way of the Samurai, but that might be too cosmopolitan a reference for this game. All of which would have had more of an impact if the dog got to be in more than two levels before the game goes, right, hope you got your money's worth, and sends him to the timeout kennel forever. Not that I was expecting him to tag along for the scuba diving bit, fucking amazing as that would have been, but the fact is, his role in the game is just another momentary gameplay gimmick. It would have been nice if he'd had some kind of personality besides being just another piece of military hardware for the armchair generals to masturbate over, although the same could be said of the human characters. Speaking of hardware, there are the standard apocalyptic coffee break sequences where you pull a remote control from the arse dimension and rain predator drone death down upon an enemy unable to in any way defend themselves or fight back, and you know what, I don't see how I'm supposed to have any grasp of the relative enemy threat when we may or may not be packing armfuls of super weapons we forgot to mention. Like after the enemy base ram raid, I'm told to pick off the stragglers with the robot sniper. Hold on a second, when did we set up a fucking robot sniper? What did we bring it here in? How did we set it up without the enemy noticing? Did we disguise it as a badger watching station? Incidentally, the ghosts are well fucking equipped for a guerrilla unit. Oh no, America has been attacked and is weakened and has no defences except an inexhaustible supply of tank battalions and an army of killer robots. And we would have had a doomsday satellite if the rest of the world hadn't gotten all weird about it, which they were entirely right to be because when the player wrestles control of the satellite back at the end, they immediately use it to wipe hundreds of thinking feeling blips off the map as casually as one would use a windscreen wiper on a rainy day. Yet again, it seems like they cut out every moment in the story that could have built context but didn't have any explosions in it, and if they hadn't added voiced plot dumps to the loading screens, the experience would have been as coherent as scrambled porn intercut with the fantasies of Tea Party members. And fantasy really is the word, the vehicles all handle like turbo-boosted magic carpets, lest anything requiring actual skill get in the way of your unpleasant paranoid battle glory daydreams so divorced from reality they might as well be taking place in fucking Narnia. So however you might have expected a game called Ghosts to differ from the modern shooter routine of meaningless violence and empty spectacle, you were wrong, you idiot. But somehow it's only getting worse. Black Ops 2 actually came across as at least slightly self-aware, and Modern Warfare 1 went so far as being profound, such as in that bit where you die slowly and horribly in a nuclear blast. If that happened in COD Ghost, you'd probably just fart all the radiation out in one big heroic guff, pull the broken glass out of your eyeballs, and then use it to shiv the Ayatollah. I woke up one morning to find that the entire city had been covered in a three-foot layer of man-eating jam. Last night, we were nothing. A freelance musician and an unemployed. But you know what we are now? Both unemployed? Unlike you people, I have no illusion as to my usefulness in an actual apocalypse. The most I can hope for is to die in a pose that confuses future archaeologists. How can you be a secret government agent when you're so bad at lying? I'm not a secret government agent, said X, lying badly. You think you're so great, don't you? Sitting around in your tall building with your offices and your windows. Well, you're not. My non-gaming friends often say to me, hey, we'd really like to play the best video games, which of the next-gen consoles do you think we should buy? 
To which I reply, why did you just make two completely unrelated statements? That was like saying, I want to join the Russian ballet, what colour should I paint my arse? Or I'd like to visit Morocco, how many times should I stick my head in a Corby trouser press? You want to play the best video games, you buy a PC or at a pinch borrow a PS2 from a time traveller. The best reason to buy a next-gen console will be if you're stuck in an overloaded elevator and the only way to get it to move is to subtract a substantial amount of weight from your wallet. But there is one thing that these two basically identical ring binder impersonating artificially restrictive PCs in boxes have to justify themselves, and that's exclusives, as in which individual games they have taken hostage. So let's pair them off into a series of vaguely connected comparisons and ultimately decide whether we're going to rescue Mary Jane or the busload of schoolchildren. Open world sequelizing. Open world sequelizing. You wouldn't rent out the Royal Albert Hall for a Who Can Spunk the Furthest contest, and you wouldn't make a console with the processing power of an autistic nuclear submarine without lining up some open world games to show it off. Hence a launch window that features Dead Rising 3 on the bone and Infamous Second Son on the pisser. Now Infamous 2, you'll recall, was one of my favourite games of that year, but a lot of my fondness for that game hinged on my understanding that it actually offered a decisive and satisfying ending for the series, rather than letting it eternally ride the sequel mill like some games I could Assassin's Creed, I mean mention. But on the other hand, Dead Rising 3 is a zombie game, and at this point I equate putting out a zombie game with presenting me a birthday gift wrapped in the paper from around a McDonald's cheeseburger. I don't even have to look inside to know that you're just not trying, are you? It also seems to have sucked out all the vibrant energy and turns an ugly shade of brown, like a crack whore covered in a thin film of cooking grease. So our first point goes to the piss parade. Historical revisionism, historical revisionism. I remember saying in my E3 video that Rise looks like what you'd get if you took the spunk gargle wee wee attitude of modern shooters and set it in ancient Rome, but having thought about it, maybe a sense of historical distance is precisely what spunk gargle wee wee needs. After all, the Romans were a bunch of imperialistic bastards who went around stomping all over inferior cultures, but no one begrudges them for it anymore, because they were spreading civilised society and life under Roman subjugation tended to have more orgies than previously. Thanks for laying the foundations of classical Europe, Romans, feel free to stop crucifying me now. On the other hand, we have The Order 1886 on PS4, also set in a time of European imperialism, but one everyone's still kind of embarrassed about, because the civilization spreading aspect got a bit lost in all the massive racism. Of course, The Order is less about imperialism and more about werewolves, I think. I kind of stopped paying attention when they brought out the steampunk standard FPS weapons, because my eyes started rolling like two frisbees in a front-loading washing machine. <laughs> Blatant, 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 nostalgia teasing. Blatant, blatant, nostalgia teasing. Blatant, blatant, blatant. The list of PS4 exclusives hints at an unnamed Uncharted sequel, whereas the Xbones list boasts unnamed Halo sequel. What a pair of teasers! You can almost picture their sultry eyes winking flirtatiously over their paper fans. Bet you're wondering what we're developing under these skirts, aren't you, big boy? Is it something completely predictable, formulated in desperation from an utter absence of new ideas? Uh, can we get back to you? I didn't realise that TBA stood for too bloody apathetic. Might as as well just give the point to the PS4 just because Uncharted hasn't sequeled its balls off to Halo's extent quite yet. It's got a bit of ball left, maybe, dangling morosely from its shredded crotch like a discarded mouthful of scotch egg. Driving about, 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 driving about. <laughs> the moment video games figured out how to make two things move along a path at varying speeds, racing gameplay had kind of come as far as it was ever going to. Well, games like Driver San Francisco sometimes put a fresh spin on it, but realistic racing games, enjoyed by the kind of people whose pet tortoises die of boredom, can't really do anything to innovate except include larger and larger varieties of real-world cars and racetracks. With that in mind, Forza Motorsport 5 promises 200 cars and 14 circuits. Except according to Wikipedia, Forza Motorsport 4 has 500 cars and 27 circuits. Now forgive me for flaunting my classical education here, but 200 is a smaller number than 500. You see, expecting next-gen consoles to evolve video games anyway other than graphically is like expecting the cat to guard your tuna sandwich. Oh but wait, Forza 5 will release additional cars as paid DLC. Oh well, that's alright then. Yeah, I think Sony win. Drive 
Fight Club might have been pushed back to next year, but at least it doesn't seem to be trying to screw us over so ineptly that you just want to swat them off and shout, forget it, I'll just punch myself in the balls. Fall in the night. Shoot us with. Fall in the night. Shoot us with. Fall in the night. Shoot us with. Killzone Shadowfall is about the evil Hellgast people being really resentful of the heroes having blown up their planet and killed their entire race. Cuh, just can't let anything go, can they? It's funny, if you read the backstory to Killzone, the running theme seems to be the Hellgast getting fucked over a picket fence left, right and centre, but we're supposed to hate them for bearing a grudge. They could easily work as the heroes if they didn't have the image problem. Glowing red eyes and Nazi hats, yeah, they could probably garner more sympathy if they swapped those out for some star-shaped sunglasses and a fez. Gameplay-wise, Killzone sadly seems to have few ambitions beyond look at the thing and shoot at the thing, whereas Titanfall pledges to mix things up with free running and mech combat. Multiplayer only, but with the apparent intention to work plot into the online matches somehow. An attitude I find always tends to pay off about as well as working a hedgehog into an egg slicing machine, but maybe... what's that? Titanfall is getting a PC release. Well, that undermines the whole cocking premise, doesn't it? So at the end of that, the PS4 has the most points in this baseless conjecture on games I haven't played competition, and therefore has a slight edge in the upcoming grimy basement knife fight. But viewer, there lies a world outside this grimy basement, the world of PC gaming. And all you have to do to experience it is come up the stairs and into the light, feel the rays of the sun and the cool breeze upon your skin, then go down some more stairs into the other grimy basement next door. As a child, I would gaze enviously at my friends with Nintendo and Sega consoles who needed only plug the cartridge in and be killing brain cells within seconds. I had a Commodore 64, and gaming on such things hinged on being able to confidently state that you will be equally keen to play Fantasy World Dizzy about half an hour from now. I remember thinking that while you can't use a console to write a letter or print the words sausage slaps all over the screen in varying colours, consoles were clearly the platform of choice for those who wanted simply to game without faff and nonsense. I found myself thinking about those days as I attempted to play Rise on the Xbox One, or as I have come to call it, the Xbox installing, and had to wait until it had finished faffing up and down the garden path. I put the disc in and up comes an exciting next-gen percentage that takes five sodding minutes to get to 1%. Don't worry, you don't have to wait till it gets to 100% before you can start playing. Okay, so what percentage do I have to wait for? I'm not telling you! Eventually the console let me pass the velvet rope like a disinterested theme park attendant and I found that my patience had earned me the privilege of watching an in-game progress bar instead. Oh well, at least all this installing means I won't have to faff about with the disc in future, I said aloud, as the Xbox coughed awkwardly and directed its gaze elsewhere. But let's move on. Rise is a blatantly misspelt historical hack and slash in which we play a Roman soldier named Marius, as in thank you Marius but our emperor is in another castle. The game opens with him finding the other castle in question and sealing himself in the panic room with Nero as barbarians besiege the city, at which point Marius starts recounting his life story, the death of his family at the hands of barbarians and his adventures as a Roman soldier in occupied Britain, fighting the forces of King Oswald and Boudicca, and at no point does Nero interrupt him to ask any pertinent questions like how the hell did barbarian invaders get all the way to the middle of Rome to kill Marius's family without anyone noticing? They're not exactly the ninja assassins of classical antiquity. And Boudicca wasn't the daughter of King Oswald, whoever the fuck that is, she was the wife of Prasitagus. Although that seems a petty quibble later on when Boudicca besieges Rome with fucking war elephants. Are you sure you're not misremembering Marius, mate? Must be that concussion you sustained while fighting the shark people from the planet Outlandish. Are you seriously gonna complain about historical accuracy, Yahtzee? Fair enough, I'll complain about originality instead, because the plot seems to have been written in five minutes by someone who watched half of The Eagle and half of Gladiator, while someone playing God of War in the same room occasionally fired a gun into the air. Oh fuck plot, we're just here to watch several thousand barbarians get stabbed to death in glorious next gen. Although the more realistic graphics get, the stupider it looks when enemies glitch around the battlefield in order to be in the right position for your pre-animated finishing move, like Nightcrawler has acquired a death wish. Combat's your standard light attack, heavy attack, oh no you don't counter, haha, <laughs> pre-animated finisher interlaced with quick time events, but you'd better make sure you don't miss any of those quick time events because if you do, the finisher will continue regardless and be pulled off without a hitch. Wait what? This is the next bold step forward, is it? Even less player involvement. Ten years 
years from now, games will have one button prompt at the start, labelled simply Resolve, and then play themselves for six hours while we tearfully jerk off with handfuls of cornflakes. I suppose the pertinent question is what was so bloody demanding about the game that only a next-gen console could contain its mightiness? Well, the environments are pretty, although the actual level design is insipid, and if you're gonna shepherd us around with invisible walls, then at least be consistent about it. Some ledges the same height as Marius he's content to pull himself onto, in full armour no less, he must have forearms like whale testicles, whereas at other times I got to watch Marius angrily hopping up and down next to an impassable chain that came up to his fucking shin, his dignified little miniskirt billowing with each hop, and dull level design meant I was constantly getting turned around and going back the way I'd came, especially if I'd had to fight a few dudes and watched pre-animated takedowns five or six more times so that the camera had been sweeping all over the place and keeping track of which way was north was like trying to keep track of which cup the ball was in during a Matrix fight scene on a merry-go-round. But yeah, I'd say the environments are pretty. Oh shit, I forgot, 10 out of 10. And it wouldn't be a next-gen launch title without mandatory hardware gimmicks, so you are occasionally invited to give the Kinect a stern talking to. You give commands to your men in the heat of battle by yelling them out loud, whereupon Marius yells them a second time which rather undermines the point of it all. But at times I had tremendous difficulty being understood. I've had problems like this before with speech recognition because my accent is on a permanent walking tour of the entire United Kingdom, so I found myself experimentally yelling fire volley in a succession of comedy American dialects. And there's only one voice command you can do at a time, so they might as well have let you shout whatever you wanted to fire the sodding volley. Indeed, there's also a button you can press to activate the command if you're too shy, but if you take that option they make you hold it down for about five seconds for no particular reason except to punish you for being a spoil sport. This is all part of a gameplay aspect wherein you command a squad of crack Roman troops in such a way that you don't have to make any actual decisions at all. Well, sometimes you can pick which of two different places to put some archers. Wow, just call me Stonewall fucking Jackson. And there's a repeated segment in which you and your fan club alternate between raising your shields and throwing pillums at pillocks as you advance in a straight line. Oh man, just what we needed! Even less decision making! It only happens at determined moments in the plot, but you know, if I could have blown a whistle and formed a tortoise at any time I might have appreciated it as a mechanic. I was gonna say it would really liven up the romantic scenes, but there are none. Who needs romance when we can watch limbs flying off in such a way that if smooth jazz was playing you'd think it was a Cinemax production? It really is the modern warfare shooter decked out in sandals and fashionable miniskirts, repetitive combat broken up by battle porn set pieces, the most powerful military force on earth presented as a victimised underdog to an inferior foe with massively overstated resources, and a protagonist who gets thrown aside and knocked out with clockwork regularity every time a scene transition is needed. All it needs is a central cast consisting exclusively of burly white to- oh. Well, let's just say the X-Bone starts as it means to go on, with a brick on the accelerator and a hose on the exhaust pipe. If you're noticing that these reviews have had more of an Xbox One leaning in this, the dawn of what I must now refer to as current gen as the phrase turns spiky and bitter in my throat, then well spotted, Field Marshal Observant, have a chip. I've had a bit of trouble getting hold of a PS4, they're like bars of soap in the bath, carved into very boring shapes. But everything seems to indicate that in the tradition of every console released in the last decade, both the piss and the bone are probably going to need a bit more time before they're worth getting. 30 or 40 years might be a good start. Yes, I am bitter, actually, because my TV's run out of HDMI ports, and I had to unplug my Elgato to fit the Xbox in. I know, where's my fucking Live Aid? But I digress. Dead Rising 1 was an Xbox exclusive, Dead Rising 2 was not, Dead Rising 3 is again. What a little strumpet you've gotten involved with, Microsoft. Have you asked what happened to Mr. GameCube in his open quotes exclusive relationship with Resident Evil 4? Capcom just ain't the marrying type. She's just gonna turn her moony eyes elsewhere when she sees your graphics all popping in like the top of a jam jar. Dead Rising 3 establishes very little at the start, but then it hardly needs to. In an intro sequence straight out of the Cutting Corners playbook, i.e. some arty close-ups of the world map intercut with text dumps, the game essentially tells us, zombies show up in a city and you basically know the rest. Who'd have thought that writing 
a zombie apocalypse story would start feeling a bit creatively stifling. Later on of course we learned that someone started it all on purpose. I'd spoiler that but it was spoiled well enough by the words Dead Rising on the front of the box. Hey Catcom villains, zombie viruses do not make good super weapons. What's easier to occupy, a city full of people shopping and mowing the lawn or a city full of murderers with a bite transmittable virus and no ambition in life except to bite things? Our protagonist is Nick Ramos, 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 look this up later, who in contrast to the squinty self-serving morally flexible meatheads heading previous games is a wide-eyed awkward nice boy who just wants to help, which gets a little bit incongruous when it cuts back to gameplay and he starts cracking skulls with a washing machine on the end of a dildo or whatever. So the combo weapons from Dead Rising 2 are back, in fact mostly the same combo weapons, not that I want the game to think that being the launch title for a major new console obliges it to put some fucking effort in. Now Dead Rising 2's combo system was a high maintenance sort of broad, why am I feminising everything this week, perhaps it's time I started online dating again. You could only make combos at a workbench and you had to use the exact right items the recipe called for. It wasn't one of those crafting systems that puts out after 10 pin bowling and a happy meal. But Dead Rising 3 will take whatever it can get. Oh you don't want to go to a workbench, just make combos where you stand. Oh you don't have the right items, just buy an upgrade that lets you use any item in the same category. Oh you don't even want to craft, just go to a weapons locker and fill your inventory with clones of any item you've touched, glanced at or heard about. Then perhaps I could put on some stocking suspenders and bring you a selection of mixed drinks and nibbles. Do you love me yet? Previously Dead Rising has been characterised by fairly meaty challenge and now it's gone a bit salady. I could go into every boss fight with three combo assault rifles and fucking take them apart like abstract art. Although in the last game you could make combos without the blueprint, whereas now you can't, which makes things a lot less organic. If you run out of weapons you can't just duck into a machine shop and start desperately rubbing things together hoping for the best, because Nick is unconvinced of the usefulness of taping a sledgehammer to a fire axe until he finds a random piece of paper on the ground attesting to it. When you find a combo blueprint the necessary items are always lying right next to it so you build it once right there and afterwards you can summon it endlessly from the weapons locker cornucopia, so there's no room for experimentation. The game comes alive during one boss fight towards the end when all your items are gone and you have to scramble around a burning building trying to find a happy marriage for a sledgehammer, while the zombies offer no useful advice whatsoever but otherwise it's too easy to load yourself up and things get dull pretty fast. Zombies become as stacks of forms to a data entry clerk, a thing to be swiftly processed, shouldered past or occasionally attacked with a flamethrower. I should mention there are combo vehicles now, and I'm not so proud that I can't admit that ploughing through uncountable hordes of the undead in a motorbike steamroller didn't make me titter like a schoolgirl riding a bicycle with a knobbly saddle. But Dead Rising sort of has a history of deliberately unintuitive map design, roadblocks are placed for no particular reason except to make you take the scenic route and it's impossible to get a good fast zombie crushing groove going when I had to bring the sodding map up every 50 yards to make sure I hadn't taken the wrong alleyway and the roads are littered with unusable cars like the front garden at your in-laws house. Oh and if you've got NPCs following then vehicles are fresh hell with a fuzzy dice. Firstly more than one follower means finding a four door vehicle because the selfish dicks refuse to form human pyramids on a motorbike, and then once you've found one you get to sit in the driver's seat meeping the horn while your followers attempt to unravel the mystery of the car door handles while zombies are bashing up the paintwork so the thing explodes the moment you do set off because the cars are made of corrugated cardboard and oily rags. I wouldn't mind but NPCs latch onto you like a bad smell after most side missions and there's no way to scrape them off without taking them to a safe house. At one point I tried to get into the spirit of things, gave a combo assault rifle to the mouth breathing hanger on of the moment, but the very next boss mission I went to it told me to piss off and come back alone. Perhaps the true challenge is to maintain the desire to bother saving people in which case they pull that off pretty fucking well. So in summary it's a game of many petty niggles. Here's fun, drop three items next to each other then try to pick up the one you want under pressure. That's how at one point I fought my way out of a horde and found myself clutching a traffic cone that I'd thought was my electro fire staff. But Dead Rising is a series built on petty niggles, usually balanced by catharsis, a variety of challenges and a certain vibrant levity, all of which feel lacking in this game, and the plot's a half-hearted parade of uninteresting people turning evil for stupid reasons, but then that's the entirety of the Capcom guide to plot writing isn't it? Step 1, someone turns evil for a stupid reason. Step 2, boulder punching.
I've given Nintendo shit like it's a coprophiliac strawberry patch getting all its Christmases at once, but honestly, in the console generation equivalent of a set of hairy genitals, the Wii U is the cock as opposed to the balls, because it is the game's console that seems content to largely remain a game's console as opposed to a subpar gaming PC, multimedia platform and live streaming device, humans centipeded together in a hollowed out VCR. I just wish they'd stop phoning it in. I feel sorry for the history students of the future who will need to learn the difference between Super Mario Land, Super Mario World, Super Mario 3D Land and Super Mario 3D World. Well, the easiest way to remember is that Mario 3D Land was called that because it was on the 3DS. Oh, so 3D World was too then? No, that was on the Wii U. Oh, I thought that was New Super Mario Bros. U. No, there were two on the Wii U. One was a four-player co-op platformer and the other... Hang on, I need to look this up. And the box art for Mario 3D World seems particularly lazy because they forgot to put a sodding background in and just left the transparency layer. That was one for my Photoshop using homies. Peace. Once again, a new Mario game is basically just randomly picked features from previous Mario games human centipeded together. Yes, I am trying to turn human centipede into a verb. In this case, we have the four playable characters with slightly different movement styles from Mario 2. Mario, Luigi, Peach, and the one you play if you showed up late and nobody likes you. Peach getting off her loathsome sweaty ass for once screws up Bowser's entire kidnapping schedule, so instead he swiftly ad-libs the kidnap of eight magical fairies and puts them in bottles. Oh, I see, it's okay when Link does it. This is all established in a cutscene with no dialogue, because I guess maybe everyone was just sick of the translator's shit, and if you ask me, Mario is triple-jumping to conclusions. He's known Bowser a hell of a lot longer than he's known these fairies he's decided he's gonna rescue. We have no reason to believe that Bowser hasn't done his civic duty and arrested the notorious Mushroom Kingdom 8, wanted on multiple counts of robbery, wand assault, and being maliciously twee. Well, it hardly matters like Mario's ever needed much excuse to jump his way through eight worlds and curb check his go-karting buddy. So the new feature is cat suits, meaning suits made to look like cats, not Luigi running around in a skin-tight Sorry, I lost my train of thought. There is something a little bit sus about it, though. Maybe it's the way characters in cat mode stick their bums in the air as they walk in a way for which only the word presenting feels adequate, or the meow they make at the end of the level that makes me uncomfortable, but maybe that's just because I'm old and jaded enough to realise that someone somewhere must be getting off to this, and I have a horrible feeling it may be Mario himself. I've been burned before by allowing hairy middle-aged men to indulge in what they called harmless fun. Mechanically, the cat suit lets you climb up walls, so the level designers can just stick the collectibles and secrets high up on a wall somewhere about 70% of the fucking time, and it also has a glide attack that I'm an expert at using accidentally and gliding straight off the fucking map with. Hey, Mario, you like it retro, I respect that, but maybe it's time you come to terms with the fact that controllers have more than two buttons now, so you don't have to have one button for run, attack, pick up, glide, jazzercise and lick your own asshole. So a Nintendo game is being deliberately retro, and another news bears still shit in the woods, but there seems to be a clear cutting off period for retro somewhere around the N64. Mario 64 and Sunshine and Galaxy all made constant use of 3D space, while a lot of the levels in 3D World and 3D Land are designed with a 2D sensibility, even while you can still move in three dimensions. So a significant amount of maps consist of linear obstacle courses against flat backdrops, except it's infuriatingly easy to come a bit too far forward and drop off the front of the level, which must be a fucking existential nightmare for an X2D character. I played a bit of it co-op, but cooperative it is not. It's more competitive than fucking Bushido Blade. All possible enjoyment was replaced by stress and bitterness, because at the end of the level whoever got the most points is given a fucking crown, and with that largesse on the table, camaraderie was only the first thing to drop off the map, as we both try to sprint ahead snatching up coins, and once one person touches the flag at the end, the other has a deadline the length of an average pull-out procedure before the level ends and the players who made it are showered with confetti and accolades, while everyone else harbours the kind of seething resentment usually reserved for Palestinians and bridesmaids. Of course, it's not so retro that it can't embrace all that social media shit that must now run through entertainment like corn syrup through the workings of an expensive piece of electronics, so after every level you're treated to a quick rundown of posts from twats offering such searing insights as, that level was hard, or I did it on my first try, because they mistook me for the Guinness Book of shit no one cares about, or alternatively they'll just post an image of an unlockable marriage 
Mario sticker arranged in such a way that it looks like Mario is breaking wind on Princess Peach's face. Thank you so much. Now I have a couple of brain cells eternally devoted to that image, and I am going to come around to your house and take them back with a fucking spoon. Still, if that image got past the Nintendo Family Fun sensors, then it gives me hope for all the ones I posted in which I airbrushed out the faces of characters and replaced them with gaping anuses. Find me one case in which random user comments enrich an online experience. Scroll down now and read the first five comments under this video. You should start feeling a cold metallic sensation because you're now holding a gun to your head. But what makes me really swill spite around and around my mouth like a bogey I'm on the fence about swallowing is how fucking sycophantic most of the comments are. There's your generic best game ever's, and then more specific, Nintendo should make a whole game out of the Captain Toad levels. What, those interludes wherein a slow character who can't jump navigates a piss-easy labyrinth? Yeah man, they'd fucking corner the market on sleeping aids. Am I dwelling too much on the comments thing? Alright, well what do you want? It's another new Mario game. Eight worlds, a competently arranged difficulty curve, too many repeated boss fights, and a couple new power-ups based on the first thing someone saw as they glanced around the room. Maybe it evokes the retro charm of games like Mario 3 and Super Mario World more competently than most, but it hardly elevates the concept like Mario Galaxy did, and adding user comments was like hiding stuffed olives in the fruit salad. My favourite one, I think, was one that came after a desert level that simply read, in block capitals, I love sand. Word of advice, user, it's not attractive to come across as too desperate. You'll be lucky if Nintendo lets you finish jerking it off.